Excellent. We're underway. Um, this is seminar four in the McLuhan on Maui uh, seminar or colloquial series. We've got uh, today. We've got Michael Edmonds. Uh, Michael Edmonds has had the privilege of uh, studying under or beside Professor Marshall McLuhan. He went on to become the associate director of the McLuhan Program in Culture and Technology at the University of Toronto. Uh, his uh, tenure there coincided with the tenure of uh, Director Kirchhoff, that many people may know of. He's also held the position of Director of the Scotia Information Commons at the University of Toronto, which is quite an incredible facility. So we've got Mike here today. He's, he is the ultimate insider. And um, hopefully we can start off by talking about a little bit of Mike's history, what he knows, uh, behind the scenes stuff, and then um, we'll just uh, get on with the show. So great to have you here, Mike. Thank you, Andrew. Very nice to be here. Um, I did talk, uh, I, I was on board a little bit when uh, George was here two weeks ago, but otherwise I've missed uh, the other ones, which uh, I think you're doing an incredible uh, thing here, having having this uh, McLuhan on Maui. Um, one thing, though, about this insider stuff, um, w what I think is that um, I'm pretty open to like listening to people and accepting ideas and stuff like that. So um, I think that's given me an ability to talk with all, all different types of the, of the gang, the McLuhan gang, so to speak, and uh, without taking too many sides. And um, God knows I've put up with Dobbs enough, so that should say it all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep, yep. Um, that's uh, just, just into your uh, abilities there. Yes, uh, include me out, Michael. Include me out. There you go. Um, in um, the late 60s, I studied mass communications at Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, Detroit, uh, I think the only city where you drive south from Canada to get into it. I mean north. <laughs> you drive south, no. But you have to drive north from Windsor to get into Detroit. Um, and so studying mass communications, really, it was uh, mostly about um, uh, production, okay, so um, TV and radio in, in particular. Uh, but I, I can still kind of recall, I can't recall the guy, but I, I, I can recall the event where I was sitting in the student center, and uh, remember, this was the 60s, so that's what we did. We didn't really do too much schooling. We went to the student center, drank coffee. And uh, anyway, this guy came in, and he said he was from New York, and we're yakking about, I guess, communications. And uh, the guy says, you ever hear McLuhan? And uh, I hadn't. I think this is uh, around 67, 68, and he, he says, well, this is... Hey, hey, Michael, what did he say to you? We got binged out. He said, uh, we're sitting in the student center, and we're talking, we're t just talking, and... and um, as I'm in the communications field, so it probably comes up. He says, have you ever heard of this uh, McLuhan? And I hadn't. And he says, well, there's this book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, which uh, is really, you, know, you should read it. So I did, and um, it, um, and at that time, not too many other people had, including my professors, right? So uh, it was able to get me through uh, my, uh, some of my English courses and some of my communications courses just by kind of uh, talking. I mean, they all heard of McLuhan. They all heard something. He was in the air, but they hadn't really bothered to read him, so they were, they were interested to, to read what I was writing about. So um, it helped me get, get through all that. 
And so um, I guess things would have gone kind of normally, except that uh, my wife, Carol, and myself, at that time, we made a big decision, which was, well, first of all, we started visiting Toronto because um, her uh, cousin was a draft dodger. And um, so we'd come up to Toronto, and it looked like a pretty, uh, pretty nice place, and uh, we liked it. So for some reason, we just, uh, well, I knew McLuhan was here, but I didn't have it in anything in, in, anything in my dreams at all that I would get involved with any of this stuff. But um, long story short, we decided to uh, immigrate to Canada. In those days, you could actually just drive up to the border and say, uh, where are you going, Toronto? How long, is, how long do you want to be there? And uh, we said, like, well, like for a long time, we want to immigrate. And so two, three hours later, we were landed immigrants. Uh, something you can't do today. Um, they'd probably throw you in jail now if you did that. But um, anyway, in 71, this is when uh, we come to Toronto. And uh, fairly quickly, I got a position at the University of Toronto. And um, the, this is how events started to unfold. Uh, what was your position, Mike? I was at the media center. I had a job at kind of uh, supporting classroom technology. Why would you be qualified for that? Well, I don't, I don't think I was. I've never been qualified for any job I've had, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but, so you mean you just happened to hear about it and, and, and applied? You know, I, I applied for it. it. It was a technically oriented job. That's one thing. I've always kind of like been on this border between uh, theory and, um, and practice. And so uh, I could kind of straddle the fence, probably the poor either one of them. But um, this job was fairly technically oriented. But the guy that hired me, he had gone to Syracuse, which had a big communications program. And um, he was from Windsor, so he knew about the Wayne State program. So these, these were pretty, pretty much uh, top-notch programs uh, in their day. And so uh, he hired me on that basis, I guess. So um, that's how I got started at the U of T. Um, one thing I want to mention, going back to that, by the way, is that communication stuff. In those days, in the States, uh, they didn't have, like, communications departments. They had um, departments of speech. And in the, these, these were catch-all things that had – he uh, studied rhetoric. He studied, like, theater arts. He even studied the kind of um, voice reproduction, uh, like the clinical kind of stuff. So they take all these survey courses, but my focus – even though I had taken some of each of those kinds of things. So I was familiar with rhetoric. I was familiar with debate and all of the, you know, the fight, organize, organizing your, yourself uh, to uh, be in a debate or to give a talk and so, stuff like that. So this all kind of prepared me later, I guess, for McLuhan and uh, you know, his coming from um, the trivium and all that kind of stuff. Hey, hey, Michael, we have one of our pictures we have on the site is McLuhan standing in front of the Department of Communicative Disorders. That sounds like something in the speech area, the speech department. They had that as well. That's a, they had communicative uh, disorders, as you put it. He, he's doing a, he's doing a pun, but um, yeah, but it's it's therapeutic. It, it would be in the therapeutic context. Well, you know, it's uh, some of it. How 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 does uh, you know when kids learn learn um, to to speak, various uh, vowels and um, consonants. Uh, you know, they they develop in each individual in the, the same kind of pattern. So these are things that people look at. Uh, anyway, we did that. Uh, just diverting to that, the the um, so I had this already in in my background. 
then I came up to Toronto and it went kind of technical, which is more or less where I really have stayed uh, for the most part, um, although in sort of bridging this gap between uh, theory and, and, and technique. So, so uh, what were they trying to do, Mike, in this, um, this uh, media center at U of T? It, particularly in those days, uh, the, it made its mark, um, well, as I say, it supported classroom stuff, but what it really did was um, it had uh, morphed into, um, in the 60s, Ontario had this huge um, um, burgeoning population, and they built, uh, one thing, they built a bunch of community colleges, that's when that system came in. And uh, the other thing they did is they built um, they U of T built a suburban Kansas called Scarborough College, and its uh, main reason for being built and existing was to be uh, was to use media, um, and so they thought they would teach by via television. And that was a big failure. But um, what happened is it all that failed because none of the academics they hired wanted to teach that way. But all of the expertise and stuff came down to the main campus and uh, they started making these videos. So uh, I know in terms of Canada, U of T was the only one making these kind of things. Uh, I myself have made about, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 of these uh, educational uh, documents. What I call yeah. now, when I talk about the commons, I call it now um, um, basically creating new knowledge in non-text formats, stuff that McLuhan did. Right, so, that, so you're saying that the media center in the 60s was there for students in different courses to go get equipment. To go get equipment, but they also had a, like it was, they, had a, they had a professional side with a huge mobile truck and stuff that would go out and do shoots. For the professors within the university or for anybody? Um, no, for the, for the professors. And the professors would, would not have to pay them? No, they're, they're, the finances were worked out. It was usually the department, and, and the, the media center had some funds. And right. And, uh, when, you, when you say that uh, Sheridan was built on the idea of having TV circuitry, you can see that McClure was pointing out, you know, the use of uh, audiovisual aids in the classroom, pointing out the problems of that. Yet the general image McLuhan was that he was the guy promoting TV, and Sheridan College might have cited McLuhan as the reason they've got to go TV. You know what I mean? Could, have, could well have been. Could well have been. Yeah. It was, uh, I, I don't, uh, what is that guy's name, uh, the politician that built here? His name escapes me now in the, in the 60s. But, um, the Mel guy? Yeah, I just don't remember his name. Um, Mel, the Jewish guy. No, no, that's the city guy. I'm talking about the provincial provincial leader. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, is that they under the guise that McLuhan was somebody promoting TV, they would then bring in a, a structure like Sheridan College, and they wouldn't notice that McLuhan said it ain't going to work. That's right. In fact, um, I'll jump ahead a little bit. Um, eventually, I ended up going to Oise, uh, and I studied under Fred Rainsbury. And Fred Rainsbury, um, well, for anybody in Ontario, they should, if they're, if they know about the Friendly Giant, uh, they would know Fred Rainsbury. He created that. Uh, so he was the head of children's programming for the CBC. But he, he, he taught at Oise, and he was one of the guys responsible for getting the CBC. 
to read McLuhan's uh, NAEB documents and interpret that to he actually Don Thiel was hired by Rainsbury and the CBC people to interpret the McLuhan's views on the media. The 1960 document that was actually read into the record at Congress as a controversial publication. Yeah, yeah. So um, eventually I studied with Rainsbury. He became my supervisor because he, he was the only one that did media there. And um, he he's the one that insists that I take McLuhan's seminar. And um, which I did, which was the last complete seminar, seminar and I, that was seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Um, but I already knew McLuhan, kind of uh, casually, because McLuhan uh, and um, well, this was the time when the, sometimes George was around uh, later. But first, uh, but first, uh, when I first met McLuhan, I really the first McLuhan I met was uh, Morris McLuhan, because Morris was hired to be McLuhan's assistant. Uh, a job that uh, Thompson eventually took over. But uh, Morris and Marshall didn't get along, and so uh, Morris had to move on. But uh, Morris and or Marshall would make visits to the media center because they always wanted, uh, they always had little uh, AV problems, technical problems. And so one example I can give you is that uh, McLuhan, um, he didn't want to hear ads on his TV. Nowadays we think of the, you know, it's just commonplace. you got the mute on the remote, right? But uh, he, he came in and he had one of our technicians create a, a uh, mute for him, for his TV set, so that uh, he could mute it anytime he wanted. I assume it was the ads, by the way, but I'm guessing on that. Maybe he muted the programs and watched the ads. I don't know, but maybe you have a comment on that, Bob. No, I didn't know that. don't know anything about it. Yeah. Uh, he may have just wanted to cut the soundtrack off and look at the visuals. Yeah, or the or the tactile visual. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, and um, so I'm studying with Rainsbury, and uh, Rainsbury is really he's an old Aristotelian kind of uh, hard-nosed Canadian kind of kind of guy, um, saying, um, you know, talking about how you know Canadians have an identity problem, Americans don't. Uh, you know, we should just uh, CBC's got to get with it, yada yada yada. You know. But he insisted that um, that uh, I take the fluent seminar, which um, was easy enough to do. So I took the seminar in 77, 78, um, and we started out. It was the only. It was only when we started. Um, the only session was the Monday night seminar, and um, so that was the thing everybody knows about. That's open to the public, right? And. Um, Michael, he was retired, over 65, and they let him do some kind of teaching, and you're saying the only teaching he could do was Monday night. No, no, no. What I'm, what I'm saying is he, as far as the class goes, he only, he said, just come to the Monday night seminars. No class? No class, uh, except then, I don't know, maybe a month or so into it. And he, he somehow announced on Monday night seminars, so he said, uh, I got I got word from higher up. <laughs> I I, um, I I can't I have to have you actually meet as a class. <laughs> so what, what day of the week w is going to work? You know, so we we all had to work out uh, uh, when we would meet. And I, I don't remember when it was. It was some afternoon anyway. Yeah. Now, Michael, I never thought of sitting in his class because I wasn't. 
talking to her secretary about being part of that because I wasn't a student, but I made sure I knew of the Monday night seminars and went to them many years. The interesting thing is I know I got to sit in the class that last term, 77, 78, because there was talk about it. It was like an extension of the, of the Monday night thing, and that's, you've explained why. It, it wasn't as formal in a sense. No, no. Um, I mean, it, it was kind of like a class. Uh, you know, uh, I think some. I think you may have had that picture up there on your website of the of the seminar. If you look at it, you see a bunch of bearded guys in it, and you know some poet-looking types and some you know, some girls. Um, oddly enough, it's kind of a large class. And George, I don't know if he mentioned that to you, but George has always talked about how in those la- la- later years. Um, they couldn't get any students, and uh, McLuhan would send George out on a kind of hunting spree, find out why, what's going on, why does Fry have all the students and I, I can't get any. Um, so uh, I think George's take on it now was that uh, basically um, um, there was an effort made to, you know, wherever you went down the hallways of different colleges, the registrars had little notes up there about Fry's courses, but there were no notes up there about McLuhan's course. Yeah, I became friends of a couple of the guys in that picture because I would come to the classes. Yeah. Uh, we don't have it here, but there, of course I was already knew Carl Scarf. He was like me dropping in, but there was that other guy, the chubby guy with the white hair. Yeah. With the glasses. That I had many talks with him, and uh, I think I brought him to the post after Marshall passed on. He came into some of those later things. But, uh, yeah, it was very like Monday night. It was not like your normal classroom. No, no. Um, and so, uh, I, so we, we, we all had the, the you know, it's not a normal class. You had to have a, you had to do, do some papers and read a little bit. And um, um, he, he spent a lot of time uh, selling his remaindered books to us, you know, um, just as a service. So you could get your little autograph, autograph copy of a, Cochet archetype or uh, take today and so forth. You're saying his classes well, he, were. What? Was he, uh, as a, uh, a very dynamic uh, person at that time, Mike, or was he uh, uh, showing signs of ill health, or what, what was uh, what was the general vibe in those later years? No, he was he was dynamic uh, actually. Um, I I was told by some, I think maybe Eric uh, amongst others, but. Um, I was kind of told that uh, they thought that he actually had a kind of a revival that year and seemed more lively than he had been. He had a major interview in March 77 in McLean's magazine, which would lead for students to sign up for the fall of 77, winter 78 course. And uh, I talked, what'd you say? Yeah, that could have been it. Yeah, and... uh, I showed it to Dennis Young, famous uh, Canadian art critic at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax, and he looks at it and he scans it. Oh, there's McLuhan doing that same old crap. Now it's the what, left and right hemisphere? <laughs> he wasn't impressed. <laughs> Definitely left, and the, the big brain picture was up on the wall. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so the you know the left right brain was uh, was a big part of it. Um, well, he had a, he had his phases, you know, and uh, gradually. He had his what? He had his phases, extensions, yeah. left, right. Well, he had he had the miracle happens in '72. He had some kind of stroke in '76, so, so he's weakened a bit or something in that period. And then he recovered in '77. 
Yeah, as I say, so, he, he he was good. In fact, uh, I guess two and a well, couple things uh, to relate to Andrew. Number one is he actually had the class over um, to his house in Witchwood Park in um, I guess in January, and uh, so that was nice. And Corinne, uh, you know, cooked up lasagna and stuff like that. And he opened up his sideboard with all his liquors in it. So that that would have been uh, that that I'm sure Andrew you would have liked that touch. <laughs> and um, I, he introduced me to Irish Mist, uh, kind of a sweet uh, liqueur. And, uh, yeah, so we, we had a good time uh, there. And um, hey, 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 Michael, I would add, in that period, 77, 78, especially, especially getting into 78, there weren't that many people coming to the Monday night seminars. Sue Bone is on the line. She probably came around one of those times. And, it, like, half the people I would bring... So it, there was a sense of uh, a vacuum, a void there. It, it, not, I didn't know about the classroom, but now that you talk about how he's not so formal in his class, um, it sounds like the same atmosphere as um, in the Monday Night Things. There was nobody around, really. Yeah, well, in the, in the, when the class was meeting, it was just him and George there. Uh, sometimes there might be somebody else around, or maybe Eric once or twice. Uh, and then this wasn't even that the whole class showed up, right? Right. And so, uh, yeah, it's quite relaxed. And uh, so you, you could have some one-on-one with McLuhan. And um, I brought some things there at times. I brought some uh, old films about the telephone. Cause we talked. He was big on the telephone then, too. About yeah, the big sociological book had come out. Remember the big blue book? He was trying to get everybody to read it. And I remember one night, Monday night, Barry Nevick going up to some other professor or somebody holding the book. He says, you know, see this book? You've got to read it. It's incredible. He was really pumping this big sociological thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you uh, remember that book? I, I can't picture the blue book, no. Okay. The, there's another aspect. You should explain that he had... Back then, did you have to retire at, at 65? Yeah. Yeah, so he, he had to retire at 76, but because he was famous, they let him carry on in some way. Do you remember that? I remember that. In fact, he 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 mentioned it. Um, he may have mentioned that in the class during the day, but he 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 made reference to it, and he said, "Well, uh, he said I'm." He 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 just sort of talked about. I I made some sort of arrangement with the university. Um, it was kind of a grudging statement, you know. That is kind of like uh, they have the audacity to think they've made an arrangement for me to let me teach here, right? Something like that, you know. And they, Said they should be thankful. I think is what. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they tolerated him having yeah. a class. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he mentioned that, and if, and that was very cryptic, though. He didn't really want to come out and say, because like you know, like now, I mean, essentially, I mean, a lot of people retire and they teach a part-time course. You know, they're like an adjunct prof type of thing or something. But uh, he 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 couldn't he couldn't go there. Um, I know you. We could jump ahead a little bit because for um, the following year, before he had the stroke. And by the way, I kind of figured out because I was up uh, with Bruce Powell in um, Copeland a month or so ago. Yeah. Was refer- they were referring to when Bruce took the seminar. Bruce. Took he did seventy-seven, seventy-eight. The the year no, you were there. Seventy-eight. No, he did seventy-eight. I did seventy-seven, seventy-eight. He did seventy-eight, seventy-nine. 
Okay, yes, he was there at the very end, um, uh, so he only did one year, and he was writing for Carl Scarfs. What I remember about him, he was a, a student, a smart student, making input into Carl Scarfs in his Herald, which was focused a lot around McLuhan. He wrote a couple of his early essays on pounding that for that, for that um, newspaper, student newspaper, and so he was around acting like involved on that level, and so he stood out. Yeah, yeah. Um. But you know the last that see seventy eight. How could it see Marshall? So he did seventy seven, seventy eight, then seventy eight, seventy nine, then the summer seventy nine. He has a stroke in September. So okay, so he does seventy eight, seventy nine. I this dead period to me uh, may be seventy nine. It was more the last year. The the big in in this. Were you there for Trudeau in November seventy seven, which would be the beginning of your course? Yeah. Right, you were there that night. That was the pinnacle. The, the paper wrote it up, and then everything dwindled off after that, you know, starting in January 78 for, for the yeah. next year and a half. Yeah, yeah. Well, from our, from our view, you know, you carried on with the class. We met, on, we met, we did our papers. Uh, we had our little assignment. Um, you know, he was doing a Sherlock Holmes thing. Then Carl put him in a Sherlock Holmes cape and one of those pipes with the curved pipe thing. Yeah. Case. And uh, in fact, he made us write a little—not a paper even—made us kind of write up his paragraphs about the sleuth uh, for him. And because um, you was, had to write it up for him. Yeah, it was an assignment. It was like one of those little, you know, fluffy assignments. Um, Where you would have to define or talk about it. Not that he could—would he use that information in some way himself? Probably put it. Well, I don't know. He probably would have had uh, maybe at Eric. Reread him. I don't know what he did with him. Well, that's interesting. You're saying here he is doing the sleuth thing that Carl uh, suggested and had that picture put in the in his Herald, and he's asking his students to write about sleuth even though they weren't being taught anything about it. Well, he was always talking about stuff. About sleuthing. So what would you imagine you'd write? I can't remember now, but, uh, you know, you, you'd probably... Uh, I, I, it's beyond me what I, we would have written. As I say, it wasn't a paper. Uh, it was just a little, you know, I can't even remember, was it like a few paragraphs? You know, they just talk about the sleuth. Put some ideas, put some ideas down about sleuthing. <laughs> it's like he, he knew you guys were sleuthing him, so he wanted to see what you thought you were doing. No, ex- uh, that's true. But remember, McLuhan was not a... McLuhan was not a, uh, a um, a difficult marker or anything like that. Right. Um, not a strict, not a strict wanted, guy. He wanted communications, and um, it's it's true. Like, I don't think everybody got an A in the class. Um, I did, I can tell you that, but uh, I suppose, I don't know the ones that didn't, I don't know where, how they, what they did or didn't do to get an A, but um, he, he was generous in his marking. You know, he looked at, he was looking for ideas and, and stuff like that. So, See, um, what's interesting, Michael, definitely I remember the seminars and the few classes, not the classes, they seemed to be purposeful, even though it was slightly informal, not as rigid, and th- so that I was even allowed to be part of it. But the Monday night things, I was bringing the audience. There was always the regulars in that. And um, definitely it was like an atmosphere of over in the coach house, but he was flying to... Uh, 
he made the trip in the summer of 77 to California and Hawaii or Fiji, and he had a press conference with Jerry Brown, met Jerry Brown, did some stuff that got published in Stuart Brand's uh, Co-Evolution Quarterly. And he was out in the media, and the Annie Hall happened. So it's interesting, you know, his TV body was actually getting coverage, but there was nothing happening at the university. In, in his coach house, other than whatever he was doing off campus. And what was amazing, he was doing interesting stuff at that point. Well, he was doing the laws of media. He was working. Heavy yeah. That. He had had that published in the Et Cetera magazine. And, and he started to write a few academic essays, like the one on uh, the midwife, Elliot and Pound in the Wasteland, in which he hadn't done in a long time. It's like he had time to uh, do the old kind of stuff he did in the 40s, which Don Thiel said he was always hankering to get back to do. So you didn't think that McLuhan, he didn't seem to be concerned that nobody was showing up because he was very busy himself. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure about that because um, in um, the following year, uh, I was involved with him on two two occasions. One was I recorded a Monday night seminar. You were there. Yeah, that was January 22nd, 1979, which is available to buy from the media center, right? Yeah, U of T. And um, so uh, he gave me permission to record that. And we can talk about that, too, if you want. There's some stories. But the the, the other thing was, um, I guess probably would have been George called me up one, one day and said, uh, McLuhan would like to uh, do something special for his friend Hiddle down in Florida. I said, well, what does he want to do? He said, well, he wants to make a um, video birthday greeting for the guy. Can you handle that? You know, can you do it? He said, sure, of course we can do it. So um, I went over there with a guy, a camera cameraman, and a camera, and we recorded him. And so he mostly McLuhan's talking to Hiddle, um, whom I think I had already met. He came up for some of the Monday night seminars, I think. Um, somehow I think I met him, and um, but he kind of um, looks into the camera, and he's talking about. He says, "Well, this is here. I'm here." He says, "It's just me and George now. That's all that's left." And it's kind of like we we have a shot of the room in front of the famous uh, painting and uh, the Seurat painting. And uh, it's kind of a, I think there was a real moment of sadness. I think he was actually saying, um, it's all over here. So you're saying he's like flying high around the world, but in his own little, um, in his own little castle there, um, he, he doesn't have anybody else. He's lamenting that, in my view. So, uh, Mike, are you teaching? Uh, sorry, are you involved in the media center at this time? And if you're involved in the media center, was there any? Um, were you changing what you're doing because of uh, what you're encountering with McLuhan? Hey, Andrew. Sorry, remember your question. I was on mute. I was. Re- I had some. I was responding to Michael, and, and I realized you weren't hearing me. Back to you said, Michael. He seemed to be regretting. Did you say regretting? What was that word? Lamenting. 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 Okay. Now, here's where I discovered on Maui, through Mary, McLuhan's daughter, there's a person named David Greenberg who lives here in Maui. He was doing a whole thing getting McLuhan ready to do a TV series in in L.A. Now, David Greenberg says he'll come maybe next week and talk about all this. 
what is interesting, he definitely, there was the air was let out of the center on some level. Now, in the biography, Marchand talks about Trudeau is starting to lose power, and whatever pull that had for him to get grants uh, was going. And so it looked like it was over, and you see him saying this tape to Hiddle, and Hiddle's the guy who made the really good bibliography. I don't know if that's available anyways, but he was the only one that documented all of Marshall's articles, made a little booklet. But what's interesting, what we didn't know until I met David Greenberg last in 2008, was that McClune was getting ready to like almost leave Toronto, get something going in the States. So it's interesting. Uh, of course, he would lament his, his life as a teacher, but he was really ready to, do, to get out of the university atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm ambivalent about what he uh, really was thinking um, or feeling. I think uh, he was a bit despondent, whatever you call it, lamenting, sad about the fate of his Toronto operation. But he was heavily involved in an L.A. operation, yeah, which would have moved. That's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know about that part, but I, I think for sure um, – well, even you know, prior to that, I had gone over and recorded that seminar, and as far as I know, no one ever really did that before. And I don't recall it ever. That's where, when I met you, it would be 20 years later. I actually remembered you vaguely familiar. You were the one at the camera. Uh, no, but I probably was by it. Yeah, you were standing around. I remember your face when I met you. It would be, yeah, 20 years later. And uh, I remember you there. And then in my own memory, I recall your face being at maybe some Monday night seminars before that, but you weren't taping. Yeah. Um, well, I have, uh, uh, that's an edited version that you see, but in the unedited version, you know, that's not on the tape, McLuhan looks around to all those people sitting around the floor and everything like that, and he says, this is all brought to you by Michael Edmonds. Right. And it was that footage and of, of the... Himself, since he thought I was uh, some kind of a cult figure. God knows, God knows what he meant by it. Right. And uh, it's, it's like when he, his last words were, George is here, when George was telling us that story. Yeah. Um, the uh, the footy, um Stephanie, in her first McLuhan documentary in 84, that got played on PBS and everything, got good reviews... They used your footage of people coming in to that night. Yeah, I met Stephanie. She came and asked for permission to use it, and uh, we gave it to her. And you might mention that the content was interesting. It was Jeffrey Paysant, the biographer of Gould, presenting his book on yeah. on Gould. Yeah, uh, Paysant, um, who, okay, so they had arranged for Paysant uh, to be a guest, the guest of honor. And um, I knew Paisant. He, because Paisant was one of the first guys to monkey around with synthesizers and stuff like that. He really is a philosopher of music. And um, so I knew him. I knew McLuhan. So I said, I, pro- I may have started with Paisant. I said, you know, I, I would like to f- tape that the seminar. Um, he wouldn't stand against it, but he definitely thought he 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 was very he had a lot of trepidation because he was 100% convinced that McLuhan was nuts. And he would say that to you? He said that to me, yeah. And, um, and so um, 
anyway, <laughs> I had, I, I, McLuhan, McLuhan said, yeah. Uh, of course, later on, I found out that there's a Matey Molinaro knife involved with it, but at, at that point, he said, yeah. So That's his agent, Matey Molinaro, and she would yeah. maybe get into copyright issues or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Paisan, of course, uh, when he says he's not, uh, Paisan probably probably knows that he 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 probably knows about the tetrad. Um, anyway, before he goes in. Yeah, before he goes in. But when um, so um, uh, there's a lot of things about that tape which is interesting. But um, he's talking about Gould and the edit, and McLuhan says, well, you know, the whole the whole world is now an edit. You know, uh, <laughs> we live in the age of the edit. And because they start out, Paisan plays a piece of Gould and uh, for like 30 seconds. And said, what do you think of that? So I said, oh, well, you know, it's Gould. And he says, there's 158 edits in that 30 seconds, something like this, you know. And then Gould and then Gould goes on and say, well, of course there is. You know, everything's edited. But, um, well, wait, you got binged out. He said, of course there is what? Of course there is. That, that the whole world's an edit, you know. <laughs> Yeah, Gould is very impressed with so many edits, and McLuhan is not impressed. I was there that night, and there, it, I don't know if you got the whole thing. Well, you would have it all on tape, but I don't remember if it's all in there. But there were some awkward moments. His aunt would look at McLuhan like, this guy's nuts. Do you remember that? I do remember, because I, I, I wanted to get to the point where they decide to do a tetrad on, um, on uh, zippers or something like that. I think it was on zippers, actually. Yeah. Or, or long flow. Uh, yeah, I think it was zippers, and um, when pushed to its limit, what does it turn into? Velcro. Velcro is what it turned into. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and then they had the hook buttons. You know, what did it retrieve? And hook buttons and all this stuff. Anyway, as far as I know, it's an impromptu kind of thing, um, and McLuhan zips right through this tetrad, and <laughs> pays out. And it, it's so it's so sound and so fits together. That each time McLuhan mentions one of the one of the four parts of the tetrad, uh, Paisan's draw jaw drops another inch. <laughs> now you're saying he was impressed? Yeah, he was impressed. He was dumbfounded. Right. I remember the dumbfounding or the quizzical looking. Yeah. No. He he was dumbfounded. He 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 uh, that it worked. <laughs> he went in as a non-believer. He left as a non-believer, even though he was shown at work. Yeah. And by the way, the, one one edit on your on Andrew Crystal's little thing there. We were the Tetra heads. That comes later. We weren't the Tetrad heads. We were the Tetra. T e t r a h e a d s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll change that. And so, may, unless there's more for Michael to say now. Uh, do you have a, your question, Andrew, that you already asked? Does it relate to this thing? Because there might be a bit more to say about this before you go to your question. No, I keep it going. Like, uh, my stuff, uh, it starts coming in. I wanted to ask, uh, you know, get, stay with us and I'll come back in soon. Yeah, because what's really interesting, the only thing, the only Monday night thing that we know of taped, there might be some obscure audio recordings of them, of different ones, but this is McLuhan with his old buddy Gould, and Gould is the guy who went in TV, so it's appropriate that McLuhan allowed the Gould, uh, the Gould topic to be videotaped. Yeah, definitely. That, that may have been one reason McLuhan agreed. Yeah, because it was uh, the editing TV world that, that Gould was doing. But now you have these two guys. Uh, what do you recall? See, 
here you have McLuhan, who probably understands Gould better than Payzant. So, so McLuhan is at least better understanding in what, in retrospect, we'd appreciate. Maybe not back then, uh, he was considered, McLuhan was a nut, but here's Payzant, the biographer, he's hearing about Gould on a whole other level that he's never heard of, right? It could be, yeah, yeah. So it's a very interesting uh, tape, the one you can get. Too bad we don't see it all, but uh, Barry Nevitt says a lot on there, doesn't he? Barry Nevitt, and in fact, um, I, I, as it turned out, because I lived near McLuhan then, and um, George uh, drove McLuhan and I home, and um, a couple things could be said about that on that drive home, but one was he wished that I had never given Barry a microphone. <laughs> uh, we, 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 so you know we're taping and we, we, we have so many inputs and we have a mixer there and stuff like this it's a reasonably professional recording uh, we have so many inputs so um, I want the mic as many as I could so I, I know Barry at least got a mic maybe Logan who was there too I can't remember but um, yeah but that, that tells us a lot here's what you got to understand about the McLuhan's Monday Night Things he would eventually pontificate but he was there to find out what was going on in the world, in the community. And they actually, the Jest of Honor was important. And he didn't want someone, like Barry might tend to, start teaching the guy, you know, 10 minutes into it. Marsha wanted to hear about it. Do you, you understand what I'm saying, Michael? Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Yeah, he was definitely learning. He... So, Mike, were you a, a musician? You were a musician at this point, eh? Hey? A lot of people don't know that you're quite an accomplished singer. So, you're there as a, as a musician. Were you quite taken with Glenn Gould and uh, Jeffrey Paisant? Where, where, where were you on this thing? Uh, Gould, I wouldn't have known too much about uh, at that point. So, um, I had I had read the the book, and uh, of course I was uh, of course I mean I was taken with the, the generalities of, of Gould and leaving the concert hall and and uh, Going into the recording studio and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And since like, um, like I spent a lot of time already editing in a, in in those kinds of things. So um, I felt at home in that, and I felt at home talking about the uh, Gould. Um, but if, in, in terms of that actual taping, that 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 part of it, that was mostly logistics, getting everybody to agree, getting the cameras there, and. Um, and then dealing with it later on, and dealing with uh, Mady Molinero, who, uh, uh, because of the um, the production assistant that we had at the time, she she wanted to do like a really good job, so she managed somehow to get a a a, a, a letter of uh, permission over to McLuhan for him to sign, like a waiver. Uh, a letter of what? Uh, a waiver for us to use him. To distribute the program, right? Uh, uh, permission. And but she managed. So who's giving who permission? Well, when you do one of these things, you have to have permissions from the participants, right? So she organized that, which is normal. Yeah, except that she she didn't allow me to do it. Who knew McLuhan? She just sort of did it as an official kind of thing. So McLuhan saw this. He said, "Oh, I don't sign any of these. You have to send that to Mady." Oh, in other words, you, your papers from the media center, he would not accept. That's right. He would not give us permission to distribute the tape after we've made all this uh, effort to record it. Unless you sign, unless you got a paper from Mady. We had to, yeah, he said that Mady will have to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. So, 
so now I'm stuck here. Right now I have a, what I think is a pretty good effort. We got the tape. Um, looks good. Everybody was happy. And then um, now it's sort of bogged down. But uh, in the end, um, in the end, basically, I guess, that's, that's, well, I suppose in the end, because it was UT and it was his school, he he ended up signing it. Your paper. He he ended up giving rights to the for the university to distribute the tape. Yeah, but it was a paper that Mady brought to him. No, it was our paper. It was our 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 release. Oh, okay. So he he backed off and having it come from Mady. No, what I'm saying he we give him the release to sign. He won't. He looks at it. He says, "Oh shit, I can't sign this." I got to get. He had to get permission from Mady to sign it. As far as I think of it that way. It's almost like she had to sign it. Basically, I mean, essentially, yeah. I guess uh, because she's the literary agent, she has to sort of, uh, she's, his, uh, she's his agent. Now, why why is there a, a, a bottleneck there? Don't you just call her up and say, hey, let this happen? Um, I can't remember 100% uh, if, it, if it was a bottleneck. I think that uh, mostly... I think that I don't know that I actually dealt with her so much as just to sort of talk with George and and him and say, you know, like, uh, why don't you just sign the thing and let's get on with it. <laughs> so you never met Mady in that context. No, no. And Marshall finally signed the paper you had. Yeah, this was not a commercial venture, right? Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> That's I mean, important. Everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows now. I mean. You have a book with McLuhan quotes. Um, even Barry Nevitt, he had a whole book. Um, what was his book called? The ABCs of uh, Prophecy? ABC, singular. ABC of Prophecy. ABC of Prophecy. And then there's the uh, gold, There's the, the Bruce uh, Powers book. Yeah, these are books where Marshall wasn't... Uh, you're saying that people could get away using a lot of Marshall's stuff. Well, basically what I'm saying is the public cases were all held up because um, uh, people, you know, because the McLuhan's didn't want to, wanted to have their, their rights protected. Yeah, mine wasn't held up because I had to go to the publishers of the books the quotes were, front, were from. I didn't deal with her. I just went to the publishers. Yeah, yeah. But you're saying, what are you saying here that, uh, that yeah, we know Bruce Powers had a problem. We know everybody has a problem if they write a book about McLuhan. Yeah. Barry Nevitt didn't have any problem, I don't think. He did. Definitely had a problem. Okay, what was that later? With the with the reprints in eighty five, eighty six? Um, no, I don't think so. I think they I think one thing about those books is the the uh, laws of media and the other two books, they all come out within a year of each other. Yeah, laws. The the letters come out in '87. Oh, laws of media, laws of media, the the Powers McLuhan book and the Barry book. They all come out within a year of each other. It goes like this: letters is '87, the laws of media is '88, and Global Village is '89. And out of Oxford University Press with Bruce Powers, but he made he made his forward. He dated it August 8, '88. The date that was the preface that Eric did for the 1988 Laws of Media, because he wanted to show that he was there at the same time. You know what I mean? Uh, but the, uh, then Barry's book, The ABC of Prophecy, it came out in 1980, handed out at the World Futurist Conference, the first one they had, where they gave an honorary award to McLuhan, 
and McLuhan came on stage and he couldn't speak. And that was that was the first time I saw LaRouche talk about McLuhan. He he saw McLuhan as an agent for the world oligarchs and the global village dogma. And and they had their one of the writers at that conference in Toronto. And that's where Barry met Dennis Murphy at Concordia, which was a major thing in Barry's life throughout the eighties, his connection with Dennis Murphy. So he had a little booth handing out ABC of Prophecy in nineteen eighty. Yeah, but it, I think he ran into trouble when he tried to like kind of make it a go a higher profile with it. Yeah, that was in '85 when he had that artist do the cover, the portrait, and all that of Barry. Yeah, that may be where he got in trouble. I don't know. He put out um, the Communication Ecology in '82 with that textbook company Butterworths. Uh, I never heard of any problems in him doing that, and that was in '82. No, no, it was only the ABCs, I think. Well, that would be the later version, 85 ABC. We reprinted it with glossier, glossier um, covers. Now, the ABC of Prophecy in 1980 might have been just published by himself, you know, a Vanity Press thing. But most of his books were. Big pardon? Most of his books were Vanity Press. Yes. But the reprints were slicker. Yeah, yeah. Um... So anyway, the the thing is, we I don't know if we finished up with the seminar stuff. Other than say, um, uh, the only other thing that came out uh, that, on that drive home, aside from giving Barry the mic, was that um, um, the bicameral mind guy was in the air then. Um, Julian Jaynes. Julian Jaynes, and um, I don't know if it came up in the seminar or not, but uh, I had read it, and I brought it up to McLuhan. And uh, McLuhan just gave his science fiction, pure science fiction. Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't think much of that. Yeah, the book is called The Origins of the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which came out in 76, and McLuhan wrote a review of it in the Globe and Mail or or um, Toronto Star, and he, he says, useful research, but uh, Jane's missed the point that if you understood that the left hemisphere came in with the alphabet, uh, then you understand what the real causes of the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Yeah, you know. Yeah. He said James missed the the, the real ground. Um, but people got to realize that this is, Glenn Gould is a big factor in McLuhan's life, in the Toronto part of his life. When Robert Fulford writes his, uh, he's the, the top popular critic, he writes about his life in the, in the 80s, and his book was called The Best Seat in the House. He brags how he grew up, he was in you know primary school, junior, low-level schooling, whatever it's called, well, um, secondary education with Glenn Gould within this classroom. So he knew Glenn Gould, and he also knew McLuhan. And that was the dialectic that the main critic said that he was lucky to witness and had an insider view, because that is the crux of, you could say, male uh, Canadian culture in the 60s. Female is, is um, uh, Margaret Atwood and the, and the new female writers in the beginning of Can, Can Lit, or Canadian Literature, but in the male zone, it's McLuhan Gould. And so that's, it's important to watch how Marshall in this uh, interaction with the biographer. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in this tape. The, um, yeah, the interesting thing, and it partly addresses Andrew's question, was that um, uh, McLuhan's ability, because, you know, music is a, is a, is a, special, a specialization, right? Um, and McLuhan would have preferred, he told me he would have preferred that the taping would have been done on another night with a different guest. Um, another night with a different guest? Yeah, instead of like with Paisan and the music. 
Um, what should it be? Pardon? What could it otherwise be? Well, it could it could have been anything. He just was basically saying that to, to deal with the, you know to to deal within a musical context and musical topic and musical theme was difficult for him. And yet, if you look at the tape, he 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 just goes right through it as if it's second nature. Right. So I'm not getting what would be the alternative way he would want it presented. He would pre- he would have preferred to have a different subject instead of music and Gould. What he was saying. Yeah, he's saying he didn't even want to do music in Gould. He didn't want to. He he wished it had been different because I guess I guess he felt he didn't do that well talking about Gould. Right, and you're saying he would have wished it in the context of something being taped. This was the wrong topic to be taped. Yeah. That's what you mean. Okay. Yeah. There's another aspect. Um, here here is Gould. The Canadian John Cage, in a way, but he goes more technical, and he, he's, he's really the Canadian Zappa. But Marshall is a big influence on in John Cage. See, this is what's really interesting. Here's Marshall, this uh, literary authority, literary critic, and yet dealing with the popular dirty media, the new media. And he's influencing the avant-garde in New York, and he's influencing the avant-garde in Canada, yet he didn't know anything about music, you could say, on the surface. Oh, I, I wouldn't say he didn't know anything about music. Uh, he he played music. He sang well. He, he knew music. Did, did he play an instrument? I think so. Okay, so he's approaching it. Then why the difficulty? Um, and also, he's approaching the, the, the whole musical world on a whole different level with Tetresnet that, that Paisant first thinks is nutty. And um, then he's stunned by it temporarily. See, to me that night, to me, Jeffrey Paisant looked like a Canadian idiot or just a little local Canadian dunce, you know what I mean, who yeah. had no clue of who he, that he was talking to the greatest composer of our time, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I didn't know that he thought that Marshall was a nut, but you could tell he was that kind of cloister professor that would not be that. It was – he had no involvement with McLuhan is what I got from it. And uh, – what did you say? Uh, that wasn't me, but the, but he would have enough sense to know that he should be there with McLuhan. Yes, but he doesn't look like it. Yeah, yeah. And, and he doesn't know why he's there almost. He's being forced for, by the publisher or something. Yeah, it's, yeah. It really, to me, showed the provincialness of academic life in Toronto that McLuhan was always complaining about. Yeah, and at the same time, Jeffrey is one of the better ones. Yeah, he even knew about McLuhan and thought about it or yeah. knew of the Tetrad. Yeah. I mean, that's probably because Gould forced him to get into McLuhan because Gould was in, influenced by McLuhan. So you have to figure out what that was for the biography. I'm sure they would have talked about it. Um, See, this was what was interesting. Is I'm sitting there in the last few years where there's no sense of any public realizing the importance of what's going on I thought it was incredibly important what was going on, and nobody understood it, including Paysant. Nobody felt it was important. Well, they were all stuck in their in their subject silence. Yeah, their specialization. Their specialization, and and um, you know, very very few of them could. Uh, well, e- either either they were stuck in their silos, or they they didn't want to um, get burned by going on you know this 
you got to remember something. Uh, we talked about McLuhan um, at the end not having students and stuff, but all along he was having battles with the, with the, with the department chairs. Yeah. You know, uh, they didn't like him there. Didn't like him at all. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the one of the things is when you know people talk about they're closing the uh, center when McLuhan died, and getting yeah. uh, um Woody Allen to send letters and yada yada yada. Everybody knows that all that stuff. But um, I had uh, uh, privilege, I guess you could say, to sit with somebody who was involved with that from the university side of things, and. Um, yeah, they're the guys that closed it, but at the same time, they 100% for sure thought that St. Michael's was going to step up to the bar and cough up some money and support the program. Yeah, so they said on the larger university level, they did the bluff. We're not going to support it. But they didn't think McLuhan should go. They just thought St. Michael's had enough sense to to uh, be the backup and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then he was shocked when St. Michael's wouldn't. One of their guys is on their campus. Surely they'll take it on, right? But uh, I think that Father, uh, was that Kelly then there? Yeah, Father Kelly was the head of St. Michael's at that point. Yeah, yeah, he, he didn't step up to it. I don't know, I've never heard any further about why, but... Uh, well, we heard last week, didn't or two weeks ago on the George Thompson talk, he mentioned that Kelly didn't like uh, McLuhan. Do you remember that, Andrew? I think it's you who said that uh, Kelly didn't like uh, McLuhan and George was more uh, ambivalent on it. Oh, okay. Well, it was talked about. And, and uh, George. Here's the thing about Kelly. As I always remember, he came to to a couple of seminars. I may have only experienced it once. Monday night seminar. He'd sit there in the front with McLuhan smoking, and there was no smoking signs all over the place. He had no respect for McLuhan on that level. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but McLuhan probably smoked there too, didn't he? No, maybe a cigar, but uh, I didn't see it. And it's and there was the rule of no smoking, if I recall. And this guy blatantly just smoked right beside McLuhan, the smoke drifting into Marshall's face. Yeah, yeah. That's Father Kelly. Yeah. I remember, I think Mark Stewart talked to me about it. She was amazed at the disrespect there. Well, there is a view that uh, Kelly sent Eleanor Austin over there um, on purpose yeah. to uh, make trouble. Yeah, that's what George said, that St. Michael's did not want the strain of the coach host on the budget, on St. Michael's budget. Yeah, which is fair enough. I mean, I mean that would be the cover story for all uh, everything, right? Right. Now, the, the, the big thing is to know what Marshall was doing secretly. Uh, David Greenberg will tell us what was going on at the time. You you didn't know. Maybe no, I don't think these other people knew that he was bailing out and going on to greener fields. But you certainly he didn't let that let that on at all. That makes sense because you know he 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 wasn't really people weren't reading his books anymore. Yeah. Uh, people weren't you know like uh, people weren't calling in that way. Uh, I suppose the the speaking engagements were probably ending the big money. No, 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 he was doing that. He was yeah. speaking, all, but it's all like in Venezuela, Japan, way far away. People like just arriving at the 60s or whatever McLuhan meant to them. Right. Um, Insensibility. 
what's interesting though about that is uh, hearing about that is because Barry Nevitt went on in his last years to try to do the history of media as a television show. Yes, he tried to do it with this uh, European aristocrat. Yeah, Nippy. Yeah, and, and he got ripped off there. He got ripped off bad, but just the fact that, and I guess I never really asked uh, Barry. Um, Barry might have known that what McLuhan was doing. Yeah. You know, so, but anyway, I never heard about that. But it is interesting that they that uh, he wanted to do the history. Uh, well, basically, he wanted to do uh, James Joyce. Only Barry did want to do the Ten Thunders of Finning's Wake. Yeah. Yeah, as they applied to management. That was the part of the take today that was never published. The whole section on management by prevision, using Finning's Wake to advise managers in business and corporate life. That part was uh, too many pages for the take today. Yeah, is that in the archive? I have a copy of it, but I don't know if it's where it is. Yeah. He Barry gave me his archive, so I have a copy of what was left out. Um, okay, so let's go see, back. Uh, the other, the other go ahead. Sorry, Mike, I just uh, I noted uh, last week, I think um, uh, McLuhan was uh, in the process around that sort of time of trying to secure the rights to the, or the, the film rights for um, Havelock's uh, preface to Plato. So in a certain sense, uh, um, Nevitt is possibly just continuing uh, that project, or maybe he was complicit in that to begin with. Did you, so you saw some letters on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be, if you knew the exact date, that could be uh, David Greenberg's. That might have been the, uh, the, the vision in the, docu- the documentary series. That might have been what it was. That might have been letters about that. Could you repeat could you what you said, Andrew, because it kind of broke up. Uh, I just could hear bits and pieces. Oh, I mentioned uh, the other week that uh, McLuhan had tried to secure the film rights for Eric Havelock's preface to Plato. I think it's around 76, 77, and presumably uh, Nevitt's uh, continuing that project. Maybe he was involved from the get-go. Well, we can ask David when he comes. Yeah. Okay, so Michael, I'd like to know, let's talk about you as an American coming to Canada, because you kind of came as a draft-dodging move. Mm-mm. No, I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't a draft dodger. No, but why did you want to leave Detroit? Uh, just for an adventure. I, I only planned to come to Toronto for, you know, just as a, you know, a couple of young people. As, as I told you, Toronto looked nice. Uh, um, Yorkville, although Yorkville is in its dying days, but it still was hip and Young Street. Uh, people walking. It had for us from Detroit. It had like a European feel to feel to it. Oh, okay. And Detroit had a riot in 67. Was that starting to go downhill in 71? Uh, Detroit's been going downhill since uh, the French pulled out. When was that? I don't know. 1700 something. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about, Mo- what about Motown? Uh, even they left. They had to leave. They went to L.A. Ah, Okay. Okay, so you come to Detroit. Detroit was a hotbed for uh, jazz, obviously. For um, some of the, I saw Coltrane come through there, uh, Cannibal Adderley, uh, all the jazz guys got to hear him play, and um, obviously Motown, uh, R&B. Um, we we've had this discussion before, you and I, Bob. But um, 
I never was into Zappa and stuff like that, but for me, because we, we had the real R&B right there in front of us. We had uh, two or three black radio stations, uh, black DJs. Uh, so we were hearing we were hearing jazz, we were hearing R&B, we were hearing... Uh, and you were engaged with John Sinclair? I was, uh, yeah, I was part of that. Um, yeah, you might describe, because that was the big, that was the Yorkville scene of Detroit. You know, John Lennon then made a cause celeb out of John Sinclair when he got busted for a joint. Uh, and then that's around the time that John and Yoko visit McLuhan. What, do you, what did you have of that Sinclair scene? Well, we, uh, where the, the Sinclair is the, is the so-called White Panthers. Uh, yeah. And Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. Yeah, those guys. Um, so John had set up, um, like, uh, Wayne State is an urban campus. Um, it was kind of a freeway at one, on, on the west side of it. And on the other side of that freeway is a pretty much a slum, I guess you'd call it. Um, and John had set up, uh, got a, a big, big old house there. And right beside Wayne State University campus. Yeah, pretty much across on the other side of the freeway, right? But, you know, right. That oh, I don't know. I've never been there, but that would explain how Harold Channer, a professor at Wayne State, met John Sinclair. I think John was probably a graduate student there, and so was his wife, uh, Lena. And um, Lena and my wife, Carol, were roommates before Lena moved in with John Sinclair. Right. So when you come to Toronto, there's a European feel that you're interested in. Yeah. Yeah, well, as I say, adventure, get out of Detroit, you know, as, um, you know, everybody moves on. And also the hippie scene, well, John Sinclair, were you part of when he went to jail? Oh, yeah, he was there when uh, he, you know, we were there for that. And uh, John got busted twice by the same guy, he's on the same undercover guy, for <laughs> a marijuana joint. But, uh, you know, there was underground press, there was FM radio, there was the whole transition. Did you think of McClune as a figure for that kind of activity back then? Once, once you read him. Not, not at first. What? So what did you think? Just he was a respectable professor? I guess more I read him more as a literary, as a literary stuff with the, uh, and looking at media. You know, that's what I was interested in. Um, is that because you encountered it, through, encountered him through the Gutenberg Galaxy as, as the first book? Yeah. Yeah. So saw that. And then, um, uh, so you yourself was a, I don't want to say artsy-fartsy, but you were into poetry, literature, and music. You were almost in the art world as an artist, right? So yeah. you're looking at McLuhan as, a, as someone writing about art. Yeah. yeah and many people read McLuhan as sociology. You know, what you're taking him as art... Only the artist did that. Only the artist read McLuhan as artist. Are you were you aware then of McLuhan being seen as a sociologist? No. Hmm, that's interesting. So you actually get on the right track in a way, right away. Well, as I say, we because we because we had the because uh, we always I was always interested in music, um, and. Uh, wrote a few songs. I had a buddy. Um, in fact, my friend who actually is listed as a kind of a, I think, I don't know if he signed the manifesto for the um, for the White Panthers or whatever they call them, the Artist Workshop. That's what John's thing was called, I think. Um, 
he and I did music and stuff like that. So uh, he he moved on to the campus right or before I did. He got involved with those guys, and um, the graduates started hanging around there. And they would do plays, um, avant-garde plays, like in the in the parlor. And guys would come in there and blow saxophones. And, all, all and that kind of thing you never stopped doing, because when you came to Toronto, you you do theater at the university. Yeah, yeah. Well, I stopped and had kids and stuff like that, you know. Right. So what did what? What did you what did you think as a musician about Marshall writing about the effect of the printing press on the splitting of uh, words and song and and uh, the explanation of where the Beethoven classical music came from? Did that make any sense to you when you first re- read it? I'm not sure it makes any sense to me now, but um, ah, okay, that's interesting. So what he says about music and and how the printing press is a big factor in the what we call classical music of the Western world. You don't get that. Well, I, I get it to the extent that, I mean, that's all about uh, how the parts become more complicated because you get the individual parts because of printing press, different parts, and symphonies, you don't have to remind them about by hand and all that stuff. So, yeah, of course, uh, we understand that, but that that didn't that doesn't interest me. That's, that's like a figure. It's not an environment, really. So what were you interested in? In terms of McLuhan and music? Yeah. If that, if his, as a musician, what he's writing about music, you're not interested in, what are you interested in, in McLuhan? What were you interested in? I, I never took music away from McLuhan. I never took, took uh, for me, I don't think I really ever related McLuhan to my music. You related him to the I stuff, poetry and literature. Yeah. So then, you know, this whole involvement with Gould, when did you come to understand the importance of that? After Gould died? You're talking about when Gould uh, left uh, the, the whole Gould thing as leaving the concert? No, no, just what he did in media and, you know, got into making virtual music and TV studios. That whole, here's this great musician, goes into the media. And you didn't fully understand that when you recorded the uh, Paysan thing. Did you get to read? I, we've discussed school a few years ago. You were reading his writings. That part of it, because uh, in a way, that's a natural movement. That's a natural movement. That's like a, that, that's like um, the new happening, if, if you will. So what? What is? Well, when Gould goes and makes what's he called True North, for example. Yeah. You have the multiple voices. You have the disc. You you have the quick jumps. You have all that stuff. Um, basically, a kind of a inner trip. Yeah. Now, did you were you watching and taking in Gould in the seventies when he was making these things? No. So you weren't that aware of Gould when you taped in January '79 what Gould was. Not really. Not really. Right. I, I, so I, when did you re, when did you I develop an interest in Gould? I guess I knew him more as a theorist, more as a guy. Back talking, then? Yeah, you know, more as a guy talking about uh, we can't communicate with the audience through the concert hall anymore. We we have new ways of doing. That. So you were aware of that? Yeah. You're aware of his writings and theories, not his particular TV shows. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so you didn't discover his theory later. So did you see? When you read his theory in the seventies, did you see a McLuhan influence? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
It's, it's quite a weird mix, uh, Michael. You've got McLuhan as an artist, Gould as a theorist, and uh, <laughs> you're keeping your music completely ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's potential quadrophenia here, Mike. I, but, I, 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 can, I can dig it. Well, I say, well, that's what I'm saying. What did you, what did you think McLuhan was about? What was it? What did I think school was about? You mean it, when you when you were taking? Did you think when you took his courses you were learning a new approach to literature? Mm, not to literature, no. We we were learning a way to train perception. Right, which is what I want to to mention when you're talking about what was in the walls of the culture. So you remember that quote? I think it's from the Bible. Uh, first thing you do is give up everything so you can acquire either perception or understanding. Do you remember that poster? Yeah. yeah. Was it was the word understanding or perception? I remember seeing the word perception highlighted. I think it's perception. Yeah, so it's something like to have perception you must give up everything, or you must be prepared to give up everything to, ha- to get perception. Yeah, yeah. And okay, so... And so pretty much had to do that with McLuhan in the class. Okay, so that's interesting. You actually saw him as presenting a way to look at your world, the the big picture or just the world itself. Well, I mean, if you're sitting there and the guy keeps saying you got to use your eyes and ear. You start doing it or trying to do it. Yeah, you got to say, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know? And he does, well, that's pretty and good. He does, and, he, and, he la- and then he also laughs when he says it, right? <laughs> so, the, he, you know, you never see in book reviews of McLuhan that appeared or any commentary, magazine articles, they never say, here's a guy emphasizing uh, using your ears and eyes. It's always about a concept. A medium is the message, a theory. They don't get the perception part. So, Michael, you're one of the few people to get the perception part back then or to remember that knowing that was the emphasis. Well, I, I, you know, and I think uh, if I try to think of memories of sitting there, what he, what he was saying, that's the stuff that he was saying. Yeah. And then he would throw in left brain, right brain, almost as a distraction, I guess, you know, um, like a holistic kind of thing or a dialectical kind of thing. Um, and and but always he would always go back to these some kind of percept thing. Yeah. And Barry was always like over behind one of his shoulders, saying percepts not concepts. <laughs> so that, that's you know, Mark Stewart said when she saw Barry Nevitt on Dick Cavett or Mike Douglas, one of those American talk shows, not Dick Cavett, I don't think. Um, Barry Marshall went on. And I eventually heard a recording of it, but this is 72, they're promoting Take Today, and Barry's chattering away. He's out chattering McLuhan. And I remember when it came up with Mark Stewart in the late 70s, she says, Barry was like the Mad Hatter (laughs) 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 on TV. (laughs) Probably the only time he got on the TV with McLuhan. I don't know. But uh, even Margaret was shocked at how talkative or exaggerated Barry was when he was on. He was like he was the star. He was using McLuhan to get on the media. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, Barry had the hearing problem, right? And so yeah. uh, he, had a convenient, he, he had a convenient way of turning it down. <laughs> so he couldn't hear anybody else and just let it, then he would just go on and on, right? Yeah. It was just cute the way Margaret was shocked, the way Barry turned into the Mad Hatter. <laughs> 
I didn't. I never knew her really, so I, I must have seen her there. Um, yeah. I, I really, I really only related to George. Well, he, George's on the first floor. She was up in the cloistered second floor. Yeah, yeah. So. I saw, her, I saw her and come down. She'd come down or whatever, but you know, I never, never. Never talked to her. So what? What is it? Um, what do you think you got then? I'm gonna. I've been planning to say this. I helped you see what the tactile eye meant back in 2006 or so. Um, what were you thinking you got from McLuhan in the 70s and early 80s, and then you had to raise a family? Then you get back into it with the tetraheads. What did you learn in the tetraheads, and then what did you get about the tactile eye? Those, let's look at those three phases of perception. Well, I think, I think we already said the first one. Um, that's a simple level. At least you heard it, trying to figure out what your eyes and ears. And, it, and if actually you think back, he wanted you to look at the electric media as your eyes and ears. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and notice that's you. Well, you know, I, I know one of the papers I did for him was on the, it had a thing at the time called, um, I think, ENG, Electronic News Gathering. Um, and uh, so I did a paper on that. And thinking of this, you know, media was becoming more ubiquitous then in the sense of uh, miniaturization, everybody getting camcorders and stuff like that. That was sort of, hadn't really happened, but was about to happen. Yeah. Um, and so the one, I, I, I introduced a new term to McLuhan, or a thought anyway, which was uh, a, called private news. So I was basically trying to say, that you know, there's going to be all these channels and everybody's going to have their own stuff up there, just like we're doing tonight, right? Right. Together, these two words, private and news. Um, he looked. He said, "Oh, never thought of that." So that made me feel good, and um, also uh, in the sense I could, I taught him something or some, gave him something to think about for that minute, anyway. Right. No, that's what he was always spying on and getting from everybody. He, he once said he got everything from his students. Yeah, yeah. But see, he had the big picture, and then he would look for symptoms. And so he'd, you would say private news. He'd go, hmm, what does this kid think he's seeing? How's that visual bias? Yet it is probably something that's going to happen in North America. You know, that's the way he would look at it. Yeah. But the I have the papers unpublished with the ENG in it. What did you say, electronic news gathering? Yeah. Yeah, it's never said what ENG stands for, but you know he's talking about news or something. And in that, he makes a statement that um, news is total fantasy. Now, I bet you he said that in class. And if, if I showed you the paper, I bet you everything he said in the paper was said in class, in his, in his ramblings or exploring of a topic. Do you remember him saying news was fantasy? Uh, well, I don't remember specifically him saying that, but I think that um, makes sense. Yeah, he made the distinction that the old kind of news, maybe movie, was dream. But electronic news is fantasy. Talking technically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so was that, uh, you heard him say that in the 70s then? No, I'm assuming you would. I would hear, I would read his papers when I was collecting them. And I would remember that what he said in his papers he had said in the Monday night seminars in passing. No, most of that good stuff no one even responded to. Right. And so I'm speculating that the, the key to the uh, 
ENG article written in the late 70s that I have, he talks about news being, like TV is pure fantasy. And he was talking about, not like a critic, he was saying this is the perceptual situation when the population engaged with television. Now, in my experience of the Monday seminars, he probably said that stuff in the classroom, but I didn't hear it. I wasn't in the class. So I'm wondering if you remember him saying, in other words, he always was talking the same thing 24-7 with the latest insights and in, in different environments. Yeah. Classroom, Monday night, on TV. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've always said this about him. You know, it's like it, 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 he, he's always a repeat of himself. Yeah. In these different contexts, right? I, I met one art student in Halifax who took a course in the 70s by him and said it was terrible. He wouldn't tell me what I had to know. So here was a, a young female artist who wanted to be told, and this is maybe the way, the way university students were in the 70s, he knew it was obsolete, so he just wanted to know what the professor said, he didn't even care about it, and then just spew it back at him and get the paper uh, done. But, she, but that's proof that McLuhan was not talking course material in the 70s. He was talking about what he was saying and dictating to Mark Stewart upstairs. Yeah, he would just bring in a book uh, that some, you know, some publisher sent him or something. Uh, he would bring it in. I don't know, who knows how he got it. He'd bring it in. He'd say, well, let's look at this. <laughs> and then he'd either Which is it. what he was reading at the time, and it's already what he was engaged in. Exactly, exactly. And then he would either go to the index and see if he finds find something he wanted to talk about, or he'd go to page 69. It's just, his Monday night seminars are like what we do here. We come in and we start talking about what's happening today with the McLuhan reference. But that's what McLuhan was doing 24-7 since maybe the early 40s. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, well, you know, it, it's, it's sort of said that it was, he was even doing it better because he was more alert, more astute. He had uh, all his brain function. That, that's you mean, okay, uh, you're talking about before 67, yeah, that's the whole field and the carpenter, the explorers, the exploration years. They think that he got deflated and they saw a different guy. But I know from my interaction with Thiel and, da and Carpenter, they didn't get what he was talking about. So it didn't mean anything to them. So it looked deflated. To me, when McClune was operating in the late 70s, he was energized. He wasn't, he was, he wasn't manic like Carpenter explains the way he was in, in the early 50s. But... Um, he was uh, one had a sense that uh, that this guy is not over. He hasn't even started. He's on the edge of a big, big discovery. Yeah, yeah. Now, did you get that in the classroom? Yeah, I'd say we did. Okay, what is your reaction to being around quote a genius or a powerful mind? What how what did you do with that at the time? Yeah, no, maybe I can refine that, Bob. Okay. Um, like, uh, I wanted to get this question in. Uh, Logan uh, collaborated with uh, McLuhan and wrote a, a, a book on libraries. You staying at the Media Centre um, and working extensively within the University of Toronto Library, never wrote a book, but you actually maybe created a whole environment, Mike. Um, so what did you take out of McLuhan and, and actually set to work in terms of what you were doing? How did that genius impact what you do? Yeah. Um, 
Well, first of all, overall, I've always thought that um, I've always thought that he was influencing me, uh, but I've never quite 100% understood why or how. Um, and then, always in retrospect, uh, I've always felt that um, I missed the I missed the mark in 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 implementing him, if you will. So or getting it, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at, at risk so, of sounding uh, arrogant, I, when I told you about the tactile eye and you hadn't gotten that, that surprised me. But not many people get it. But w- would you say that you felt you didn't get it after you realized you didn't get the tactile guy, a tactile eye? Repeat that last part again. The getting of the tactile eye, which is the core of McLuhan, what the tactile eye is. Yeah, and how it relates when you got that from me in uh, in in uh, 2006, which was because you got me to read Sheila Watson's um, uh, PhD thesis, and I was amazed that Sheila Watson understood way back in the 60s what McLuhan was talking about, and she talked about the tactile eye, and then, and you and you had read the thesis, and I said, "Wow, did you get this stuff?" She knew about the tactile eye, and you said, "Well, what's that?" So then I explained it, and the way I did it, you got to understand it. Yeah. that you had never gotten before. So I'm saying, is it that kind of wondering? Is that an example of, oh, realizing later something that made you think, oh, I missed it? The partially, uh, but more along the lines of um, whatever my understanding had been prior to 2006, um, I implemented whatever I thought that was. Yeah. Uh, only to later on and say, oh, I, I, uh, you know, McLuhan is influencing me. And then later on, finding out, oh shit, I missed the boat on that one. This, this is the way it is. So it's having that feeling is is like it's all to me. It's like um, um, it's almost the, the that Christian thing, you know, like you're always becoming, you know. So like I'm always yeah. becoming some knowledge of uh, McLuhan, um, and it's it's changing and it's dynamic. So um, and I was looking. Which for is that, good. That's yeah, natural. But, because I think it was on page 91, we went over, went over it a number of times. Um, you mean in Sheila's thesis? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the thing is, see, what's interesting about you, Michael, you're there as a student, and then you work with them, and then you're part of the coach house. Maybe to help define what happened to you, go into uh, working with the Kirkhoff. Uh, well, I knew uh, Derek um, a long time. Um, not sure. When Did I you know him in the 70s? No, no, I think it's in the So you met him once he started to, he and Olsen started the uh, coach house in 83, took it over. Yeah, even later than that, I think. In the 80s, I wasn't too much involved with them. Right, so in the 90s. In the late 80s. Uh, but I think the Tetra has come first. We We can talk about that quickly. Yeah, okay. So, essentially, and this is what's important for people to understand, is that um, we're, we're talking here, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taping McLuhan, and um, you're, you're going to the seminars, and, and uh, Barry's there, et cetera, and so forth. But um, it sounds like a happening, right? But yeah. It's just a small gang of thugs. <laughs> there, there, there isn't that much happening. Uh, yeah, in the Toronto environs. Yeah. There's nothing, no recognition of the, what the gang's doing. That's right. That's right. So um, 
I got involved with Wayne Constantino, and um, I I guess we would kind of I guess we would get together or something like that. I'm not sure quite how it went. I'll, I'll now Wayne was a good friend of Eric's. Did you know Eric then? Before Wayne? Yeah, I knew Eric. Okay, so you knew of Eric, and then you meet Wayne, and Wayne's just had his book come out, The Human Equation, just a few months ago? Uh, yeah, yeah, the new edition of it is out. And that was made possible by Eric? Yeah, it's on Amazon. His editor right. there, he did a really good job on it. And of editing it? Of editing it, yeah. He made, I, think he, I think he made some sense out of Wayne. But, um, right, but it's that scene. That book represents the period in the late 80s or 90s when Wayne was discovering his version of McLuhan, and you were a witness to that, and a group formed around it. Yeah, a group formed. I'm not sure it formed around that, but um, what happened is um, the, the, there wasn't much going on at the coach house. I think that's the main point. Yeah. There was no more Monday night seminars. So somehow... I had the media center. I was in charge of it. Then. And somehow the idea came up and says, well, we should, I, you know, Wayne was always big on this. So we should get something going. And uh, I said, yeah, that's cool. I said, well, why don't we just do it here? So, uh, at the media center. At the media center. We'll have the, we'll have the meetings here. Well, this, this seemed to catch a bit of a, it's almost a little bit like a small grass fire. Um, so next thing you know, Eric's on board, Bardiani, Wayne, and uh, say the name slower. Eric and what? Francisco. What's his name? Guardiani. What's his first name? Francesco. Yeah, he's a professor at the University of Toronto. Yeah, he's in Italian studies, and he 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 studied with um, the other guy, Fry. Fry. Yeah. Yeah, now this is also the beginning of the McLuhan studies, the attempt to get that journal going. Well, this is the upstart of, uh, this, is, this is the kind of the origin of that. The Tetraheads meetings. We start getting together on Mondays, and, and um, I, I think partly we, we call it Tetraheads, partly because um, that was in the air, that was an interest of Eric's. Uh, Wayne, he was always into fours. So, uh, so the tetrads and the laws of media come out. Maybe the laws of media in 88 and the letters in 87 was what sparked this little revival among you guys. Yeah, it could be. So what's important is that this is, you know, this is not um, anything, um, you know, as far as we know, McLuhan's dead in the, in the world. Nobody's reading him. Nobody cares about him. You know, um, this centenary year, this is another thing altogether. But... Um, but back then, it's you guys remembering a dead guy. Yeah. Or carrying on the work, if you prefer. Did you have a sense that Eric understood his father's work and you could, you could have him as a useful guide? Yeah. Eric, Eric, under, Eric understood the, the work to the extent that it related to, um, I, think, in, I think Eric understood all of it, but he excelled at the early stuff the literary stuff. Yeah, the 40s and 50s stuff. And he also was part of the Tetrad. Yeah, yeah. Which Don Thiel said was a throwback to the early stuff. The Tetraheads? The Tetrad was. Oh, the Tetrad was a throwback to the earlier stuff. 
Yeah, yeah to, to, to the structures in the Project 69 in 1960. And uh, it, it, was, it was like McLuhan, I think Theo thought McLuhan was trying to uh, make his work acceptable after the orgy of the 60s. So he's going back to the Gutenberg galaxy style and, uh, and any of the unfinished literary criticism of the 40s. Yeah. What we wanted to do in the Tetras, I think, was just, uh, well, one, get something going, and two, um, you know, this was also the IT revolution that's coming on. Uh, the what revolution? IT. IT, the, the virtual reality digital culture. Yeah, all that stuff, um, the World Wide Web and so forth. So um, this was, uh, and it just was a way to hang out too, I guess, right? So right. Is it also, are you thinking, are you thinking what, what um, Wired Magazine is going to do in, 90, in spring of 93 and, and retrieve McLuhan and see so relevant to the uh, digital culture? Would, could you say that you were realizing the relevance of McLuhan to the digital culture before Wired? Yeah, definitely. By all means, yeah. Yeah. So what came of that group? Andrew, do you have a question? Yeah, no, no. It was also, uh, to what extent are you in there thinking you're going to make some money? Uh, I wasn't counting on any money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more realistic than that. Uh, Wayne might have been. Wayne... Um, yeah, yeah, I can't remember at that point. Wayne might have been working for Logan then, um, but um, I, I don't know. I don't think that was anybody's. Um, I don't think that was high on anybody's list. What was Eric doing? Was he just he just loved discussing the tetrad? Oh no, we yeah we would do the tetrad. Uh, we'd have a meeting. Uh, he'd come in. I think it was you know he. I think Eric tried to. Uh, bring in different papers and stuff like, you know, let's talk about this, let's talk about that. Um, try to get something going, I guess, is the sort of uh, mantra. And they get the McLuhan studies going. The McLuhan studies, and that's, uh, you know, Wayne, uh, well, mostly uh, Guardiani and Eric uh, got a sponsor for that, some upstart computer company or pretty good, but I can't remember what, uh, what it was called, Nexus? I remember the ad for Next, N-E-X-T, which Zappa first mentioned to yeah, me Next. in 88. Next, so they paid some money, and so some articles were gathered together, and uh, I think basically, um, I think Wayne and myself and those two guys were the main parts behind it, and then there was a board. And so was Ingroni part of this? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, name the people that were the most regular at the Tetrads. Well, the four that I named. So Eric, you, Wayne, and Guardiani, and Barry Nevitt. Barry Nevitt. And then uh, Logan was more or less uh, regular. Um, De Kirchhoff? No way. Right, no way. Why would you say it that way, no way? Well, he because uh, Derek was never... You know, he never he was never in Toronto. Right. He was off. Uh, so uh, he paid a he paid a couple of uh, ceremonial visits to, <laughs> to to the place. 
But he was the one making the McLuhan name be known. There's somebody blipped in there, so you, your voice dropped out. He was somebody who what? Who was making the McLuhan name known out in the general academic world and media world. Uh, well, he certainly was representing uh, the McLuhan program. Yeah. And he was getting invited to conference and everything, and Eric wasn't. Mm, no, that's true. Yeah, Eric wasn't. But um, I'm not sure what Eric was actually doing at that time. Eric's had a lot of different jobs, uh, teaching here or there. Um, I don't know if he was at the Harris Institute then or not. Um, which is a. I think he was going to Dublin. What did you say, Andrew? We jumped over a chapter. Mike was in the Tetra Heads, and they were, we've uh, just got the naming of the five individuals. And then all yeah. of a sudden, we're talking about uh, the, as if the conference is up and running. What's that little bit in between? Well, essentially, the Tetra has um, it. It was a, a group of people trying to keep the McLuhan thing going, uh, trying to start something. Um, he asked the people. That that's pretty much the core that I remember. And then. Um, in a certain sense, as the um, uh, I remember the media center moved midway through all that, and we went to a, a different location, um, but we carried on, and uh, more and more people started to come. But the, in, in Toronto, it's the the Queen. There's a place here called Queen Street, um, sort of an artist type of place. I just mentioned that because it seemed like. Uh, uh, not, not. The, I don't want to try to be in a demeaning way here, you know, or not, you know, because uh, more and more people came who know, who knew less and less about what we were talking about. Mm. But you're getting more people. We're getting more people, but nothing really was happening other than Barry. Barry had more opportunity to turn off his hearing aid. <laughs> And and then, uh, but there were some there were some good occasions there when the you know uh, there was these heritage minutes for Canada. They did one on uh, McLuhan. I don't know if you've ever seen that or anybody's seen that. It's interesting. The heritage commercial. Yeah. Yeah, Logan did that, is what I understood. No, Logan didn't do that. That was uh, the king of Kensington Market. I can't remember his name now, the actor. But but Logan. No, Logan was a writer credited with it, wasn't he? Oh, I never knew that. You're talking about McLuhan sitting in class, 1916, getting the media is the message insight in front of his students. Yeah. Yeah, that that little heritage thing. Great moments in Canadian thinking. Oh, but, yeah. But Logan brought the director of that in. Well, that makes sense now. So that guy came in. Al, what's that guy's name? What is it? Oh, Al Waxman is the guy actor's name. Not the and he. He played the King of Kensington, and you're saying that he funded it? No, I'm saying he directed that minute. Right. Now, here's something we were leaving out. We're talking about DeKirchhoff running around and going to artist conferences and academic things, and he did do some inter-hookup with satellite, trying to do satellite uh, performances with TV. He did uh, He did it with the Electronic Cafe in L.A. in the early 90s. He did something, I think, with Paris or someplace over there. But what was going on at the same time? Yours truly was on CKLN, really spreading the McLuhan thing. And when the album came out that Nelson Thaw made, it was played at the Tetraheads, and, and you said that Eric said, turn that off. Who, who said turn it off? You told me that Eric said, 
when, when my album was being played, or Nelson's album, with my stuff on it, he said, turn that off. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> meeting. Yeah, was there any talk about me in the Tetraheads? No. Not online yeah. anyway. Beg your pardon? Not online. But do you remember, I, I didn't actually know you then, so... No. You don't recall it. Now, Barry knew me. I was his archivist, but Barry was irritated by what I was doing on the radio, so he wouldn't talk about me at that point. No. no. So he wouldn't have brought me up. But the point was that I was getting interviewed in the media in that, and that was the only McLuhan stuff for the average know-nothing who's, who's reading McLean's magazine or something. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. know-nothing about McLuhan. Yeah. And I was doing the Tetrad on the radio. But that was not allowed to intrude in your memory or your experience. Well, Wayne, Wayne uh, at some point in there, Wayne, Wayne introduced me to, to that, that fact. Wayne talked about Bob Dean. Right. And um, I don't remember where exactly that, that came in. That probably was after the Tetraheads. But Did he bring up the album? Who played the album at the Tetraheads? I did. How did you get it? That's a good question. Oh, Barry gave it to me. Okay, so Barry had it. Barry had it. Because right then, we're... It might have been Barry that played it. Right. Do you remember his any comments by him? No, no. Barry just put it on. He's always laughing and having fun with things. <laughs> he put it on, so, and then uh, Barry, Barry loaned it to me. Right. So at that time, while you're doing the Tetraheads, Nelson and I are working with Mary McLuhan doing these conferences. And we're talking 90, 91, 89. Mary had a big conference uh, with her Teachers Awards in uh, Ottawa, and the Prime Minister came there. And Marshall, I mean, Nelson read a quote from the Dew Line. This is right when uh, the Berlin Wall was going down and then Soviet Union crackles. Um, Nelson reads something from the Dew Line interview, McLuhan on Russia, from about 1970, and pr about how Marshall predicts that the electronic media will collapse Russia and China. So if Nelson quotes this in his little introductory remarks for the awards, and later at some point, oh yeah, so then Prime Minister Mulroney comes out and he starts off starts saying, wow, I never heard that before. I'm going to have to start reading McLuhan. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually got to the top of the bullshit hierarchy, political hierarchy, and got, got, got the message to, uh, Nelson got the message with Mary's help to Mulroney. That's good. And then there was pictures of Mary, you know, in the newspaper. She got good publicity out of it. So that's happening, and, and Eric is not telling you about that, is he? Never heard about that. Right. How did the teacher hits become the McLuhan Center or the McLuhan program? No, no. The McLuhan program started in 81, February 81. I have the documents. You know, two months after Marshall passed on, we gathered at Carr Hall. Eric, uh, it was mainly led by Eric and Derek, and maybe Zingroni. It was like, I, I, I sort of mean this, it was like the vultures just showed up. Okay, now we can run with it. We don't have Marshall screwing it up. And everybody came. Don Gillies from Ryerson. There was a big meeting in uh, the fall of 81. And William Irwin Thompson came to that meeting. But anyways, everybody immediately started organizing. What do we do with the McLuhan thing? And so we had... Occasional meetings through 81, 82, 
up till the early 83. In that two-year period, uh, Derek generally run them, and uh, we would have guest speakers, and then that's where Derek first heard the Toronto musician, forget his name, who studied neurolinguistic programming, and that's where Derek got the idea of neurocultural programming from that there. And I was there that night, and there was only like 10 of us. So there's a small group doing meetings after that initial burst in early 81. Then it all faded out. Then there was a big conclave in November, in my mind, late 81, and everybody showed up, Don Gillies, who had never shown up before. And everybody was saying, okay, we got our five universities or whatever. Let's get this going. Of course, it led nowhere. So then in early 83, David Olson gets named the director of the Coach House, and it's reopened. So the Coach House was closed from June 1980 to, say, February, March 83. Do you remember any of that period, Michael? Uh, no, I've heard about it, but I don't. I don't remember. I wasn't part of it. That's when you start your family and all that, so you weren't around. Yeah. So the 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 David Olson is the director, and and Derek is Derek Dukirkov is the co-director or the assistant director, but Olson's more the boss. I understand, and that's the way it looks at from '83 till '86 or so. And, and they try to have academics come in, and they made off prints of the talks, and I've got a lot of those uh, little orange booklets. You ever see those, Michael? Yeah, I have a couple of those. Yeah, so I got most of those. So that was happening. Olson was like the figurehead because he was from the semiotics department, had higher clout, I think, in the, in the University of Toronto than Derek. Derek was just a professor in the French department. And, uh, but the university recognized that Derek had done from cliche archetype French version, so he had some connection to McLuhan more than Olson. But I found out years later that when Don Thiel did the uh, report and investigation of Expo during Expo. Don had a very important role in that. His assistant was David Olson, a young young man, you know, David Olson. So that, you never heard about that from David Olson when he was t- being the head of it, but he kind of started the... Same David Olson? Beg your pardon? Same David Olson? Yeah. Don Thiel knew him as a young, whatever, postgraduate student, as a young kid young somebody who helped Don do that whole project, which you just have been gathering up the archives of. Yeah, yeah. This whole report on Expo. So the point is that Olsen seemed to, if I remember, he led, this, he led the, the, the Monday night thing where they have a guest professor, and they wouldn't be every Monday. It would be like a schedule. And, but Derek was like the guy, the local guy, the guy running around more visible uh, in the day-to-day stuff, though I'm not sure. Uh, I wasn't around the, I was only there for every meeting. I didn't miss a meeting. But the, um, it's when Olson took, uh, Olson backs off in 86 or so. One day I met him on the, on the new Toronto subway around 86. And I knew the McLuhan thing wasn't going anywhere. So I said, uh, would, you, would you ever give up your position as director of it? He said, certainly, if something better came along. I said, uh, I might have said, is there, is there a possibility of something better coming along? And he said, Damn right. <laughs> something like that. Or there better be something like that. So you knew he was losing interest in it. Whatever his motive was to be the director didn't lead anywhere. Or maybe it did, but it wasn't going to be related to McLuhan's study. He's going to go to some other center or something. So that's when Derek took over. So yeah. that's the background. And the Tetrads happened three years after 86, yeah. after Olson's gone. But the coaches have been going since almost the day Marshall died. So you got that, Andrew? Yep, 
Yep. Okay. One, one thing you have to be cognizant of, though, is in terms of Olson and saying that is, uh, as far as I know, there never really was after McLuhan died, maybe even before, but there wasn't much of a budget there. That's right. That it was. It was nothing. So for Olson, when he when he says that, it's it's, it's basically, uh, you know, he he's a he's already a full professor. Yeah. He's got tenure and all that stuff. He, he doesn't have to worry about anything. So he. He wants to be at a place where he can do things. Yes. If there's no money, he can't do anything. Uh, right. Derek, he's a junior professor. He's making his name. So what he wants is he, he, he wants to be the, the figurehead. He wants to be the name with the name. He doesn't care how much money's involved. Well, he, he, he wants it to lead to something. You know, he, he, you know, he well, Derek, Derek was very excited. He said around then that to me and to other people, said, we're going to become famous. Derek said that. Yeah, yeah. We, whoever we was, him and Eric and Logan and Zagroni, I don't know who it was, or, or Tim, the Tim guy who did the, Tim, what's his name, who did the music uh, for CBC, the sound engineer, sound artist, you know, he lives in Nova Scotia, you know, Tim? I know him, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, he hung around a lot in, in 83, 84. See, we started, Nelson and Barry Nevitt started the, uh, the Monday night thing at the, at the program, uh, for meeting almost every Monday informally around Barry Nevitt. He was the authority. And uh, and that would be Monday nights. And it was when Derek called it McLuhan fanfare, like it was not important. It wasn't the academic part. Olson did the academic part and brought in the academics to speak, but we didn't ever saw any of that of the organization that or who determined what. I never was that impressed with who he brought in, but it was more scholars of print, of literacy, of the changes in the printing press, changes in the alphabet, you know, that 300 years ago stuff. Do you know what I mean, Michael? Yeah. Like, who is it? Elizabeth Eisenstein would be a big figure. They're all trying to adopt her accomplishments or something. Right, right. So so he was being a real, P, um, also was being a real POB, print-oriented ambassador, trying to make McLuhan legitimate for obsolete scholarship. Though he didn't think it was obsolete, and Derek was the swinger. He was the one who said, "Okay, we got to have the spirit of McLoon, So you and Nelson, you you and Barry organized the Monday night things, and uh, that went on for only a year or so. Then then Nelson Barry lost interest, and I lost interest because I got on the radio or started to be on the radio. So we were only there for a year or two, and then it became more. Derek was the main vortex of action, bringing in students and artists and trying to do mixed media projects and happenings. Yeah, well, Derek's good at that stuff. He's very personable, um, presents well, as they say, and, uh, and, and so forth. So that, that becomes the question. Is, um, was, he, was he enabled by the university to like, carry that on, or was he, was he like, kind of shunted off? No, he, he, he was only able to pull it off because the, uh, the Dutch or Belgium businessman, Philip somebody, gave him money for his projects from 86, 87 on. Right, right. You remember him? Yeah, I do. Um, so he was the main, he was the one, I mean, Derek got this businessman to support that, and it's all he had. He basically, you know, probably Olsen left when they said, we're not going to give you anything anymore. And Derek was able to uh, invent a way to keep going. Yeah, as far as I know, is they, they say that um, a few millions were spent. Yeah. By that guy. 
Well, you can see a picture of the guy on Derek's early books that he put out in that period. There's a picture of him sitting with the guy, and he acknowledges him. Um, I think he was a Belgium like Derek, like Derek was. Right, right. So, so you have the tetra. You have Derek seen at the coach house with a patina of some kind of usefulness to the university, and then you have uh, you guys doing tetraheads, and you have me and Nelson on the radio. That's what the vortex was. But then Marshawn's biography comes out in '89, and that changes a lot. The dynamic. Yeah, and that's when the the, uh, the the journals about to come out, the McLuhan studies. Yeah, McLuhan studies comes out in '91, but it took a it was in in the making for about two years, right? Yeah. And then you had the Berlin Wall goes down. Then you have CNN, and then everybody is living as a cliche to global village, so they retrieve McLuhan, but then wired up the anti '93 by pointing out the information society that McLuhan was kind of talking about. And the lifestyle of, of the post-industrial society, they latched onto that. Yeah, yeah. No, that changed. Uh, that changed a lot of things. And, um, that got. Um, well, I was going to finish up and say the Tetra has ended when when um, I just thought the scene wasn't useful anymore. So I I basically I pretty much well I stopped being a regular at them myself and then. But you let them use the media center. For a while, for a while, and then I just said, well, you know, this is, I don't think this is going to really work out, so uh, we, we just kind of ended it. Okay, well, this comes back to you. What were you thinking that wasn't inspiring anymore? Didn't, it didn't seem to be any McLuhan that was going on there. It was just a bunch of people getting together, and, um, and well, I guess you could say that it was like, you could say it was a teaching was going on in the sense that people were coming and learning the new stuff about McLuhan, but I, I, I guess I'm not a teacher, so I wasn't interested in it. Were you interested in and money? And in the money. In making some money project come out of it. No, no, there was there was nothing like that involved. So what are you interested? You you don't want to teach, you want the mental stimulation. Yeah, we want the stimulation to basically, uh, you know, to have. Uh, go down there to learn yourself, to come across some interesting concepts, um, have fun. Okay, isn't that the period when you get the project of the uh, the commons at the library? The commons in the library comes in uh, 94. Right, so right then is when that tetrahedge dies off in my knowing of your schedule of history that you've told yeah, me. More or less, more or less. I'd say the tetrahedge ended. I, yeah, I so, you, say, so you, you didn't want to analyze... <laughs> electronic environment, digital environment, you were going to go through this big battle with the professors to bring it into the library. You jump ship, no longer uh, jump ship, you no longer uh, were interested in the effects. You were going to implement a new uh, environment willy-nilly. We did, we did, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that, because you actually did create an incredible new environment at the library there. Well, as Crystal once put it, he said we put the students' brains inside the chip. Right, and you certainly, if he had said that to you in 94, you'd understand it because you were around McLuhan. But, so what, what made you want to make it anyways, make the environment? Um, the, the, the thing itself was a, tried to be an integration of um, IT-type people, librarian-type people, and media-type people. Okay? So it was like this convergence. 
that was supposed to, um, in a way, you could say, uh, shake down the halls of academe. And you mean allow pop culture electronic products to be part of the library? Yeah, yeah. And, and that involved Moses Neimer? No, no, no. So who came up with that idea? Who was on your side? Well, there had been a big study, and um, one was about, um, there generally was a feeling about academic computing. That was the kind of the big sort of um, rubric of the whole thing. Uh, what, that academics need to hook up more? Well, that there was a recognition that computers are going to be become uh, important, period. Right, and that is only 15 years ago. What And now look what's happened. What do you think about what happened and how this timidity about, yeah, I think these things might have some influence on us. Go back to the change in your own perception uh, of this. Well, it's um, just if, you, if I kind of recall what happened when we did that. So you, you still had people like literally like sending nasty messages and hate mail. <laughs> These are professors. Yeah, or students say, we don't need this stuff in the library. None of this stuff is important. Now, they're saying that before it's being built? They're reading about the, pro the proposals or it's built? Uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much uh, as, well, we, we had it on both sides. We had people saying that corporate influence, you shouldn't have it in here, and um, you're putting the, this bank gave you money to build this thing. And um, they, then you had the other people saying, we don't need computers in libraries. Libraries are about books. And so how, how long did it take to install the first bank of computers? Mm, probably took um, six to nine months. Okay, so you got six to nine months of that construction scene happening there, right? Yeah. And so students would notice that and ask what it is, and they'd find out and then they'd form an opinion on it. Tell us about you. You were appointed. You didn't come up with the idea, but you were appointed to make it happen, right? Yeah. So were you? Ha, you dropped, I assume, all studying of the effects of it. Yeah. So what was your thinking if you're not doing that? No, we were looking at. So if you're talking about that, so we we were trying to find out what is the new learning environment. Okay. Um, we're, we're confined to where we had to put it and stuff like that, but we're saying, what is the new learning environment? What's going to go on here? So we looked at all kinds of models, like really like kind of crazy things, like uh, um, almost um, uh, the Jetsons type of stuff. What, you mean little little uh, architectural models? Yeah, architectural models, like uh, had people drawing them up. Um, and so like we were looking at the flexibility, uh, wireless wasn't so permanent then; it wasn't so good. Um, but you know, the dial-up phase. Yeah. Well, no, we were on the we were on the like hardwired, you know. So anyway, we were, I was trying to I was trying what I was trying to create was a learning environment for new media. Simple as that. So. Um, Did you know where the term new media came from? No. You mean in McLuhan terms? No. Yeah. Did, did you know that Mark Stallman coined the word new media? No. You did not know that. No. You know what's interesting? 
that that period in '94, it, the Tetraheads and the '80s Barry Nevitt phase was climaxed with that book uh, thing in the restaurant. The book launch for Barry's uh, for who? What was which book was it? Uh, who is Marshall McLuhan? Yeah, yeah, with Morris McLuhan, Marshall's brother, and Barry put out this book, and Wayne was part of finishing that, and Nelson Thal was part of doing it earlier. And the the local uh, hip TV show, I think media television, you know, Moses Neimer's uh, yeah. city TV show, they covered it, and I yeah. saw it on TV, and Mark Stallman was interviewed there, and he was up trying to find out what McClune knew about power, and so Eric or Wayne directed him, I think Eric directed him to the book Take Today, and, Wal- and, and Mark had just uh, left Wall Street, he had made uh, some money from bringing AOL online in some manner. So he's looking to figure out what happened by looking at McLuhan concepts. And he has an actual conference around uh, the Future Shock guy, Alvin Toffler, around that period. Um, and a lot of McLuhan Mark brought into it. So he's looking for McLuhan, and there's Barry Nevitt. And that is the, actually the supernova because you leave around that time. And then you go into making a new environment. So can you relate that that Barry Nevitt book launch with your thinking of the library, the timing? Uh, well, I'll try to, but uh, I didn't. I hadn't left it. Um, my I, my relationship with Barry carried on, and my relationship with Wayne carried on. Why did you keep in touch with Barry? I don't know. Barry and I became a pretty good pals, so we we would talk. Barry's the kind of person you could call him up or he'd call me. And okay, did you think that he had the spirit of Marshall in any way? I think so, and I know he missed Marshall. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, but did you think that um, you were getting a, that he was the best source of McLuhan knowledge alive at that point? Would you say you thought Eric was? I'd say Eric. Eric was better. Okay. Did you did you discuss um, or a Barry was CIA and b um, whether he was doing McLuhan stuff when he was commissioned by uh, what South American country he was uh, employed to do their telecommunications restructuring? I don't think so. No, I think. Uh, um, as far as I know, what Barry said is, you know, when he when he was going to like uh, had so much stress from doing that, um, he had to come back and retire. Uh, that's when he started doing McLuhan. Well, I'll tell you the story. He's he's building the telecommunications network in the, some country in the south for like a Swedish, Finnish, or Norwegian company, and he said that's when he had to interact with the local Nazis. You know, a lot of the Hitler's Nazis were the behind-the-scenes guys in the South American government. So he encountered them. And when he heard May Brussels stuff, when we presented in the fanfare in 83, 84, he said, oh, yeah, we knew all that stuff, you know, about Klaus Barbie and that. Anyways, he said he came back in a kind of retirement or dropping out mode, and his wife gave him understanding media in the Christmas uh, 64, going into 65, I think. He read that. He was amazed. He said, this this is the this is the guy describing the world I built, or that he was an engineer on, yeah. and so he went down to the center right away, like January '65, and introduced himself, and that's uh, and he never left. That's well, I understood it that way. Uh, yeah, but Barry never. We we only know that Marshall once said 
to somebody that Barry was British intelligence. That's the only time that ever was brought up, and it was only done by Marshall. And Barry told me a bit of stuff, but it was not, it was like it was his past, not that he was working for those networks now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Barry, first of all, Barry, he, he was, he's the, only, he's the only one that was from Toronto, right? Yes, he was from a, an establishment family. He was, born he was related to the Ryerson family. Yeah. that had the Ryerson Polytechnic that Don Gillies was part of. Yeah, and um, he headed over early in his life to uh, the Soviet Union. To yes, in the 30s. And he told me the story when he came back through Munich, Germany, whatever, wherever it was in Berlin in 33, he stood on the sides of the, of the highway or roads in the city and watched the Nazis march down with their public address system. He said it terrified everybody, including him. The power of that public address, loud acoustic stuff and these military guys going down it was really frightening yeah. he, he experienced that directly after being in uh, Stalinist Russia yeah yeah um, so um, but back to your point of the uh, supernova so yeah so Barry um, I was part of that and Barry Barry was wanted to make uh, amends and make everything right with the McLuhan's again, so he decided to do his book, Who Was Marshall McLuhan. He brought Morrison, I think, as a kind of a, to have a McLuhan on side. Yeah. And and then um, he uh, had a big party. That's right. And he died a few months later in a car accident, where he got run over by a car. No, no. Perhaps. perhaps no, he, di- he died in January 95, Mike. Yeah, but he he died in his house. Wayne Wayne found his body there. Wow! I was told that he was walking along at the corner of St. Clair Avenue Road or something around that area, and he uh, fell, slipped, fell into the road of the traffic at you know at the traffic lights, and got ridden over. Well, Wayne told me you know they were finishing up things about the book and all that stuff. Uh, Barry was paying Wayne money. And uh, he had a key to the house, and he went over there and opened the door, and uh, Barry was dead. Okay, so there's two different stories. The point was that was not very long after the book launch. No, no. So. And, and, and then, when, by the way, when uh, when they when Barry decided to pull the plug on that um, TV stuff. Yeah. They basically threw everything in the garbage. All the documentation that the European aristocrat, what's his name? Nippy. Yeah, all the stuff Nippy and them, they had prepared, he just tossed it. And that would be, is that around the time of the book launch? No, it was way, that was quite a bit before. Yeah. So here we are, you, that's the climax of that whole period. Now you're going to be a, a, a designer of environments. So talk about what you were thinking, and if you even thought of McLuhan while doing, dealing with the bureaucratic hassle of making it happen. I've always thought McLuhan acted at a at a subconscious level. I mean, I don't think uh, I don't, uh, like I've all, I'm a firm believer in that the McLuhan. You try to apply McLuhan to anything practical, you never get anywhere. <laughs> well, that's the manipulation part of McLuhan. He didn't want you to get anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, but it's when you're if you're doing things um, and you're reading and studying and all the rest of it, uh, presumably he creeps in, right? So, uh, yeah. I wanted to well, create, so for example, maybe during your downtime, when you're not doing, when you're relaxing, having a beer, you might start to speculate. Yeah, um, but in terms of the design, so for example, and it's 
it's it is something that was uh, has been totally unsuccessful there um, for well, from '95, let's say when it opened till now. Um, I built these uh, editing rooms for um, uh, digital media, and we provided cameras, still cameras, movie cameras to students, so they go out and make stuff and show them in the class, right? Yeah. And um, pretty much that's always been a failure. That is what the media center was before, a place for students to have equipment or professors. That part of the media center went into the new thing you built. Yeah, yeah. So you created and a participatory environment in the sort of thing. What did you say, Andrew? It's like, uh, I guess it's uh, Mike's creating uh, an environment where I guess uh, the, the user can be the content, can uh, take on producer values and uh, can can participate in the library at this sort of editing and remixing kind of level, which would come out of at least one level of understanding the clone. Right, but the point is it did not take off. Well, the reason it didn't take off is because uh, you have to remember something. So the, 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 uh, the, the ground at UT is that really they're, they're putting in all students that are like really in faculty, they're all book people. They're all uh, POBs. Yeah. So, um, and the ones who are not POBs, they don't need to go to the library to use the computer in 95. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was... We, we, so, I mean, we've, we've had a lot of successes there, individuals, but in terms of numbers, um, there's been some students that said that he changed what I was going to study because I could come here and use this stuff, and now I realize yada, yada, yada. So there's always been that kind of people, but as a kind of a, uh, a groundswell thing, students were too busy writing papers. Yeah, they just use it to Google. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the new the, environment. Nobody writes papers. They just, first of all, everybody knows already what they want to say. Yeah. And um, they all, they have an opinion, and but they know that they have to have some footnotes. So they go to they go into the library or wherever. They Google. Um, they get some quotes to support what they <laughs> already know. They cut and paste the, their paper like McLuhan made his books. Or at least the Gutenberg Galaxy. Yeah. Gutenberg Galaxy lays down the style of bookmaking by P.O.B. or paper student work 30 years before. Yeah, yeah. And that's why now they have to have all these uh, pieces of software so that the profs can run the papers through to do um, to do to check if they've plagiarized or not. Right. The software will do it for them. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. You're, McLuhan said that you know we use the new technology to do the work of yesterday. So you stick this technology in an old environment, which is a big problem right there, contradiction, and the students who use it, they're actually going to use the new technology to play the old environment, the old book world's game, and not really engage with the book. So from the book people's point of view, you really screwed them. You really brought something in that violated their principles. Yeah, yeah. Well, McLuhan wrote a paper on that, I think. Yeah, I wrote a couple books on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and McLuhan, um, McLuhan said, um, actually, that's a thing going back to, I remember McLuhan coming to the media center, um, and, you know, the Robards Library was um, fairly new then. Yeah. And, um, he declared it was obsolete. 
<laughs> I, I told that to a few people, and uh, they, you know, like um, higher up administrator types, and, you know, they were like, "Oh my God, don't let anybody hear that," because <laughs> they respected McLuhan in a way. We just we just spent millions to make it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing is, is that it's obsolete. That means. It's um, very active. In my years, you know, in Toronto from 77 to 93, the Robarts was always a very busy place. I went there. It was well used by all kinds of people on top of the students, you know, going in and getting the data. I didn't use the computer part. It wasn't there, but it was a very active place. No, it still is, and uh, although it's, sh- it's, it's, it's um, direction is shifting, now it's... Um becoming uh, it's more an agora now it's a it's a student meeting place no one goes there for the books anymore they go there to meet to, to make contact for their chemical bodies yeah yeah so it's still to, about socializing and um, and um, getting those quotes off of google right it's it okay so you when I was in uh, the robots, I was quite stunned that it was the only library I'd ever been in where I was encouraged to have, uh, or I felt like I could have a martini. Um, it was designed <laughs> like a bar. Did you yeah. take that uh, from uh, McClung? Because I understand that you were um, quite instrumental in creating the actual layout, the aesthetic of the place. Yeah, but as I was saying earlier, we looked at a lot of different layouts and we looked at all kinds of things there. Um, we, in, in terms of the, uh, technically speaking, we, um, the Robards, if anybody doesn't know, it's a, it's a, it's um, a form of architecture called brutalism, and so it's a bunch of concrete pillars. Uh, stacked up. Stacked up, and it goes up, I don't know how many stories, but, um, and yeah, Mark Stewart, around the center, they called it, uh, or I don't know if they invented but it was called Fort Book, right? Yeah, still called that, Fort Book. And, um, <laughs> it was a bastion against the new barbarians. The adjoining thing, by the way, because it has these little appendages on it, the rare book part of it, Yeah. the Fisher rare books, people may not know that that thing was uh, inspiration for Echo when he wrote the, in the name of the rose, The Labyrinth. Yeah. In the book, that's the Robards Library rare book section. The rare book section inspired Echo. Yeah. Because of the odd manuscripts and stuff that were there. Yeah, yeah, and then and in the name of the rose, they have a labyrinth. I mean, a guy goes down there to find the lost book of Aristotle and all that shit. Yeah. Uh, now Echo probably he he probably spoke at um, at the UT. Probably David Olson would bring him over because Olson ran the semioticians or semiotics newsletter after yeah. after he left the coach house. Yeah, he could have. Yeah, probably did. But the name of the rose came out in the early '80s, so he would have been inspired by that in the '70s. Yeah. That's before Olson's time, but. Should have come to the coach house for all I know. Yeah. He did write a lot about McLuhan at one point. The book um, Travels in Hyperreality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, mid-80s or something. I, that that um, introduced virtual reality to a lot of people, that book, to university students and that. I remember Mike Dyer, who I did my show with on CKLN, he thought that book was tremendous. And when I would look at it, when I looked at it and looked at the McLuhan parts, um, 
Echo is trying to figure out what the meaning of the medium is, the message is, and he goes through about four levels of potential meanings, which is interesting yourself, but really trying to get a conceptual handle on it, and he kind of never got it. Yeah, he's still worrying about signs and symbols, I guess. Yeah. To go back, they, I was going to say, go back to Andrew's question. So you had this brutalism architecture, um, a lot of concrete, and um, so we were trying to build an anti-environment to that. So in that sense, you could say McLuhan had a role in it, but our layout is a, of our computers is not a straight line, but a serpentine, a curved snake-like um, assemblage. And yeah, Andrew, that's what you're saying. That circle snake thing, that's what you're saying was like a bar where you sit with the computers? Yeah, the whole thing. They've got, uh, you can stand up while using the computers. The colors are done in a, a really, uh, it's really delicious. The lighting is um, is as thought out as you'd find in any upper-class upper bar. Well, the, um, so when we, when we had to build it, um, we, I don't know if we call it interview or what, but anyway, we went around to about four or five different kinds of designers and architects. And were you part of Were you part of those meetings? Yeah, yeah. So the people that we settled on, uh, their main claim to fame at that point was building bars and um, discos. <laughs> and um, essentially, one of the things that they could do was that they could create uh, a nice space. Um, at a low cost per square foot because like they would go and build a disco and some guy would like give them say here your budget is two million three million dollars whatever it is build me a disco um, and then only because that disco is only going to last like five years and it's going to be torn out right and something else go in there or a new disco a new design so they have to learn to create um, they have to learn to create value on, on limited dollars so that's why we hired them. And uh, they actually had got their start, by the way, uh, in life by uh, working for McDonald's and designing um, McDonald's restaurants. And then they moved in their own business into doing bars and restaurants. So anyway, anyway we were so you're, was our you're making a sensuous environment. You know, it, it it patches back to your original point where you were in these seminars learning perception from McLuhan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and also they're creating an environment that encourages what he says now it's a hookup place. So, yeah. Mike, the way the library, the, your, what you built changed the dynamic for the students in the building or in the environment there. Well, I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, made it like a bar or... Yeah, yeah. Because well, they they could do all their research on their own computers. That's right. That's right. So it's an odd thing. It's a, it's a it's a it's putting a buggy whip on the automobile to put the computer <laughs> environment in the library. The you know the horse the library is the horse is obsolete, but you bring in a car and you. No, you bring in the car in the rest of the city, and you stick the buggy whip in the middle of, the, of Fort, Fort Book. The buggy whip being this computer environment, which is there for the poor students who didn't in the mid-90s have the computer yet, but very quickly everybody had one. 
So that thing was obsolesce by 98. Yeah, that's why I say the whole thing is transitioning now into, into if you like, then into a super bar, you know. Um, if you think about it, why, 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 do, why do you have to go there? Well, you go there because you still have to go to class. But it's a prime prime example of the McLuhan themes. We're putting in a new thing in an old context. It has to be done. Nobody's going to stop, and it's going to have unforeseen effects. And um, I'm, I'm asking you, did you think of those paradoxes, not when you're making it, but eventually? Yeah. Think of the McLuhan themes? Well, even, even as we're making it and afterwards, because people, people would still... Um, I know Andrew's there, but people still criticize that design, even today, because they basically, so at at the old level, you could say, they say, well, you could just put a whole bunch of tables there. You don't need to design it. Yeah. Have, just have the computers there. We, we know they'll use it because they need to come and get the information, right? Like a public library. Yeah, public library, and then, like, you know, you don't need to have that, you wasted space. You didn't. You could have put four more computers over in that corner and ten more over there, etc. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't going for the aesthetics. Yeah. So uh, we were going for a place. I, overall, I was trying to create what would be a learning environment in front of a computer. Which is crazy. You didn't create a learning environment. So what the heck did you think a learn, the phrase learning environment was we, referring to? Well, what I thought I was referring to was a place where people could come and um, basically... And Google their papers. Google their papers. And you yeah, thought no, that... Yeah, they learn about style. If, you, if you're learning style there, I mean, you can find the best-dressed woman in Toronto in that, in that library. You can learn so much. <laughs> no, nah, not so much. Uh, well, you did it more than me, but when I was there, I just saw students. We just had, uh, not too long ago, Barbara A. Meal was there. She's pretty well-dressed. And she walked in and used it. Yeah. About a year okay, so, so Andrew's point is you could, you could study your society. You actually fake looking at the literate content on the computer, just cut and paste, while looking around at the people that were coming and getting patterns out of that. It was a form of estimate with the with the computer terminal as the cover. Yeah. What, yeah. you're telling me that the, the, the libraries have been used for other things, Bob? Yes. What do you, well, I mean, you, you, a younger generation I, has never experienced a library in that old sense that you're uh, gesturing at. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. No, what, what's, so what's the point of bringing that up? No, I'm just saying it's uh, rather interesting that you uh, raised the possibility that the library could or be anything else. I mean, oh, no, no, no. It was used back when books were books and men were men. <laughs> that, those things serve purposes. <laughs> See, Mike, Mike, Mike built the Studio 54 of libraries. <laughs> he ruined the U of T. Well, this is the... We, we didn't launder any money, though. Out of this, but, uh, he didn't make any money and he didn't go to jail, Andrew. He should. In retrospect, a lot of people should, wanted to put Michael in jail. Yeah, they still make, People they still have copied mind. that library. What's that? People have uh, studied that library from all around the world. They've taken those ideas back, and uh, it's now there's um, the nightclub library is the um, is the model. Well, that's true. 
Um, we weren't the first. Uh, we don't call ourselves the first information commons, but we were we were the the largest and kind of the uh, probably the best implementation in in the mid 90s. You became the standard. And people people did come from all around and say what was going on here. Um, I I know in fact in Japan that apparently they have a little mini version of the almost identical version of it. But um, yeah, so people looked at that. But you know that that's just to say that uh, this this was inevitable. This is the writing on the wall. This is what libraries are going to become. Um, yeah, but in this respect, Mike, you you've written one of the most powerful books on McLuhan. In the sense, like you didn't mess around writing some uh, text about some alphabet or something. You actually created an environment. That environment got uh, copied, replicated, and uh, pulled into you know the, the world situation. And was controversial while the building was happening. It was like uh, Michael um, Stravinsky, 1913, riots as the thing was being performed. Yeah, there were riots there, and. Um, the, the, um, Michael Emmons, a uh, music composer in the new sense, post-Gouldian composer. Uh, the Globe and the Globe and Mail uh, national newspaper did, did an article on the Commons when it opened up, and a quote from that article, the Globe runs, runs a little thing, the quote of the day. Yeah. Um, and I became the quote of the day. And what did you say? In the Globe and the Mail. Well, basically, it said something about the fact that um, we're we're not going to worry what the uh, the quote related to. I don't know specifically how it said, but the quote said, um, "I'm not going to worry about what the students are going to do with these computers. We're just gonna, we're going to let it happen." You knew the uses would be found, is what you meant. Yeah, yeah. You knew it was necessary. We don't know what they're going to do with it. Uh, how wrong you were, Michael. <laughs> back in those days, the people were um, like all concerned about like uh, this was when the the web was new and you could just surf. You know, you go to this was when what you get binged out again. What? Hey, no, it's me. I'm uh, calling in. Who's this? This is uh, Bipple. Okay, uh, hold up. Are you really Richard Altham? Is that your real name? That's my real name. Okay, that answer mystery is answered, Andrew. But we okay. We're in the middle of it. Just hold it, Richard. Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Both time we met, you're always harassing me with your surrealistic poses and private messages. So great to Sorry have, about that. Okay. have a chance. No, that's I fun. You, I want to ask you if you if you have that uh, all that little quote you put up of O'Grady. Do you have the rest of that? Uh, yes, that's from the DVD extras of McLuhan's Wake. There's an um, interview with Frank Singroni. Mm. Um, Gerald O'Grady, uh, Neil Postman, and and uh, Patricia Buckman, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a student colleague of Don Fields when they were uh, students of Marshall in the early fifties. Yeah, I, I remember Ted, that interview. I, I believe there's one, uh, a Howard or a Ted. I th- I don't I want to say Ted Carpenter, but that might be wrong. Is there a no? It's Ted it? Carpenter. Okay. Uh, hey, yeah, hey could you turn, Richard? Could you turn your mic? For some reason, you're super loud. Like, oh, how does okay, that sorry. happen? Okay, sorry about that. Is this better? Yeah, even lower. Like I can hardly hear Michael. Do you find Michael faint, Andrew? Yes, and you are a super volumist. Am I super volume? Yeah, you're yeah. pretty loud. Oh, okay. Well, we got. I guess we got stronger phones. Uh, I've got my 
my microphone way up above my head, but this is a powerful phone, so sorry for that. So I, I'm in the same boat as Richard, or yeah, Biffle. Okay, anyway, sorry. I was finishing up there, so, so Richard, just try to listen to this. We'll, we'll sure get enough. to you in a minute. We're in the middle of a... Michael has designed to create an amazing musical composition that wrecked the University of Toronto. <laughs> no, it made it. It made the University of Toronto. What are you talking about wrecked it? Brought it brought it into the brought it into the mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but we just were sort of concluding that uh, yeah, it, it it these things were taken up by most libraries now. No, we're talking about your quote. Your quote was saying we don't know why we're putting it in. We have to put it in. Nobody knows what the digital environment's for. It's here, and the students will use it for whatever they use it for. That was your quote, right? Yeah, that, uh, that's the gist of it. Uh, you should have that, said that, something like, young people, will be, young people should be explorers. You should have inverted Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, I had, that was what I was just saying. That was I had to say it that way to keep my job. You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so anyway, Andrew, I think that that's. Um, I appreciate your comments on the comments. I think it it kind of did work. Um, the day that it opened without any fanfare, uh, you didn't have to even say it. It just sort of like automatically filled up. Right. And we built phase two. It automatically filled up. Well, see what's interesting. It's the year '95. That's when Netscape's mouse comes out, and everybody kind of starts, the average person starts to get online 95. And a lot of people couldn't afford a computer, and yet they had to get online because it was what was happening. You provide the environment for anybody to get into the computer world, which was starting right then in 95. That was the back story. That's the whole thing that we were saying, how did it come about, was the, academic, the idea of academic computing it had to be... And provided to everyone on campus. So there were departments, the rich, more or less, uh, engineering departments and so forth. They had their own gear. They they provided for their own students. But you know, your poor your poor McLuhan students, your poor humanities students, your you know, they they didn't have access to that kind of stuff. So right. That's what it was. It was, and the word commons was kind of taken at that level. You know, this is a common facility. You know, McLuhan talks about, you know, radio obsolesced the book. You know, back in the, you could say the telegraph obsolesced its constituent form. I see this, these computers being put in the library as the Android meme replaying the obsolescence of the book that the chemical body humans did. This is the Android meme doing it to itself, acting out the inevitable obsolescence of the book. It's a simulation of the earlier obsolescence which happened in the 20s, say. Uh, you, you know what that, it just made me think it's almost like its own survival instinct in a way. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's uh, some, you know, survival of the fittest. That's, that's its sort of like response, the Android meme. It, the Android meme imitates what humans did and tries to make itself more and more anthropomorphic or human. That's the whole thing. Yeah. That's the trend. But just before, those are good things to talk about, and I'm here for hours to talk about that. But we're, we're, we're working through Michael here. We're trying, yeah, to yeah. Add, we're trying to make significance out of Michael's life. So 1995, he, he, made, he, put the, he made it easier for poor students to, to get out in online and wired and all that. At the University of Toronto, are you familiar with Toronto? I, I lived there actually um, in 95 um, for about nine months. And in my opinion, 1995 was like a replay of 45 where everything kind of stopped. Yes. The old way started, yeah. and the virtual reality started. Yeah. 
And in my scenario, that's when virtual reality died and we just saw the replay. But that's, that's another level of talking yeah. about it. But anyways, 95 was a dramatic year. Uh, Kurt Weller, uh, these younger people I talked to, that period when the computer and comp- it changed your guys' future dramatically. About totally. what the fuck you're up against, right? Totally. 100%. <laughs> Yeah, so Michael did that in the academic book world of the big Fort book. What? I was apologizing, didn't mean to do it to him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's this is a guy who studied McLuhan, knew him, interacted, studied environments, and he still couldn't be a he still had to be a jerk. (laughs) 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 Which is really really significant here because that was McLuhan's dilemma. He, he knew nobody could stop what he was sort of wondering about and worried about. And you, but what's funny, Michael, is that you're recording the, the riot, the reaction, that people had no clue what the factors involved. The ones who were against it knew it was hopeless to fight it, and the ones who were for it didn't know really what it was going to be used for. Yeah, yeah. But, but at, at the intuitive level, everybody knew something that was going on, right? Because now the the uh, the computerized environment was obsolete, so therefore it had to be used, and that's what I mean. The Android meme is hidden ground from 1960 1990. Now it became figure because it's obsolete, and when it's obsolete, it works. It has to be used. Yeah, more and more. So what did you what did you uh, look? Try to think of some thoughts you had around McLuhan while in the middle of this little war. Um, I don't know. Ask me some. I would say one that you implied it. You knew the McLuhan was not relevant to what you had to do. Well, at a it was impractical. At a conscious level, yeah, I, th- I think he's always impractical. So right. He does his work. Uh, you know, he does his work while you're while you're not thinking about him. No, no, no. He was describing the inevitability of the technological dynamo. He was, but I wasn't. Right. Well, no, you had to live with the dynamo. And yeah. he wanted you to think about it and have put on the postures of maybe having a perspective on it, but no perspective from a clone could be applied. That's what I'm, Yeah, okay. That's what I think. We, we didn't sit down and say, well, how would McLuhan build this? <laughs> you didn't bring him up. That's why you left the Tetris. You got, you got practical. You actually got doing something in life. Well, the tetras had run their course, and uh, the tetraheads, and um, maybe part of the dying off of the tetras was the fact that Barry did die. Well, possibly it comes back also to um, you know McLuhan talking to Ong about how to build a milieu way back in the in the forties, and he's saying that what we need is actually a group of people that uh, can feign complete disinterest and just talk and talk and talk and actually get nothing done. So getting nothing done is almost the McLuhan way. Yeah, that, that's the uh, perception was more important than efficient causality or application. Yeah, and when you get perception and understanding, then you're probably more inclined to do nothing other than talk than uh, actually do stuff. <laughs> yeah, he always said conversation was the best technology, the best machine. Oh, it's the ultimate sustainability in terms of a sustainable practice. Yeah. And we're supposed to be representing that here, or at least doing what everybody does, but with a direction or a broader 
jargon. Yeah, we're coming. We're, we're coming up to th- three hours, Bob. We're, 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 we're just beginning. Are you, are you saying we shift to tailgate now? No, no. I'm just saying we're we're, we're pioneering this new sustainable outlook on life because we're not doing anything. We're not. <laughs> we all have tenure. We all have tenure, so we don't have to worry anymore. <laughs> I'm on pension, so I, I don't worry. <laughs> so what... Uh, it, takes, it takes a pretty serious, dedicated commitment to do that. If, for example, you had to pay for a family system, you had to... No, you're, you're, you're blipping out, Andrew. Could you say all that again? Well, it takes some pretty serious commitment to uh, sustain that level of detachment if you have to pay for a family, if you have to have a job if you have to do all of these things. So I'd like to respond. See, Andrew, are you outside? What are you doing? You, you, you're not registering. It's hard to make out what your sentence is about. Well, because you can't hear me or because... Uh, you yeah, it's blurry. Like... It's blurry. It's uh, blurry. It's blipping out. We're not... we got to get every word to know what you're no. saying. Now, right now, you're clear. Stay where you are right now. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, very well. Okay, so I'm just saying it takes some pretty serious commitment, like particularly on uh, McLuhan's part, to to actually demonstrate this degree of detachment, this commitment to talk, uh, to to doing nothing, particularly if you have to raise a family, particularly if you have a job, all of these other things. It's uh, yeah. maybe this is part of McLuhan's way. He called it detached involvement. The yeah, technique so of the artist. That Michael registers these problems when uh, you're trying to bring McLuhan into a practical situation is because it's uh, the practical solution from McLuhan's point of view is to send George to get the wine, get a gin, and have a good talk about it. Not really. Look, he, to the degree he was serious, if he was, he did think you needed to get an institute to modulate the media and turn off TV for every six months at least. Do something practical to save civilization. Now, whether he really meant that when he said it is another question. It's almost as if, like, when uh, when people tend to get a little under the influence of something and they're, like, intelligent, and they come up with, like, at least, let's say, out of, like, a hundred suggestions, two really good practical ideas, and then once they are sober the next day, they realize... It's going to be like walking up one of those hills with like a rock attached to their leg to try and even begin to contextualize what's required by institutions to even get. You'd have to start in 95 and persist, persist, persist. And then when there'd be enough inevitable technological developments where, you know, where people are watching breaking news and it's basically reduced to some person on CNN reading a Twitter feed that anyone can do. It's like, it has to get to that point. They're like, oh! And it's endorsed by, like, people that they care about that could give a shit about them. But you need a few soldiers to persist through that time where you're alone in the future for a few decades, and then uh, eventually... Eventually what? Now, are you well, that's where we're at right now. That's where we're at right now. Now, wait. Now, here's what McClure would say to you. Too many words. Okay, okay. That's, that's, that's back up. You've, you've laid out a hundred ideas there, you know, in what you just, in your little talk there. And uh, let's just tear this apart and break apart. So we, I don't know where you were going. It start, okay, you're talking about how you get a good, you have a hundred ideas and then you find two can do 
Two, you want to really engage in, and you might have to accept that it's going to take a long time to implement that. Why are you bringing up that point? Because we're, we're talking about how you wouldn't do that. McClellan wouldn't bother implementing any good ideas he got. Well, didn't, didn't you just say that he said that um, every six months or so you'd have to turn off television or something like that? Oh, yeah. That would, he wanted the society to understand that you need to have media fast from television. He was saying this in the 1670s. So that would mean some kind of legislative thing would happen where the, the governments would say, okay, it's going off for six months. Now, I don't know how much he'd have to manage it, but he claimed that he would manage, he would study the effects on the population because they'd go cold turkey. So that would be some kind of daily focused role he would have. And right, he and talked about doing that if anybody uh, took the offer. What I'm saying, the, the people that would take the offer, somebody beyond some sketchy, you know, art people that had some money but no direction that wanted to start a religion, someone that actually saw it on his terms would be like, yeah, I, I agree with you and will counsel the effects of the population, which would make it... Uh, didn't he say that it would feel like a hangover at first if people yes, yes, did, yes, didn't do yes, it? Yes, so yes. it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's that feeling you get when I, I felt when we were at the U of W in early fall and they were talking about McLuhan. It's like, you need some courses to talk about McLuhan because the effects of the technology ideas, like doing something like that, is a good idea, but you're going to have to sell it to, you know, so many, you know, government, like you say, it would be a, it would have to be a government thing. And then there'd be so many people, uh, I don't mean to You'd be words. like Greenpeace. You'd be like Greenpeace trying to get whaling legislation. Or trying to get legislation to say like, look, for the betterment of our society and not to turn people into a bunch of, you know, stupid people, we should have a fast. Uh, let's start with a day and then increase it and then reach like, let's say 30. And, and get to these milestones and, and talk. But, I mean, to even get to that point in a dialogue with anyone that could actually institute it to promote the concept in language people could understand Not is almost happen. like you'd have to be high just to have the patience to talk about the minutiae of these details. Okay, so that's why we know McLuhan, he talked about uh, turning off the media in 49. I have the quote in my, uh, in my Fatic Commune book. And he knew it would probably be futile. He said, understanding TV in 1962 is uh, futile, explaining it to people. But in 20 years, it'll be obvious. So he knew that implementing it, and they even talk about it and take today, to legislate stuff or even apply solutions is not the case because too much was changing. So yeah. Andrew was talking about McLuhan knew that and then would just be into enjoying conversation. <laughs> but you had to pretend that you were uh, that you had a purpose on an efficient causality level, or people wouldn't take you seriously, right? Well, you, you don't just sit around talking, obviously just chatting for no reason. You have to pretend you're going to do something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like I, you'd have to talk out the ideas to to get them to a point of where they were be efficient. I think just think now everything's every single nano community is created. If you can consolidate some of them then maybe you could get to find those discoveries in conversation that McLuhan loved so much. Right. But to actually make some, some policy that actually did resonate with people enough to realize, you know, yeah, well, listen, this is. Listen to this, listen to this, Richard. McLuhan's I, the ideas McLuhan loved so much, not so much. He was satirizing the futile condition of humans trying to implement ideas. Oh. So, so did he use efficient causality as an alibi? That's a discovery. Okay, you said that too fast, Andrew. What'd you say? 
So have we just discovered that uh, McLuhan used efficient causality as an alibi? <laughs> That's right. See, this is where McLuhan was a playwright, Richard. And he took modern media, whatever he could get involved in, and act out the drama of uh, obsolete chemical body in the buzzsaw of uh, virtual reality coming. This is, he was satirizing it. Okay. Why did, why did he say to Woody Allen, to the professor there in the Annie Hall, you think my whole fallacy is wrong. He's saying his stuff is a fallacy. But isn't that just a contrast to, uh, in, in a last ditch, a bit of hope? You know what I mean? Like to, 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 to just say, like, you know, we don't, we're not, his, his insights at the rate we're going are doomed to be understood at the rate that we're going. So maybe just by somehow some tetradic element through extreme ignorance would come understanding. I have no idea, but I'm just... No, no, that's a good idea. He saw that disservices of print were unforeseen, the unforeseen that electric media would cancel out the disservices of print. That was the good track that was happening. Okay. In a larger ecology, the electric 20th century saved us from really screwed up situation in the 19th century. But then, of course, it wasn't that simple. The 20th century electric media created new problems. But it obsolesced a lot of old problems and issues that would have led to other problems, really stupid cul-de-sacs. Oh, See, that's okay. the drama he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like him, whole, it's like him hacking you know, the narratives of scenarios from contemporary back to antiquity, thus yeah. providing a lot of the insights. But in this case, what you just said, kind of with the electronic um, innovation that kind of helped solve some of the print-based problems, now we're in the realm of pure speed. And yeah. maybe only through repetition and hitting ourselves in the head so many times will we finally learn something. And no, I, that's no, what no. I say. That, the, okay, the, question, the question McClellan posed was, we have religion, and in his particular case, the Catholic faith, is yeah. that strong enough to handle the devastating apocalypse in Armageddon that's coming, in, in not just in military terms, but in all other sociological wiping out the species? Uh, he has that fantastic quote in the varsity graduate in 968 where he says, the hologram will scramble brains on the deck, some kind of laser beam. <laughs> Remember that quote, Andrew? It's in my paper. I don't have it right here. But it was an amazing quote that the hologram will scramble our brains on the deck. <laughs> okay, it's 1968. He said that, but the uh, no, no, the laser will read our dreams right off the deck. Ah, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the point is that he he's a person engaged in the in the problems of being a Christian, or being a Catholic, or being then a human being, and he yeah. acted he acted out in the in the news reality of of contemporary television shows. Uh, because he knew, you know, music, sculpture, theater, Broadway, we're all obsolete. Culture is our business. It doesn't deal with the problem. He was acting out the philosophical dilemma, multimedia, not just verbally. Yeah, no, I, I, I resonate with that uh, multimedia yeah. aspect. Um, so, well, okay, at the and end... Now, okay, okay, sorry. Well, I was just gonna oh, say, like, say, you remember what you're going to say, but I want to yeah. say one final thing. Sure. And he felt that James Joyce wrote out that thing using different media in Finney's Wake. So the, oh. the, the Finney's Wake was his script. What was dramatized in Finney's Wake was the script he used to, to continue what Joyce had done. Now, what were you going to say? 
you made me think of another one. What I was initially going to say was at the end of, uh, you may have said it at the beginning, but I put it at the end of this three-part clip I did where he basically says, if like that uh, culture of people he refers to that say, we don't have any concept of art, we just do everything as well as possible. The Balinese, the Balinese yeah. people. Okay, yeah. well, his approach echoes that idea where it's like if we have comprehensive overview in all fractalizing perspectives, let's say, of the maelstrom, that's the only way we can find the on-off switch. However, this is an aside to that, the Finnegan's Wake remark, Craig yeah. Venter, the guy that did the genome, put in, get this, he put in a passage from Joyce, uh, not Finnegan's Wake, but you know, an, uh, one the public would embrace, a narrative, a uh, linear one, he put a passage of Joyce in the genome, and now Joyce's estate is trying to sue him for copyright. <laughs> Yet, obviously, there's, it's going to be a transformative work every single time it's observed by someone else. But um, I just what is to, the what is the genome? Uh, that that whole um, DNA, like the data database of of yeah yeah. You mean the scientist? The scientist. Now you're saying. Yeah, that that's going that's obsolete. According to my wife, I mean that that failed that whole project. Maybe but, it did, but he actually had the wherewithal to bother to put in a passage of of James Joyce into the database of the human genome. Oh, okay, uh, let's go back one step. What was the thought just before? The, the thought before, before was that if we have comprehensive. Oh yeah, overview, no, yeah, comp yeah. You say the Balinese treat everything they do as art. We have no word for art. We just do everything as well as we can. Yeah. That's in the medium as a massage. But what is the other quote in there? Art is anything you can get away with. So you got two yeah. juxtaposed things there. And then the third thing would be the quote about the maelstrom, descent in the maelstrom, about you know, detached involvement and noticing what's retrieved. You have to take those three aspects. There's probably a fourth thing, thing in there. And then you get a tetrad yeah. of, of what art is. Well, the tetrad's obviously something to do with the mystery landscape, which is something to do with the first and second nature, and the second nature imitating the first nature's imitation of second nature. <laughs> Okay, well, you're, you've been reading my stuff, so you're bringing in heresy here. Uh, I'm sorry. What, what, isn't heresy a, a religious term? Yeah, it's a religious term, meaning... Interject here, please. Um, just before we uh, despair fully over the horizon of uh, um, uh, into, into heresy, I was suggesting we uh, bring this uh, first session to a close and we move into tailgate, if that's okay, Bob. We just uh, offer some thanks right. to Mike and uh, Bob, invite him back, and then we'll get going. Yeah, I was going to ring off. I may join you later, but uh, I need to take a break. Okay, Michael, can we, I think uh, we can do a part B. We won't go into all your history, but I don't think we're finished with you yet. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to say uh, thanks, Mike, for coming on board. I think you, uh, thanks for working through the history. Thanks for um, getting us moving. But I, I would agree with Bob. I think we've just got up to a point where actually where we can start discovering and exploring. We've uh, introduced you to an audience, and um, it's all good to go. So we'll, yeah. we'll book another time. Yes. And meanwhile, we'll do tailgate with whoever's part left here. Sounds good. And I'm Bipple sure. has a lot to say, so that'll be no problem. I want to hear what uh, Robert is. Robert, is it? Has uh, Rich, me? Richard. Richard. But uh, I've been on Richard since seven, so my ear's going to fall off. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, you'll listen later. We're going to ask Richard about how he made that O'Grady recording. We'll get that on tape. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. No problem. Okay. See you guys later. And All right. Okay. Good listening okay, to you. Michael. I look forward to hearing the beginning. Okay. okay. Yeah.
Okay. So we just carry on with the recording, right? Yep. Thanks, uh, Bob. I've got to drop off too. I've got, actually, for all my talk of um, efficient causality as an alibi, some people are actually paying my bills, and I've got to go. And, um, okay. Could you go out and come back in, or somebody come out and go back in to find out how many are here? Is it just me and Richard? Matthew Rose, right here. Oh, Matthew Rose. Okay. Anybody else want to identify themselves? Oh, great. Sue's still here. Is Sheila here? Okay. I believe the, you've got uh, some good, good grounds for some good conversation, Bob. So uh, Yeah, no, we got, we got enough people. As long as it's just me and Richard. Um, it's, if it's just me and Richard, it would just be interesting to each other. But uh, yeah. the, the um, what normally in the McLuhan seminars, Monday night seminars, the guests would get five minutes. But oh. Michael, Michael uh, had a lot to say about history, just for the record, because we do these every Monday night, so we can come back and do Michael on a faster level. But uh, normally people wouldn't have to wait, you know, three hours to have an input. They could jump in pretty quickly. So I apologize to Sue, Matthew, and well, Richard's new, and anybody else that we uh, didn't get to you right away. But what do you think, Sue? It was w- worth hearing Mike's history? Yeah, especially since I was probably there in his class with him in 78 yeah. with you guys. Yeah, yeah, you were there. You were there in those I, Monday night things, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to remember uh, McLuhan at that time, and uh, I do remember him wearing that cape and the uh, yeah. Sherlock Holmes thing. Well, let's let's go into what, you know, many years later, mm-hmm. you, you're a good example of someone witnessing McLuhan and realizing 10, 15 years later how he had no clue what he meant by TV. And that's an important thing to point out. Describe what you thought he was talking about when he said TV, and just going on about TV is a tactile. Well, I don't even remember him talking about TV. What I remember him talking about was um, the right and left hemisphere of the brain and how uh, we perceive differently with both of them and how that's going to alter everything. Now that we knew that, and well, well, what? Okay, now, listen. now that we knew that we had two kinds of brains, that would alter everything. Well, at that time, it was a big breakthrough, um, as far as what I perceived he was saying, and uh, it was about. But you, but Sue, the main point he was saying was not about the difference in the brains is that literacy favored a civilization built on the left hemisphere, and now in the electric age, the right hemisphere was going to become bigger inside your skull. (laughs) (laughs) Collectively, it was going to alter the shape of your skull because TV favored the right hemisphere and make it dominant. Now that you never knew is what he was saying, right? (laughs) That TV was going to expand your skull? Yeah, no. we've been we've been 500 years with literacy, and that made left hemisphere thinking dominant in the society. And men right. were more left hemisphere than than women in the mythology of the 70s. So that's why the patriarchy ruled from the printing press till the 20th century. Now that the television and electronics and computers were here, it was going to favor the right hemisphere, and it had certain qualities. But that didn't matter. It was going to favor women because they were more right hemisphere than left hemisphere. So the society would be taken over by women, and we'd also start thinking differently because of television. And if we turned the television off and we just had literacy, we'd go back to being left hemisphere. The point is those two parts of your brain were mutable. 
in their influence on you. That's the theory. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it really explains a lot of what's been happening as far as the uh, East and the West. I mean, McLuhan, I was very interested in what you had to say around McLuhan talking about the sensibility of the South and the North Yeah. in the U.S. Um, sensibility. Yeah. Uh, I think that was on number one module. Yeah, that was the Edgar Allan Poe session, number one, yeah. Yeah, and here in 78, he was talking about the left and the right hemisphere, but he was also talking about the east and the west and why we were we were going east and they were coming west. And, you know, it makes so much sense when you look back and you see how everyone, everybody got into the yoga and they got into the, the Zen and the Buddhism and meditation. And then massage came, became the big thing and the whole women's movement in... Um, women's feminism, the yeah. ancient spiritual feminism. Gloria yeah. Steinem. Yeah. Or and no, the newer, Starhawk and those guys, the ones who took it back to ancient uh, feminism. They call it spiritual feminism. Remember that phase, Sue? Yeah, yeah, and that big yeah. book that was going around the women's circles, what was it called? Um, oh, um, hmm. Okay, here's yeah, the, all- uh, now here's the thing. In, this, in the 50s and 60s, he got yeah. that quote from Finnegan's Wake, you know, ye shall have the, the night for morn. The West shall shake the East awake, and ye shall have the night for morn. There it is, talking about the West going East and the East going West in, in the 20s and 30s. Now, under satellite conditions, McClellan could see that in uh, the society. What's interesting, you get into virtual reality in the 70s, and he's not talking about chemical bodies going into a geographical, geographical position in, on the planet. He's talking right. about people being inside the global membrane, and the metaphor for that is brain parts. Yes. But he also talked about the colossal... Co- co- corpus callosum? The corpus yes. callosum. Yeah, joining the two together. Yeah, that was the interval. He always talked about the interval in any dialectic, east, west, north, south, visual space, acoustic space. The interval was his position. His position. But what the interval was or is is another matter because you can't see it or touch it or taste it. Well, is the interval the, the Internet? The Internet is an extension of the... Uh, interval? Everything, of everything. A visual, okay. acoustic, and it all cancels out, and it definitely is an extension of tactility. Well, but that, yeah. And that's odd. Well, if the corpus callosum connects both parts as the interval, you could sort of say that that would be the closest thing that we could come to a visualization of the unvisualizable aspect right. of tactility. You could say the, the Internet is an extension of the corpus callosum. Yeah. 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 And, and good luck visualizing that. Yeah. <laughs> good luck having your society survive it. Well, um... And it well, didn't. Yeah. It, it didn't. It wiped out uh, finally the bastion of the uh, Illuminati, the Wall Street. It wiped them out even two years ago. Well, you know, so, you ever see um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Yeah. Hmm. Is that a newer one? Maybe it, not. It, it's the one with Sean Connery. Uh, it was, I think, it came out in 1988 or 89. Anyways, okay. there's this, there's this one scene. At, it's at the end of the movie. It's like the climactic scene where uh, Indiana Jones has to like, you know, retrieve something in order to, you know, keep something from happening. And, and there's this like chasm. He's about to step off this rock, but there's nothing there. But according to the rhyme that um, has the map instructions, he has to go to the other side. And as for all intents and purposes, there's no other way for him to get over. And it, it has to do with a leap of faith. 
Yeah, so I remember we that. Come back, we come back to faith again. So he steps down, and Spielberg plays up the suspense, but he finally like takes that step into like the abyss, and then yeah. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a step appears, yeah. and then another one. So it's like we have no precedent outside of little corny things like that to even come to a hope to even understand how this is going to play out. But I'm assuming it's going to have something to do with a lot of things that people would be too incredulous to actually believe would happen. Well, I'll say I'll say one word. That's ion. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. That's incredible. That's incredulous. Uh, what ion, the extension of the non-physical is what ion represents, which is the next May phase. May the force be with you. Exactly. And and you know in in this in this um Japanese um story called Ghost in the Shell, they call it Project 2501 which, of course, is 26, which is the letters of the alphabet, which is the infinite combinations of words, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, yeah. um, the whole idea there is that eventually, just through the sheer volume of information, that somehow um, information aspects of it become, they don't call it sentience, but it sounds like sentience, and it means the same thing, but it's not the same word. But the idea that it becomes conscious of itself somehow, I, I can't think beyond that but i mean again that's that whole first second nature uh the externalization yeah. of what we're excuse the term but ejaculating into the internet yeah. that's going to come out and be the inverse of what the satellite was but like you said in that talk in 2003 it's going to appear like us and that'll be yeah. like you know for a while that's going to be a big problem for a lot of people but ultimately with the whole thing of everything's composed of atoms it's like you know handle it cope you're an adult <laughs> or, but don't use your adult strategies to handle it. Oh yeah, no. I mean, like, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, yeah. you know, give yourself a, a bit of credit that you can be, you know, right. No, I bet surprised people. I'm, I'm surprised people just don't start imploding all over the place. They are. The, the, they're, they're, the biggest suicide rate ever is happening in Japan right now. Hmm. Well, like right now or before this uh, disaster happened. Well, that's what I was asking the person who brought that up the other day, and I didn't get a clear answer whether he meant now, you know, the past week or over the past year. I think James brought it up in last week's um, payroll, cash flow show. He brought up the statistic, and I didn't get it clear. Did, did you get anything from that, Matthew? Uh, no. I mean, every death is suicide, and a lot of people just died, so I don't know. Right. Uh, yeah, the conventional meaning of suicide, you take your life, um, a lot of it's happening, and that's that's the kind of implosion. But so was he we saying could, it's because of fear or confusion or just um, uh, you know depression? What all kinds like what, what Richard's talking about? Or do you want to be called Richard or Bipple? Oh, you might as well call me Richard. Right. So Richard's saying that you know is a lot of uh, panic. I mean that's Arthur Croker's world. Panic encyclopedia. Panic, panic, panic. The last thirty years. And is that because of their media? Yeah, it's a, the fact that the uh, virtual reality has... Um, see, McLuhan used to... And we should try to relate it back to McLuhan just a bit, because so, that's the context here. He said every new technology or communication form creates paranoia when it comes into the society. So movies created paranoia, and you could say World War One. Radio created paranoia again, created World War Two. TV created paranoia, caused the, co the Cold War. Virtual reality creates paranoia, and what happens? Everybody starts typing manically and blogging their own reality or tweeting. <laughs> yeah, I call it painting the invisible. 
Yeah. Making um, themselves. Now, that would be the uh, tactile. Yeah. Painting the tactile. Well, like McLuhan, he would say like uh, that each new technology kind of creates an identity crisis for the former infrastructure that it surrounds. Yeah. And, and maybe in some ways, I mean, uh, you know, they're, they're not firm, but I mean, suicide is a lot more in the, in the practical sense was a lot more associated with like Asia. You'd always hear stories of like, you know, students that didn't want to shame their families or something like yeah. that because they didn't do well on a test. So in that sense, it... That might well, be the kamikaze, mis- Richard, in World War II, they bombed, uh, they willingly bombed the, the plane and themselves into the, into the American ships in Pearl Harbor. So it's, it, perhaps it's, it's a more advanced understanding of existence that appears yeah, one yeah. way to the Western eye than it does to, to them. Right. Uh, now, well, I remember written. you used to say, keep typing, keep typing, and now yeah. it's keep talking, keep talking. Well, that's when speech recognition comes in. Uh-huh. It's pretty damn good, I have to say. Google's got a good job on that. Yeah. Now, what I was going to I say something. I don't think Google can hold a candle to Bob. No, no, no one. Um, yeah, no. Well, we we won't get into that, but I mean, like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, Bob's doing a service, that's for sure. Yeah, and Ion's helping. Well, Ion, I mean, I, I didn't think anyone would get beyond. I mean, I've been, I've known about. I first heard about Bob in, um, you know, the issue of paranoia with the synchronistic linguistics article. Yeah, that's winter 2000. Uh, or yeah, one of the greatest things I ever read. I mean, most interesting thing I ever read. I mean, and and that's in some ways it's pathetic. Like Gerald O'Grady says that you'd think after like 40 years someone would do something, and it's it's Bob. But you know what I mean? It's just kind of like <laughs> there's two people. What there's like you know everybody here. That's fine. Yeah, he's talking about how O'Grady is amazed that Canadians don't do anything about. Making McLuhan significant. That's what oh. he's shocked. Oh. Uh, shocked I'm, I'm in Winnipeg. They just only they only <laughs> referred a cafeteria to him at the U of M five years ago. But you ask them about Burton Cummings and the guess who? They'd sacrifice their family for them. <laughs> okay, there was. Geez, I had a good idea right there. You were talking about McLuhan, and uh, we're gonna have to. What were we talking about just before? Like five. We're talking about ago. Asia. Oh, yeah, the East-West and that. And then uh, the um, the takeover, the collapse of everything. Um, what was that, Sue? Uh, I don't know well, if I can... Sue was mentioning the Corpus Callosum and, and that yeah. was coming, the, yeah. the, the, the yoga I don't understand and the why ancient don't feminism. implode as they're walking yeah. down the street. Oh, yeah, the implosion thing. Now, McLuhan knew that was happening. Oh, yeah, the identity crisis. Oh, yeah, this is what I wanted to say. The, the idea that a technology will cause identity crisis in a society, you know who lives that every day? Is a businessman. Is someone who has a big corporate thing going and someone is going to make a new technology. They know the medium is the message. It's going to wipe them out. See, that's where the satire is. That's why Marshall said, I deal with percepts, not concepts. A businessman deals with percepts. He's not interested in ideas. He's just interested in making the money from whatever technology he's selling, and he's interested in what's going to topple that. He's, he's looking at the effects. So you can see the whole monologue of McLuhan is the musings of a businessman, a Rockefeller, worrying about what's coming next, you know, and going, hmm, this, this oh, has yeah, this yeah, effect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but book people think it's a theory when they read it in a book and they don't see that he's acting out like I have my chart. He's acting out King Lear. He's being King Lear. And, uh, and that's uh, what you have to realize, that it's a, it's a, 
in the academic, no, uh, in the information society of the 60s and 70s where language became to the popular person bureaucratized and jargonized, it's like McLuhan made a very concrete jargon based on your sensory life that everybody could know, both the eyes and the ears, and then acted out the paranoia that leaders of management would have and said what they said and just didn't put quote marks around it or didn't put characters. You know, like the whole rant on spoken words. Hey, Bill says that. And then Mary says the printed word chapter. Now, he gave the clue that he was doing that because he said he wanted to make a Broadway musical with the characters being each medium. And the medium would strut around the stage, you know, mouthing <laughs> off his drama. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to do that since the 50s. So it's this playwriting, um, satirical, a modern form of uh, of um, taking the overeducated North American audience, making putting out what appear to be theories and percepts about events that are happening every year, different feds, and no one knowing it's the monologue of a guy of of um, Citizen Kane, say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like just someone that well, this is, and this is, you know, I totally understand what you're saying, and what what baffles me is that like why don't why don't they just disconnect for a moment, just like even for a, a week, like go on holiday and actually um, imitate the habits of, uh, you know, their grandson or, or daughter, just to see that whole social network communication aspect that's always connected and see what they're doing. And then they'll understand what's surrounding them. And I mean, this is where, this is where like, it's like surprise, a revolutionary evolution, innovation could occur. It's like, Half these businesses could be saved if they bothered to actually be artists for a week. Okay, now, now Richard, look, this is what McLuhan says. We become interdependent, and that doesn't, that's not, for a disconnected literate society, that's a value of goodness. But no, interdependent means the tyranny of aboriginal societies controlled by speech. Take the total involvement and paranoia of an aboriginal society. They have to survive. They've got to deal with their members. they got to... Uh, one uh, anthropologist uh, told Dave Worster that when he talked to all these different tribes, they all said the one thing we couldn't solve was hate, which is the natural f- interaction of humans, you know, contempt. Yeah, yeah. Familiarity breeds contempt. The interdependent means you don't have time to get a goal. You don't have time to get dropped out. Everything's so involved and pressured on you. And McLuhan said the electronic world was going to create this hyper-independent, pressured world that to the literate person would look like tyranny as, as the literate person <laughs> thought tribal people look like. Right, see, right. See, so the reason nobody has any time to do anything is that the electronic environment evaporated cash, it evaporated leisure time because it required more involvement, evaporated everything, so everybody stays where they are in touch with who they think they're connected to so they can stay viable. And that's all they do. I mean, you, you walk along here at the beach or anywhere, everybody's looking at their computer. Now, if everybody started doing that 40 years ago in Dartmouth, Sue, yeah. walking down Portland Street, looking at this little gadget in their hand and not really looking at people, they would think they were pods or aliens. But we've been so mutated over the last 50, 60 years, gradually getting involved with Walkmans and everything that's happened up to the iPod. Yeah. That, it, that the, the boiling of the frog has happened, and this absurd behavior, everybody checking their, their uh, iPod, is kind of not noticed as odd. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, and that's where the East thing comes back again, because the masters of the interval, obviously, 
you have a pictogram-based society, and, and maybe they're having their uh, crisis because the West influence of literature is, is permeating them with the Twitter, rather than the tribal drums beating, we have the, the tribal tweets tweeting. It just, you know, it's, it's uh, like okay, trying, now, to, trying to run not, against the car. You're going to lose. Yeah, no, you're doing, you're doing a good job of quoting some basic points that McLuhan or I have made, and I want to teach you, show you how it's a little more complex than that. Okay. The, the Chinese, okay, you have the satellite goes around the planet and television computers. That's tactile. That threatens all cultures based on the eye, all cultures based on the foot, and all cultures based on the ear. Basically every culture. Yeah. The new tactile environment creates paranoia in every culture. So with that panic, every culture starts putting on or jumping and wearing the environment of another culture. So the, the Chinese, they're oral. They adopt visuality, left hemisphere industrial technology. That's why their students over the last 30 years are the bright ones in the university, the only keeners, because that's all new to go left hemisphere. Not but that's done by panic. Now, the uh, Americans are literate in left hemisphere and kinetic, and, the, and that's not going to work under the tactile onslaught. So the only thing they can go for is a different dynamic, which turns out to be the oral, acoustic cultures. And you can look all through the arts and movies and fads of the last 40 years. It's all celebrating, when it's Hollywood stuff, about the tribalism or the acoustic sensibility up against the literate thing. But the, but the Western world is adopting Eastern or non-visual dynamics but that is not adequate to the tactile onslaught. It's just right, a exactly. stopgap band-aid. Well, it just seemed like, you know, like uh, when you'd say, like, you know, television, well, you'd, re you'd, you'd say it and you'd add some insights, but you'd say that McLuhan would say the television um, was an inner trip and that was uh, a Zen thing and yeah. that he would kind of correlate it to, uh, you know, the, the most efficient thing you could do in the 60s was to do what Timothy Leary was talking about. And no, not what Leary's doing. McLuhan said just be. And that meant sitting in your office and studying the effects or just noticing them and reading McLuhan. What McLuhan meant is read me, read, yeah. read McLuhan, and do what I'm doing. That's the only way you can survive. Not take LSD, not meditate, not anything, because none of those strategies, inner landscape or outer, are going to deal with the tactile reality. So no, when you have no, a they're not, they're not a solution. They're not a solution. No, no, but, but McLuhan was offering what he said a solution. The yeah. tactile surround can be understood if you know that what's going to be retrieved in your experience, the tetradic thing, yeah. and how you will best have no goals and just be and stay in touch in other, and in whatever level, knowing that what you're in touch with does not have a finish line. You see yeah. these statements said throughout his book. You have to perceive where, where we're at, and that's yeah. survival. Yeah, yeah. So he prophesied real spirituality of the 2011. What did McLuhan? Are you asking? Did McLuhan prophesize that? He was actually. I mean, when he's saying that you have to take a step back and be a slacker and observe. No, see, that's the point. You, you couldn't even take a step back because you were everywhere all already, discarnate, in touch with everything. At best, you could sort of change your fingers. Okay. Type this or type that. Okay, um, okay. So, so one, one quick... He was actually trying to teach you how to uh, contact, like, a peaceful source energy and observe everyone else in society. Okay, Matthew, he, he considered going to the Mass every day spiritual sustenance. That's what he did. But he also questioned 
the usefulness for other people to do that and the usefulness of uh, our society and the usefulness of the Catholic Church. He questioned everything about what he was doing. And then he pointed out that I'm forced to question anything because of an, there's this technological tactile environment. If we just turn off that tactile environment, I could be a Catholic in peace. Did he ever recognize <laughs> that his work was spiritual in itself? Oh, he knew, he knew that he was the real prophet. There's a quote where he says, I'm the only one who knows what's going on. Now, Star you can not say that in life, in, in media, in 1955 or 63. You, you'd be in prison for saying stuff like that. But he had the guts to say it because he meant it. And well, he meant a, it. He's a star child. He knew it himself. I, you can't even use the, the image of star child because the universe was swallowed up by the tactile television second nature. No, you, no, earthly nat- no earthly images, solar images, universal images, as I show in my chart, deal with this discarnate super, he called it super angelization. So he would not use any of what's on coast to coast or any of those wacky cults or anything that anybody came up with, including the Pope. All of it was useful. I mean, useless. He was then trying to get you to see why it was useless. And so his question, his spiritual question was, is there life before death? (laughs) (laughs) But didn't he say he recognized himself in Finnegan's Wake? Uh he did. Uh, I've got Xeroxes of his five copies of Penny's Weight, which he and Eric would go through and make annotations. And one of the copies, opposite page 254, that whole paragraph about Mirschel McMoon, yeah. he, he cut up his copies of Penny's Weight so he'd have a blank page beside each page. So it was huge. But then the blank page beside page 254, right beside where Mirschel McMoon was, he wrote me, M-E, and underneath it, Moonchild. Moon, that's what I meant by star child. Okay, no, but he meant moon child as an astrological sign. And, you see, it's Marshall, Marshall McMoon. So the oh, moon, moon, the moon in McMoon, which is spelled M-U-H-U-N, very close to his name, um, he saw that in terms of astrological fantasy or fancy. I mean, he was born uh, in July 21st. He's a cancer, and I guess he knew astrology. He studied everything. So he was Crowley saying. wrote a book uh, called Moonchild as well. Do you know that? Who did? Who did? Crowley. Oh. Okay, he might have been, even been aware of that. It's a, when you read something written by McLuhan, it's multi leveled. And he could have meant the level that uh, Matthew means, but it's not limited to that level. It can't be, because in the tactile environment, it's, in, in, it's modulating every sensory input or every image you can come up with. That's why Joyce has every image he can on every page, because he's showing the tactile function, which we never got with Michael Edmonds, the tactile eye. We've got to get back to that. The tactile um, eye. Bob. E Y E. Sorry. E Y E. Yes. Um. So okay. So just to kind of recap for a second, um, the overall idea of the maelstrom, obviously incredibly important, because that illustrates surviving in the tactile onslaught. by being able to actually observe at the same time as you're experiencing it. So there is no dropout. It's merely just um, what they'd call multitasking or quite literally a pun. Now, Yes, um, but also, Richard, going with the flow. The brother in the Edgar Allan Poe thing takes one position metaphorically, straps himself to the masthead, and thinks by being attached to something at one position, he's going to survive. But when the ship sinks... It takes him down. What, what um, the other brother, who's the hero in the story, 
He goes with the flow. How does he do it? He knows that some barrels get sucked down into the maelstrom, disappear, and then pop back up. So he knew that he would grab, if he could grab a barrel, he would go into that horrible thing of going down into the whirlpool and disappearing, going through the vanishing point, but he would hold his breath and he knew he'd pop back up, that he'd yeah. be retrieved. That pattern is the basic strategy of uh, what do you hold on that you notice is going to be retrieved? And he felt that what, what you could hold on to was an understanding of the whole sensory dynamic in the history of, of technology based on sensory changes. If you understood that, then you understand why people were going through their panics. Or if you understood that the, print, the medium is the message, the deeper you understood that, that was the thing to hold on to. Right. Well, I'm saying printing, the printing press, the Bible, Bible, basic instructions before leaving Earth. I mean, he understood that. And then you added that one thing that you and Andrew Crystal talked about, which is, I think, you know, the mystery body is the asymptote concept that no matter yeah. how much we know, part of the infrastructure of what we know is that there is a formal aspect that we can't ever know. Well, no, we will not touch the asymptote is the XY line on the graph that doesn't get to the Y axis. The line, the curve is going, never gets there. And so he would express that as there is no finish line. Um, there's another thought about that, the asymptote. Um, he would agree with Ion that you don't stop. But he did say that the fear of perpetual motion drove most people crazy. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you ever see that short film on YouTube, David at the Dentist? It's this kid that comes back from the dentist, and the dentist actually, you know, they pulled a tooth, so they gave him some drug. And, and you know, this is a kid. He doesn't know, and it's just kind of like that's the delirium, I guess, of, like, perpetual motion in, in a lot of ways, in, in, in my opinion, when you're just, you don't understand what's going on, and you're just kind of going with the flow, you, and that's what people are afraid of, because they all want certainty. And, you, right. just, you know, you can't always get what you want, and you're not even qualified to ask most of the time. Well, but, here, uh, here's, here's the thing. You've got McLuhan. You can take, um, you can inject Zen wisdom, shaman wisdom, and all kinds of things, that traditional stuff that verbal culture and literate culture came up with, the treasury of our wisdom about the astral body. You can project that in McLuhan, but what he saw was that you have a communication problem because you've got this external media around you that are part of you, and that, the effect of those as words on you, even though it didn't look like words in a book, television and cars and buildings, these environments, he said in the end were words and affecting you, and you've got to figure out how your wisdom uh, swims in that environment, not just what you say to your neighbor verbally. Yeah, yeah. Like oh, whole orchestrated rhythm. Yes. Yeah. Whole environment you're in. And so you, you, when you buy the New York Times, like Matthew New York, he looks at the New York Times, that's a mistake right there because you're not in New York City. You know, we, the whole thing is based on a mosaic image of the world, and they call it New York. No, it's nowhere place times. You know, and so just to begin to engage with print and reading a newspaper, you're becoming a zombie. So McLuhan say, look at the form, not the content, because the content will never get it right. Well, yeah, that's the phatic aspect where it doesn't matter what the content is. It's the rhythm of, you know, the, of the utterance. Uh, utter, the, you know, yeah. yeah. Like utterance it's and fact, stuff. It's the fact that some, that some Gaddafi who ran Ford Motor Company in Beijing in 1983 panicked and did something. That will affect you in Toronto, L.A., or Hawaii. Because that's, it's that global, you're that interdependent. 
What's Inter- that eastern connected. thing? The, the butterfly wings in one area yeah. is a volcano in another area. All co- and you take any of the major innovations in science, physics, art, music, all the culture. They all are expressing the medium as the message. Like the chaos butterfly is a metaphor coming out of physics or math that describes what McClellan already was describing as the interdependent reality under satellite conditions in the 60s. Yeah, no. one concept that anybody, even Ion, I could see that a lot of Ion stuff, by dragging it out, is a repeat of McClune. But the important point is, it's not what McClune said. He was pointing to the environments that were acting out the Zen wisdom right in front of you. He said TV was the highest decibels of human consciousness. Now, that's where Sue comes in, and she's thinking McClune's talking about TV content back in the late 70s. And yeah. saying, why is he saying those dumb TV shows are the highest decibels of human consciousness? Because he's thinking of the content and not the form. The pixel form or the cathode ray form of television itself is what he's referring to. Right, Sue? Yeah. As a, as a true artist, I think McLuhan was staring into the abyss. Yes. He was, he was very... Um, he was like the hero that's looking down into the maelstrom, into the being sucked down into all. Yeah, this. and and he and knew you that see any pro- swirled by kind of right. But Sue, any projection of traditional uh, Joseph Campbell images of the cultural hero, McLuhan right. knew that's not what he was doing. If you want to project what McLuhan was as a hero, have someone in the CIA monitoring satellite surveillance. That's the hero that he was imitating. Oh, he's that a hack. He was a hacker. Apparatus. He was a hacker. He hacked every single narrative convention, <laughs> fiction, nonfiction, every single genre that he could get his hands on from comics right. all the way back to whatever <laughs> got reprinted in the Renaissance, trying to probably go back to cuneiform, figuring if he could find... He hacked the Eskimos. <laughs> I'm saying pattern recognition. He, he knew. He knew. You had to he go was through done, all He was watching... It. He said, there's a quote he said in the 70s, he said, they asked the Germans, what are you doing? He said, oh, we're just sitting here watching people mount programs and the futile, futile actions they'll take with their programs. That's from Greenpeace to Trudeau or anything. And he's watching. He's telling everybody's running around like the Bible. The end times, much going to and fro. And he was satirizing that. And I want to bring up the, the thing I wanted to say about your asymptote. He was asked in the famous Hot and Cool book interview, will the last question, will there ever be silence? Now, there's a lot of different means of what would silence be, utopian condition or something, but will there ever be silence? And he says, objects are unobservable. Only relationships between objects are observable. So that's why you never, the curve never gets to the X, Y, because if you got there, that meant that something was observable and you could determine where you arrived at. Yes. But, but you can't. all you notice is ratios and relationships between things. And then he said, we're missing the ratios and relationships that the new media are creating in our verbal conversations and our lifestyle. Well, and, that, you know, and now we're heading kind of into like fractal aspects. No, anamorphic. Read Croker's. Fractal is a, a holdover of visual space and alphabetic. That's macro and micro. Okay. Or as above, so below. Or the little it contains what the big. There's no big little in this chaotic situation, invisible tactility. So it's anamorphosis, which means anything you see is a Trump leal. And that gets into ion. Well, if you can see it, it ain't real. Because I'm looking around here in Hawaii, and my chemical body can see the environment. But I know I'm on the phone. I'm on digital, interacting all over the place. I'm in different places. If I begin to analyze the sensory components of my super angelic state, that me thinking I'm in Hawaii is not the fact. <laughs> it's, it's a distortion. It's an optical illusion. It's anamorphosis, way beyond the symmetry of the fractal. 
and I'm in Nova Scotia, and I can hear your birds, and I believe I really am in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, but you're in both. You are in Hawaii, and you're also in Nova Scotia, and you're in where Matthew's in New Jersey, and where's Bipple in Winnipeg? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're in those local geographical chemical body environments, but you're also in the Langley, Virginia, and all those agencies that are taping us right now. But and then who? And well, and this is like a and you know power. Okay, maybe not fractals, but the you know you know, you ever remember seeing that Eames short film called Power of Ten? Where no. it, it starts. It, it, it starts with you, a couple. You know Eam, the guy who made my diaries like eight years ago, first put it on the internet. Eam, E E M. No, no, no. E A M E S. They made a famous chair and furniture in the '60s, and they did a short oh. film for IBM, and it was called Power of Ten or Powers of Ten. And it starts with a couple having a picnic in Chicago, and then it goes up 10 meters, and then it goes up 10, 100 meters, and then it just keeps going up 100 or powers of 10 over and over again, all the way to the end of the universe, and then it comes back down, back into the couple, back into the person's hand, back into the atom structure. And it's just like, we kind of have to even have examples like that as a beginning point to even begin yeah, and that, I think it's coming that, back to that, what you were saying at the beginning where McLuhan was talking about, you know, how could they get legis, uh, legislation passed through? And it's like, that's the kind of idea that has to be understood by the person who's got the power to put the legislation through for it to even begin to even begin yeah, to get anywhere. Yeah, you would show them that movie, Power of Ten, to show, and they'd be shocked at that image and impressed with the beauty or whatever idea they got from it. Then you say, okay, you see that? You got that? Well, that ain't half the story. Yeah. Exactly. It's like imagine everything that you don't know, and that's yeah. what we're heading for. Yeah, that's just jumping off point, what you learned from that Power of Ten movie. But that's not what I'm talking to you about. So well, tell me about identity, okay. Bob. Talk to me about identity. I was thinking is the reason why um, Titanic was so powerful is because everybody basically wanted to off themselves and they just did it <laughs> kind of uh, by watching the movie uh, Titanic. And yeah, Millennium Madness. So it, was com- it, it was coming up to the year 2000. There was that apocalyptic meme that built up with the Bible and Christian culture. That was there. A lot of people expected a lot of things by 2000. Yeah. And some people didn't want to experience it. Y2K was a crazy panic in that theme. Yeah. I'll be right back, but that's that sense of surviving something with the good news, bad news thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll be right back. Well, um, so here we have, uh, you know, this huge film being made by a Canadian. And what's the whole thing with the Canadian identity? Did, did, did McLuhan ever get around that? I mean... Oh, he man, he talked a lot that. about that. My yeah. talk in Nova Scotia in July... July 2001, you know, anticipating uh, 911 was about how Canadians are quadrophenic. Remember, Canada was a borderline case. Right. Well, I know we stand on the edge, right? And we, we no, you stand in, interfacing five different worlds. You know, you've got you take Toronto. You're interfacing with Quebec, French culture. You're interfacing with Indian, Native uh, Canadian, whatever they call it, Indian culture. Right. You're interfacing with in Canada in general with the Soviet Union. You're interfacing right. with um, uh, the United US. States. Right. All these interface. Canada was the only country in touch and with so many different one? parts of the world and different cultures in its own geographical chemical body space. So McLuhan said Canada was the borderline case and never could have a strong national identity because it was too busy interacting with so many interfaces. It had to be polite to everybody. So it couldn't assert its own thing because... <laughs> 
<laughs> it had to be polite to everybody. That's why I was yeah. so polite, yeah. Yeah, it, it was like the office manager. He, he would talk to the graphics department. That's the United States. Then he'd talk to the newspaper, to the distribution department. That'd be Soviet Union. And there'd be problems between the distribution pissed off at the graphics department, and he'd have to be hypocritical <laughs> nice to both fucking sides and deal with the local population, the Indians or the French. You know, it's the, quote, hypocritical position a manager gets into where he has to lie to the different departments. So you kind of are a non-entity. You're just, <laughs> you can't be seen to be working with any one of the factions, right? Right. And that's why Candace known, was known in the 670s as a peaceful country. Boring people, but very under nice. Under the radar, under the radar. Yeah, boring people, but very nice. <laughs> <laughs> the boring thing was he didn't... step on anybody's toes. Yeah, they didn't want they didn't want to have a high be be interesting by having some exaggerated national characteristic that everybody else would notice and then make cartoons out of. They we couldn't do that because we actually were living all over the world. You could say, in the sense that we were in touch with their, all the different factions. <laughs> so he called it Canada. He wrote an essay in 1976, the borderline case. <laughs> And then, he would, and then he would talk about uh, violence today was in the border territories, the interfaces between different countries and cultures inside the satellite implosion by imagery. So French Canada was shocked to hear English language on their radio when the CBC started that in the 30s and 40s and 50s and then brought in TV. Here's these French people who, in their chemical body terms, Toronto's thousands of miles away, right? They don't have to deal with Canadians. Uh, with English voice, all of a sudden it's in the radio. That creates in, in the, the room. room. Yeah, that'll create paranoia. So uh, okay. then you start to have this borderline between the English voice and the French culture, and that led to the Quebecois and separatism and borderline terrorism and disputes. So McLuhan said there was violence all over the world, but note they were always in the borders, at the border face, the interface, including the media interfaces where he would say Watergate was a battle between the newspaper world and the TV world over the advertising dollar. <laughs> so you got those dynamics, which are expressed in my chart, and then the chemical body dynamics in Canada. And so Canada being able to negotiate with no high, high level of high-profile identity actually had an adva advantaged, uh, better way to handle the maelstrom just by its character. Just by its character. Yeah, which is don't have a high profile. Be bland and, and appear nice to everybody. I mean, look, they got, the, they got the pleasures of growing up in North America, Canadian boomers, and having all the pleasures of the new rock and roll and TV and movies and that information entertainment stuff, and didn't have to go to Vietnam. Yeah. That's why, Connie and I, that's why Connie and I lived in, in Canada. It was the best place in the 50s and 60s. It had the most slack. Somebody said to me the other day, the difference between Canadians and Americans are Americans like to make money and Canadians like to count it. <laughs> well, that's what they said about Northrop Pride. You, you know that statement. What? what? What's that? Oh, so in McLuhan had left a note in his archives that they saw. He said, me appropriate for the 60s and Northrop Frye appropriate for the 70s. Because the 70s was a retrenching period. You know, people were tired of the orgy of the 60s, so they were retreating. So he said Northrop Frye was a better figure for an image of Canadian identity and intellectual pinnacleness 
and, and Matthew Northrop Fry was a, a fellow critic at the University of Toronto, competing with McLuhan. So Northrop Fry was a stodgy old guy who looked like a, a chartered accountant and, and did a TV series based on Canadian as a country of national Canada as a country of national accountants or of uh, chartered accountants. We were cautious and then just keeping the books for the American Empire, whereas McLuhan was more dynamic. So he was a more appropriate image for the 60s. So, yes, the charter counts. And it was so much more fun. McLuhan was so fun. I love that Well, the 60s were more fun for people than the 70s. You get the oil crisis, you get inflation, you get stagflation, you get worry, no jobs. That's the abundance of the 60s was different. Yeah. Now, there was still, there's always, and then again, this linear projection of 670s is not relevant because all times and all places are happening simultaneously in the, in the global theater. So there's always was elements of the 60s and 50s in the 70s and 80s and elements of the 80s and the 60s before we got to the 80s. <laughs> and that, that's, 50, that's uh, Finnegan's Wake. And that was McLuhan's main point. He lived, that was, what, that was the maelstrom he lived in. He knew that all times and spaces were happening simultaneously right there externally in the global theater. Is that like uh, the, the word present, like pre-sent? Yeah, that's a good point. He talked about us being sent. When you, when you uh, get on the phone, you are sent on the phone to the other place, and they're sent to you. So you're already sent. He would, you know, when a kid is born, a baby is born, and it's plopped in front of the TV set, they are sent immediately. So there's a lot of pre-sentness going on before they get to school. And then, and now, I mean, if you were to, you know, now, um, new order. Well, what, you know what he said about TV and the global theater? He said it enhanced the nowness of now. <laughs> well, new order world. New ordered world. Yeah. Now. And, yeah. and, and that comes back to what you're, you know, objects aren't observable. The relationships between objects, objects are observable. So that's kind of like painting the invisible. But if now is a new ordered world, every time you're conscious of the idea of now, that's kind of somewhat interesting. But well, the now it, each new ordered world would be gone within a few hours. Yeah. Well, I'm saying even if being you, replaced, isn't everything that we see with our eyes? So you know what Marshall said in Take there? Today? He said because of that speed up of the new organized world in Take Today, he says new becomes old and old becomes new. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why you need to have comprehensive overview or you'll never survive. You will now take, you won't now get take, up. Wait, wait a minute. I caught you here. You said the word overview. In Explorations in the 50s, he said Western man likes the bird's overview because the eye looks down detached. Having the overview and seeing figure ground is a visually biased position. So you should be in shock now because you've been working to get an overview and all the time you've just learned is a visually biased endeavor. You haven't even got to square one how to deal with the maelstrom. But everything old, new is old. Um, <laughs> you know, no, I, I, no, but I, you're I, getting that. The, the literate person, you'll see business meetings you know, all through the decades. We've got to get an overview here. They're screaming to get the visual perspective of the bird's eye view, and you can't have that in a global theater. In no, a yeah, no. Environment. That, that's what, uh, that term is in my head because of um, the um, talk about Bucky Fuller and McLuhan and how they would, you know, one – just comprehensive overview was kind of like just like I'm I'm putting yeah comprehensive on it. awareness not comprehensive yeah, overview yeah. now maybe I said overview or Andrew did but if I said it I'd spank myself because I make very sure what I say and if he had said overview I'd spank myself for, for not correcting him <laughs> because I work with a very limited vocabulary and oh, yeah. that's 
Hey, yeah, I'm well, watching your too many words, and I'll nail you on a couple of words to fit it into this little grid known as McLuhanism. It, but it's useful. It's minimalism. McLuhan was a minimalist artist in the 60s. It was a different kind of artist in the 50s. Whatever art movement was happening, he was included. He provided a little module, he writes in Cliché Archetype, a little verbal module for safety in this uh, global chaos. It's That's yeah. minimal. Because he could put words to it. He could put... He could two words to it. A definition, huh? Two, he only put two words to it. He said, James Joyce created a whole universe out of two words. It's the principle of using two words. What are the two words? Visual space, acoustic space, figure ground, east, west. He would take any situation, eye, and bring in the ear. If it's an ear culture, bring in the eye. He turned everything into a, you know, into a dialectic. And that was the model. That was your power of ten movie. Once you got that, once you understood figure ground... Then he'd say, now you're a visual biased person, or you're an acoustic person, and you don't know what figure ground is today. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> well, you're, exactly. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I thought of a way it is. If, I, I thought of it. People would read McClellan's books, and those books were really a, 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 a kit to get ready for when you traveled to Toronto and went to the Monday Night Seminar or interacted with McClellan personally, you had to have read his books to see the Power 10 movie that you weren't prepared. But you had to prepare that way so McClellan could erase it. Yeah, yeah. And, and ultimately that goes in with the survival aspect. No, no, because, Richard, no Sue yeah. laughing. Sue's been laughing for 40 years at this stuff, so enjoy her, her laughter. But she's laughing and learning, right? So note that, Richard. Well, I, I'm noting everything. You're not laughing enough, Richard. I'm, well, okay, I'll tell, I'll, tell you guys, I'll, I'll tell you guys something. I mean, we're obviously we're on the air and this and that. I'm actually at work. Using my work, <laughs> you call that work, buddy. <laughs> using my work's phone because I can do two things at once, and 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 I just. Well, I, what I what is your work? Give us a little of the actual environment you're in. Well, I've worked here long enough so that I could actually pull this off. But what is the work? What is the work? What is the work you have to do? It's um, moving content from one container to another. <laughs> Well, that's digital. That's what everybody's doing. Well, physically. I'm, um, I'll, I'll just put it at... Oh, you're physically like a garbage man, moving things around. More or less. It's a logistics company, and um, they are large, and they've been around for a long time, and a lot of people, if someone does something wrong, they'll say that person's a fuck-up. I've given yeah. you a hint, and it's plural on the suffix. Right. And the, the point is that we've never had a... And McLuhan never had a Monday night seminar with people phoning in from work and participating. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I know that you've got to be careful not to be caught. Well, I, I, I'm just saying, if basically I thought of that though, and and what's the bottom line? The bottom line is if they have, if they ask, I'll say like I had an important uh, meeting that I had to call into, and um, when you were going to ask me about it, I was going to ask you how much it cost for incurring it, and I would give you that money and right. ask you if it was a problem if I did it again. <laughs> Good. So you're covered. You're ready. So, so we have, Sue, you're talking to someone who's learning and can't laugh as much because he's under duress in a way. Well, but I've worked, I worked to get to this point where I could actually call, <laughs> call you guys and listen. And, and, well, that's and good. You, you, you actually you, you actually arrived. Let me just say this to whoever yeah. said that. You've arrived and it's going to be a race that you learned from my essays. 
Good. I mean, it'll just con- it'll just con- condense it into one smaller thing, so there's less weight when I'm in the maelstrom. Yeah, you're right. That's it. So, what about Matthew? Unless you were saying something, Sue. Uh, it reminds me of uh, a guy I knew who ran for student president at Dalhousie University, and his platform was he was going to move piles of dirt from one side of the university and place them on the other side of the university. (laughs) (laughs) That was his platform. That was his platform, and he got in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was was the John Stewart reality for the baby boomers. You know, this is a long time ago, right, Sue, I assume? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so back then they'd put on leadership. Mm-hmm. They knew it was all stupid being student college president. Animal the stupider, house. Yeah. The more animal house you were, you'd get in. Yeah. <laughs> now the kids just watch John Stewart to look at the animal house of the TV landscape. And that's all from The Onion. And The Onion and this guy, you've got to hear this guy. I've got to link you to this guy, Chris Morris, this guy from the, um, the BBC. His last movie was about these bumbling terrorists called Four Lions. But before that, he did these, like, he totally inspired the daily show to take the approach that it has but in the early 90s in um in in london uh very very oh, funny a, show and he did a tv show he did a oh show, yeah yeah said. i'll uh i'll, yeah, I'll send the links either to one of the three places i don't know one of them i'll, I'll do it to the McLuhan the McLuhan blog spot spot one right good now we got matthew rose now matthew you called in an ion you, you've called in and you're relating things to images what image you got you're, you're trying to relate what we're doing to now, and we'll show you how that image is not appropriate. But what do you say? What are you thinking? What do you contribute? Well, I, well everything includes uh, it relates to everything. So you talk pretty <laughs> quickly, so I get a lot of thoughts, and I can't really, you know, I'm not really an expert on McLuhan, so it's hard to... Uh, okay, let me uh, tell you something based on what you just said, that, McLuhan, that everything relates to everything. McLuhan wrote books to break up that relationship. He took visual space, it was a futile gesture and done in jest, but he took, he said, what's the role of the book? The book is to break up the global interdependence, to bring back the value of visual space and fragment this fact that everything connects to everything. And he would say, uh, tribal people think everything's connected to everything. So he would say that to say, you TV people think everything's connected to everything and you're getting lost in the tactile mess and don't know how to get detached. And the way to get detached is look at a book like Phoenix Wake, which will fragment you out of that. So there's a little rant that comes just from those few words. Right. So you have the dialectic and then you just start saying that everything you say is wrong. (laughs) Okay, you're you're mumbly. It's hard to make out. Try to talk. Away from the mic or something. Like, I'm not getting your words. I've got to get every word to know what you're saying. So what? say that again. Uh, I was saying, well, then you add the dialectic where instead of saying, wow, this makes me think of everything, you just start to say these people don't know what they're talking about. And you... No, I wouldn't say that. They do know what they're talking about. It's just that their terms are referring to too small of a scape, and they don't recognize the landscape they're in. I don't see anybody as stupid. They're just not paying attention to all the dimensions that they're involved in. And most people don't want to know all the dimensions they're involved in. So can you actually achieve a level where you are fully conscious of what other people are aware of? Well, if you listen to our conscious mediumship thing, which Sue just listened to, we are absolutely unprecedented how we handle the word consciousness, wouldn't you say, Sue? And we complexify it way beyond what anybody's ever said. 
where we even have the Android meme trying to get consciousness and may or may not get it. Do you remember that, Sue? I just remember how focused you guys were. Focus, focus, focus. So on our words. On your words and what your the flow is wonderful. The words are incredible. I I just I was delighted. Right. So I'm saying, Matthew, you say well, the goal is to get conscious. We don't even know what consciousness is anymore. Ion's given up. He says there is no consciousness. But so to become <laughs> conscious or to get overview, you got to look at the cultural meanings and limitations of that. Work your way through that and then see what you're left with. Then work your way with through what you're left with. And I don't know where you get. And it, it looks like you don't need to be conscious. McLuhan wrote in Take Today in the early 70s, prophetic awareness, visionary awareness, and ESP are all obsolete. Now, that is, that'll put a lot of the industry out of business if everybody took that seriously. What did you say again? Prophetic, visionary, and... Prophet, prophetic awareness or prophecy, visionary experience or visionary enlightenment, all those glorified terms, ESP, any of them, all obsolete under global theater conditions. In other words, your senses and the ideal versions of using your senses are obsolete because you don't know that the television and these extensions are your senses. So you just monitor what they're doing. That's how, we're all inside our brains looking at our eyeballs and earballs, and they're called television, automobiles, and computers. Right, but you say obsolete, but if you just want to use them to explore them or probe them, then it doesn't matter if they're obsolete. Right, McLuhan said obsolescence is obsolete itself. <laughs> right. That's the last line of take today. Well, it's like when something becomes obsolesce, then it becomes a stepping stone for the new technology that just made it obsolete. Like to get a, uh, not to a, get a contrast. Stone. No, not a, con- a stepping, not a stepping stone. What is obsolesce is whatever he starts doing, like the joke McLuhan told. The, the uh, Jesus shows up in the Irish bar, the and the bartender notices it, and he calls VAT 69, which is a curious number that... McLuhan said was the number to the Pope. He called the Vatican and gets the Pope on the line. He says, uh, Sir, or Pope, or Pope, or whatever they call him, uh, Jesus is standing in the doorway of my bar. What should I do? And there's a long pause. And then, then he hears, Look a busy! Look a busy! Okay, I have that as an illustration that I wrote um, at my work in the room next door. Which in and of itself kind of suggests, okay, so you're aware Jesus is back, so he's bringing back an old technology, and the Pope... No, 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 is, Jesus is a new technology. But according to the Pope, busy, though, no, according to the advice of the Pope, though... Let me give you the exact answer, then we interpret what you say. Okay, okay. The, the answer is that obsolescent, if it's obsolete, it works. That means everybody gets involved in the previous activity when it's superseded by the new environment. So McLuhan said handwriting was obsolesced by the, the manuscript handwriting was obsolesced by the printing press, but there's more handwriting than ever was in the 20th century, okay, you know, yeah. in the 1950s. So that means you get busy doing the old stuff faster and more frantic and more people doing it and it becomes a cliche activity as you are surrounded by a new invisible fucking technology that's making you paranoid. The rear view <laughs> image. It's a, you use the rear view mirror in, in panic haste. Right, and what I was sort of getting at was that um, he calls the the bartender calls the pope, and and the the pope is kind of obviously obsolete. So the pope distributes 
obsolete uh, information because yeah. the only thing the Pope's been doing was uh, faking that they're, that they're doing something. <laughs> yeah, he, he, was, he was the first guy who knew how to look a busy and get paid for it, you know, and yeah. look spiritual about it. Exactly, just basically hold a box and move your head left and right when the management comes by. And it, right. so that, that's kind of misunderstanding the role of Jesus uh, as being a do manager. You, right. Do you know that the content of radio is not speech? What is it? It's the silence of the interaction of simultaneous discarnatehood. So therefore, you've got a lot of talk and music yeah. on radio because that's the obsolete technology. But it's the actual silence of being in touch everywhere, live radio. You're in everybody's room and they're in the same space. That silent zone, like at the end of 2001 Space Odyssey, if you want to project it on the guy in the capsule and the fetus, that silent zone is the real content of radio. Okay, okay, so that's the hard thing that people have to visualize their voice. Yeah, they, how the hell are they going to do that? So what is the real content of Twittering when everybody starts typing about themselves and what they're doing, making their life a diary? If that's the rearview mirror, what is the actual environment and the actual content of? Well, this kind of relates back to the um, objects that are only observable when you have the yeah. two items. You know, you, the one, one aspect is you observing and the other aspect is that which is observed, which goes into the subatomic particle level where it's like apparently subatomic particles are influenced based on who's observing them. That no, and it's like snowflakes, no one are the same. So well, maybe it's simpler than that. It's the relationship, if objects are unobservable, you can't see the, the obsolete medium and you can't see the new medium. So only the relationships between objects are observable. The relationships between the new and the old is the only thing observable. And McLuhan said you have to study the old, which was the actual definition of medium. Medium was not the new technology. The medium was the relationships you noticed affecting the old. Can you repeat that the medium was uh, how the, the medium, was affecting the old? The, people think when he said the medium is the message yeah. that a new technology, like what's a new technology, iPhone. Sure. They thought he was saying that the iPhone was the message and iPhone was the content of the word medium. What is the medium, the iPhone? No. The medium was all the previous technologies that the iPhone was affecting. And you couldn't see what the iPhone was unless you watch the medium, the old environment, and how it was forced to change and look a busy. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, that makes that me... So, again, recycling, repurposing, yeah. puns. Oscillate, well, a pun oscillating between the future object, the invisible iPhone, and what it really is and what its effects, and oscillating between that and what you can see, the old busyness. Like we see a lot of Twittering, a lot of people broadcasting themselves. What is that? That's the old. Yeah. Why it's making them think that, that they, what's making them do that to balance off the other part of the relationship, which is the new environment you can't see? Right. And, and unfortunately, people's grasp of what they bother to phatically communicate is so <laughs> um, ill-informed that a lot of it comes across as, uh, well, it's like, you know, the drugs, it's not, it's not the drug's fault that they're illegal. You know what right. I mean? no, okay, hold it. Now, this point, um, th this is the communication ecology that Barry Neville was writing about, and he got it from McLuhan. There is a natural ecology, and this is the, quote, poetic spiritual vision of McLuhan. Because people lived rearview mirror, when, when a new environment came in, they went around tidying up the old environment and getting hyper busy. <laughs> like a lot of handwriting when, when handwriting is obsolete. That very rearview mirror 
of rearview mirror activity that everybody got involved in meant that nobody knows what you could really do with radio or the iPhone. And if you really knew what you could do with it, you could destroy people even more. So McClune saw it was ecological and natural that people always ran around living the past in a hyper mode as it was getting obsolete. And that balanced off the implementation of the implications of the new. So wow. media ecology was naturally implied in the human condition. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're... <laughs> What's that? You know, like we all are. I'm composed. on a roll here. I would have to say. No, I'm saying like it. It, uh, well, it, it reminds me of that 2003 talk in Toronto where you're like uh, the Android meme arguing amongst its parts. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. Mean, yeah. that, you know, like that. Try visualizing that. That's basically conscious uh, objects having consciousness. But I mean, well, that's you not know, that crazy. Yeah. No. What you just retrieving there? That's November 24th, 2003. Guess yeah. who introduced me in the coaches? My only time I ever spoke with the coaches. Guess who introduced me? Michael Edmonds, our guest tonight. It's just how it is all the time, forever. Yes. That's the perfect. It's like Alexander Pope, one of McLuhan's favorite Manipian satirist poems, ends, uh, I think it's called The Essay in Man or What is Man, That one of these major poems they forced on you in uh, high school. It ends with, whatever is, is right. Now, that could be satirical, but it also could be profoundly poetic or ecological and so McLuhan meant both levels whatever is is right is a, is obsolete but it actually creates a balance that that's you know like that's amazing like uh, now yeah, you know that's, an amazing, that's never been said there. before in McLuhan land what I've just laid out has never been said before among McLuhanites no well, I'm saying it's like what Gerald O'Grady was complaining about it's like me Sue Matthew you it's like we're all good upstanding people but you'd think there'd be more than four people on a monday in the world capable of doing this but right well let me just i have an issue with gerald o'grady he's okay. running for me he says in that interview that he had to come forward because nobody uh is doing the McLuhan. I oh well this, come on Bob. Listen, <laughs> no, no 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 listen i've had this debate with him since i met him on march 28 1998 at Lincoln Center, or the place below the Lincoln Center where the second half of the Fordham uh, McClune Conference was. We met after. I actually went up and uh, I enjoyed his speech, but he was only given three minutes because time had run out. And so he made one sentence. He said, none of you people know what's going on about McLuhan. You're claiming he's influenced by this and that, and none of it's true. I've just spent two years in the archives up in Ottawa, and I can tell you he wasn't influenced by anybody. And so he just got to say that, and then they kicked him off, and then they put Zingroni on for 10 minutes. That was the end of the conference. So I knew O'Grady was someone significant. I had never heard of him before, I don't think. So I made a point to go uh, meet him during the schmooze after in the evening, the Saturday night. Yeah. And I go up to eventually to see, there he is, I go up introduce myself. I start talking. Liz Jeffries comes running over and makes sure that that ain't going to happen. I don't know what she thought O'Grady was, but she wasn't going to let Bob talk to O'Grady. And she had no influence, but she started interrupting us and making noises so that I knew I couldn't get what I wanted to talk to O'Grady with done, so I just walked away. So then I dropped the issue and said, well, I don't know if I'll ever get to talk to him. The thing ends, and I'm one of the last people walking out. And there's Gerald O'Grady, the other last person walking out. And we stand there like 1030 at night in this downtown mid-New York, Manhattan, and we start talking, one archivist to another. I said, what you said is important, and that proves that you have done the archives. Now, I organized some of the archives, I told them, and I'm one of the few people who's read a, lo oh, a lot of McLuhan. I can tell you have. Now, what do you have to say about this situation? We're now meeting each other, one of the few people in the world who actually know what McLuhan's talking about. 
And he said, his first thing was, well, I'm pissed off at Eric. I fucking want to see the library, Marshall's private library, and Eric, just like Stephen Joyce of the Joyce Estate, won't let scholars, you know, they hassle, the Joyce people hassle, uh, Stephen Joyce hassles the Joyce scholars, and Stephen Joyce has aligned with Eric over a few years ago because Eric will not let scholars see Marshall's private library. And I got a bit of an exclusive for you at the end of this story. Uh, and so Gerald, who I didn't hear then but found out a few months ago when I talked to him again, that he actually knew Marshall in the 60s, visited the Witchwood Park home, and saw the library, and knew how Marshall did index cards and annotated. He says, I want to go and look that, look at that library and do a proper scholarship inventory of it. Well, Eric would never let him do it. So he's complained to me in 98, the problems of the deep McLuhan scholar. And I told him, well, I actually got the Finnegan's Wake books. Uh, they were given to me by Mrs. McLuhan for a weekend, and I Xeroxed them. So I got the most valuable stuff in his library and got a copy of it. But he didn't really want to know that immediately. He said he didn't, couldn't take it in, or he didn't, know, didn't say, let me see it. He just went on complaining. Yeah. So that was that. So he complained about the problems of getting the good stuff that he knew would be good, and so then I met him in 2003, 4, 5, and 6 at the annual McLuhan Lecture in New York that the Canadian Embassy Consulate would put on with some university, either Fordham, NYU, or uh, the other ones, the new school. So every year, Terry McLuhan would be there, and she'd be part of the McLuhan family being honored. And they had all kinds of famous people, including uh, Adam McGoyan, the guy who invented uh, the mouse and, and Jerry Brown and Tom Wolfe and uh, Camille Pagley. Every year they'd have somebody. Yeah, you mentioned every the year. guy who invented the mouse like last week. You mentioned that guy. Yeah, Alan somebody. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's, that's Douglas Stutz. Douglas this something, is, yeah. Yeah, not that guy. It's always confused. There's this other guy, Alan Gray or somebody. He did something around that time similar to that, but there's two okay, of them. So you, so it's like 2005, and you've seen him in three and four and five. And this, yeah, is see, every year I see Gerald. As a matter of fact, he must have said it in 98. He had an article by Nam June Paik, written in the mid-60s, about Norbert Wiener and McLuhan. He's the only one who wrote about a relationship between McLuhan and Norbert Wiener, and that was very important. And I asked him to send it to me, and he never did. Then I bump into him a few years later. I ask him again, 2003, 2004, 2005, every fucking year... <laughs> I, I say hello to Terry McLuhan, walk over to Gerald O'Grady, who's always with Terry, they're good old friends, and I say, well, Gerald, I'm still waiting, so he'd go, yeah, I'm sorry, get my address, do it again, then we'd fatty commune about this and that, and, and uh, wouldn't go very far, he wasn't a very eager prober, he wasn't ready to talk about the real McLuhan that I was capable to give him, yeah. that he's now complaining he hasn't found, so anyways, uh, he fails every year, I moved to Hawaii, and last October or so, I get an email out of the blue from him saying he's going to make a big project at the uh, German Museum of Art in Karlsruhe with Peter Weibel, or Weibel, uh, who's a major figure in the art world over there. And he wanted to know uh, what I knew and this and that. And then he said, I, by the way, did send, either I wrote to him and wrote, no, I think he did, he knew what he'd owed me. He said, I did send that article finally to you. But it was returned because you'd moved. So he had sent it to the City Island address. So I said, wow, that's good. You know, okay. So I got on the phone. We had a two-hour talk. I found out a lot more about him. And uh, he wanted me to donate my archives to the, to the thing. And I said, well, you send me some stuff you owe me already. Owe me in terms of conversational owing. Yeah. So he did send me this stuff. Now, here's the, 
one side thing. It took two months for me to get the envelope, and the envelope was sent from Singapore, where he was, to Papua New Guinea, and then came to me. <laughs> now, I learned from him stuff about Ted Carpenter I didn't know. I was a friend, an acquaintance of Ted Carpenter, but O'Grady knew Carpenter better than me. And uh, so he filled me in on some things about Carpenter, updated me, which was uh, useful. But now I'm getting this package that goes to Papua New Guinea, which is the, made famous by Ted Carpenter because he was the first guy, white man, to go in there and study the effects of media. He gave them the media. He did a Michael Edmonds, you know, like who did in the library. He gave these people a camera, these tribal people in, the, in New Guinea that had never seen white man for an unrecorded time. Yeah. And that was in the late 60s. His book is called Oh, What a Blow That Phantom Gave Me. It's a very good book applying McClune principles and his own principles to that. So Ted Carpenter is, an in, is part of Gerald O'Grady's life. So the envelope that O'Grady sent to me knew that we must acknowledge Ted. So the envelope went to Papua New Guinea, got stamped that was in Papua New Guinea, then arrived to me. Okay. So I call up, uh, we get back on the, on the phone or something, and I was able to tell, and no, I just emailed him. I told him this situation. So that's I like said, old wow, Android <laughs> What? That's like old Android meme. That's right. I, I, I said the spirit of Ted Kennedy was with us. You know, snail, and mail. He made snail, snail meme, sorry. Yeah, snail mail, but it touched on the, the, the shrine of Papua New Guinea. So I, I tell Kennedy? him this. What, Sue? Did you say Ted Kennedy? Oh, I meant Carpenter. Yeah, I probably said Kennedy. <laughs> now we're going into Finneganese. Uh, I mean, Marshall is Jack Kennedy. He's the golden boy, and Ted never got the credit. He's Ted Kennedy. It works. <laughs> Of course it does. <laughs> yeah, so here's, here's the thing. So I write and tell Grady about this uh, spiritual root of the letter of his stuff. And he sent me the stuff he finally was supposed to give me 10 years before and a bunch of other stuff I really appreciated. He gave me some articles on uh, his relationship with uh, the Dia Foundation, the um, Dominique Demonio. Really good history of that and filled in a lot of questions I had. I really appreciate it. And then about a month later, I get another envelope from him and it's gone through Papua New Guinea. I open it, and it's basically the same stuff he sent me. He misinterpreted my first email, and he thought it didn't get to me. So he sent it again, and it went through Papua New Guinea also. Wow. <laughs> and I told him that, and he never responded. So <laughs> he either can't take it or whatever. So then I hear his interview with, uh, with Richard here. And he's saying that I came forth because nobody gets McLuhan. Well, screw you. I'm doing it, and I've been doing it, and anybody who gets into me like Bippo knows it. And O'Grady, you should be here, and we should be dialoguing, but what we know is fellow archivists. Oh, no, that's going to happen. He is going to, between now and when this thing's over, that will happen. I will send you, a, I'll upload the whole interview, because the National Film Board put out that movie in 2003, so those, that interview took place probably in 2002 or something like that. You and met O'Grady in 2002? I never met O'Grady. That's oh, not, you, did, you didn't do the interview? No, no. The interview is uh, on the DVD extras. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who, okay. Oh, O'Grady is in... I forgot. He's in that uh, DVD is what you're saying. Well, yeah. Like, the DVD's got these great, like, hour and a half... I know. Yeah, I, I, I have it. I've seen it. I yeah. forgot O'Grady was in it. I forgot that. And so what you, you edited what he said in his por portion. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to just, you know, show a bit of something. And, and the whole reason why I was inspired to do it was because uh, someone uploaded a VHS. They, they ripped a VHS to, uh, 
you know, become an AVI file. They uploaded it to this site, and there was this like uh, MTV show called Celebrity Deathmatch, where they have these stop motion characters of celebrities, and they did a retro one where it had like Dean Martin and um, Sammy Davis Jr. and um, Sammy Davis Jr.'s glass eye fell out. And in the video, I put that in because Gerald O'Grady talks about a joke that McLuhan says that involved the glass eye being an onion and explaining, you know, the differences in right. vi visual bias between literature and, and, and you know, um, images. Well, what I looked at, it's about five minutes. It's a, it's a graph, but yeah. there are images uh, embedded behind it, and I didn't look closely at them. You're saying that five-minute thing is what you're talking about. That you yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the interview yeah. that that's from is like an hour and a half. Like he mentioned okay. Buckminster Fuller, so I show a picture of Buckminster Fuller. Then some guy uh, named John right, McHale. Right, right. Some guy named John McHale and a Dunkin' Donuts, and then this clip, and that's that. Right, because when you've been emailing me at Five Bodies, I couldn't tell whether you were 22 or what. Um, and... Uh, and I thought you were too young to do that, but you could have done it. And so I couldn't tell whether you were Richard uh, Altman. But I noticed that when you posted on the, on the McClung list, you were saying snarky things like you do in Five Bodies or hip things or Bob reference things. Yeah. So I couldn't figure out who Richard Altman And someone asked me who Richard Altman was the other day, and I said it might be Bippo, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean the weird thing is like I know Monsquas. From this uh, website called Soulseek, which is basically just like uh, you know, it was like. Are you the, the guy that sent sent him to me? N well, no, because he knew about you before um, I uh, met him. He was taught. He got me back into you because I basically read the article in Paranoia, and then in around 2002 went on to like because you know this was between like Napster and because like between two, 99 and 2002 was like the golden age of like peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. So yes. this one and site called Audio YouTube. Galaxy, that, it was called Audio Galaxy, and then it became Rhapsody, and it still exists, and it's a legitimate site. But that was the only place that had the, um, the Positone album. Um, right, the right, producers right. for Bob. So I heard that, and I was like, you know, this is incredible, and I made a clip with it back then, like in 2001 or two. And then you met Monsquaz on those networks. Yeah, like I met him on like the this one thing that's still around that's been around since Napster called Soulseek. I haven't been on it in years, but like you know we we'd chat in the intelligent dance music room, and um, I said Monsquaz is your name from a Mr. Bungle song called Mishka Monsquaz, and he's like yeah. So we just started talking, and then he mentioned you, and he's talking chip bodies and this, and I'm like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and but like over I don't know, it's taken me let's say about I don't know five, six years to really get a handle on where, what you're saying. Like, I always instinctively knew what you were saying, but I knew that I had to formally, you know, horse, uh, horseless carriage comprehend yeah. what you were yeah. saying. And that's going back to what Matthew's talking about, where it's like everything is useful, obsolete or new, because they're all just filters. That's why, you know, like you were saying last week, some people like the feel of a newspaper. Yeah, that's, that's true. And they like the way the data washes over them like a shower, and some people are going to resonate. Hey, Bippo, I just got an insight. I just got an insight. We have entered the silent zone. That's what the post-information uh, society is, and the only voice in the silence is Ion, the voice of non-physical. Yeah. <laughs> we have, because nobody knows what to say to anybody. That's why emphatic thing, anybody can say anything, but the bankers don't know how to trust or have a a word of bond to even begin the economy again. 
Well, they need that silly, uh, they need some precedent that they're convinced, like that movie Inception, that is naturally organic. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they can think that, uh, it, it, you know. They can start again. They have a, a starting point. They want to yeah. start time again. Money is time. Yeah, you know, they, they can't. To, they can't. They need to be sold in the same We've way that they try to sell. This is a big breakthrough, Pitbull. You know, will there ever be silence in McLuhan? Obviously, unobservable and only race to Well, actually, we've arrived at silence as of 2009. And the right. voice of silence, the mystery landscape, showed up as a figure. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, what did you say uh, January you get 12th? get that suit? Are you getting that suit? <laughs> we're saying we don't know what we're saying to each other. Like, no, we're no, just... I, I, we, well, wait a minute. Well, we do, gone? but... Is our yeah. audience gone? I think I follow... Yeah, you're there, Matthew. Then you can. Yeah, I'm the only one who's really talking because I'm just. <laughs> That's true. He's the only one really communicating your pitbull. He, he's doing the silent treatment. But back to what you were saying. Okay, back. You, you. So you met Monsquaz. He turned you back onto me. You knew me before Monsquaz, but then Monsquaz was following me later, and you didn't know about that. Right. And then he got you back onto it. Yeah, and you're and. Um, and then, yeah, and then the Eben Ray show, and then I started doing, like, I just started making collages again, and I think it's because I got back more into McLuhan, and then, um, read a, Well, know, what, why are you into all this stuff? Uh, why were you reading Paranoia in 2000? Oh, just, you know, just to, uh, understand the environment, again, to well, survive. What, what, what is your, uh learning environment background did you go to university did you drop out did you get a job like what or is it just you were like this since you were 10 or you know what's uh, your yeah no i mean like um basically um i i dropped out of university after i guess two years and um started to work on like music kind of like what what um Eight bit, kind of like the same, like, yeah. you know, the, like you know, not same in the period, right place. the late nineties, yeah, 90s. basically the same, same sort of like you know, awareness, media awareness is eight bit, and wanting to go beyond, um, you know, music, you know, trying to like turn music video narrative structures into long form, and right. basically anticipating the internet, right? Like constantly yeah. communicating through video collage, just because I figured, you know, video absorbs audio and text uh, is absorbed, um, text is absorbed by audio and video absorbs audio and text and just kind of working with video on a collage level because it was everything it just seemed to me writing a script is too phatic and i just didn't care like yeah. what am i going to do give my point of view on 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 something i <laughs> inevitably it's inevitable right and yeah. so and then eventually uh in 1995 was the first time i saw desktop video editing and that i no longer had to use tape so desktop video editing surrounded the entire infrastructures of post-production houses at like $200 an hour and, you know, less resources than a major city. And that's why I went to Toronto and I figured I would just use obsolete stuff to finish what I was doing. I was working on a movie. I finished it. I showed it to the people who I did it with and they're like, yeah, it's better than the movie that we saw yesterday. So I was like, I don't need to go any further. So I came back to Winnipeg, worked on some more collages. And you realized, mean you didn't go any further because you got a compliment. Well, because I knew I could. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I, I knew it would go for the technical reasons of Canadian content and that this person would, you know, was ready to go on to an online edit. They were satisfied with the offline edit that I, that I made using their gear for free, yeah. um, but their obsolete gear, which still performed the same function. But, um, you know, so, and, and I just kind of felt alone in the future for a while. 
Because, you went uh, back to Winnipeg. Yeah, I came back. To, I came back to Winnipeg and just realized that there was no point in um, in doing more than what I was doing, which is basically again what 8-Bit was doing, providing visuals for parties and just keeping. Did on you know the, that? Yeah. Did you know that uh, Dark Matter and I formed the Winnipeg School of Media Ecology? Yeah, like, well, but but it's not online or something. <laughs> well, there's yeah, it's just a photograph, but um, he made a website for a second. And yeah, then it got good. hacked. It got hacked by the subgenius because I was mentioned. Yeah, so he just, he, he just took a picture of it because <laughs> it was rather than dealing with the hacking and the complaints that went to Wiki because of me, right? Right. But um, yeah, we the the six school. If you read my long essay on the five schools of media ecology, and then the six or hexatic is is Dobbstown. Well, Jim put the Canadian spin on, and he's from Winnipeg, and he he took classes under Croker in Winnipeg and McClellan's Winnipeg. So we. We have created this whole thing, Dobstown, Winnipeg thing, and so it turns out you are from that area and are representative of it and involved with me before we knew you were a Winnipegger. So uh, welcome aboard to the Winnipeg School of Media, Paramedia Ecology. Great to be involved. <laughs> <laughs> and, no. and, and, and Dark Matter is a, a big designer of the McLuhan and Maui website, and uh, he's making a lot of contributions. And so the, he just went back to Winnipeg a week or two ago and went to the library and got all the articles that McLuhan wrote for the University of Manitoba newspaper I noticed newspaper that he, in the 30s. He posted a Manitoban article. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. pretty cool. He but. got them all. And he wa- now you bring up, it's resonant with what you said an hour ago, that you know Winnipeg won't have any acknowledgement of McLuhan. Well, he went to the li- He was out there a month or two ago, went to go to the library, and it was closed on the weekend. He was shocked at that. Oh, well, that's, so, that's normal, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so he goes back. He had known in their online digital resources that they had the Manitoban or some, I'm not sure. He knew something or figured they had it. So he goes back a couple of weeks ago, and it's during the week, and he goes there, goes in there, and he talks to librarians, and they just put the articles up online like a week before, and they were shocked that anybody cared. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so he... He he was going to go Xerox them or whatever, get them. Now he didn't have to upline, but he made some kind of copy. So when he came back, he sent them to me. I don't know if he Xeroxed the hard copy or whatever, but he had the whole humorous thing. They were all excited that someone cared, and he yeah. was amazed that they didn't care up to that point or didn't know what they had. And so this all happened just the last two weeks, and then we are able to put them up eventually on our site. It's an exclusive. It's really interesting to read the young mind of McLuhan at that point. I want to just tell you one thing, and then I'm going to go, and it has directly something to do with what you just said. I was um, on my way, like in this, uh, it, within the last six months, a plan of mine has been to go to the Elizabeth Dayful Library at the U of M, because I went there last year to do this, and bring my MacBook and my scanner, and I was just going to go into their archive rooms and just start manually like, finding the stuff and scanning it and turning it into PDFs myself. Yeah. I would, that, and, that now, was and now you, you tell me that, and I don't have to do that now. <laughs> right. You but can I'm go still going to do it. You, yeah, you can go to their library and find it wherever it is in the digital thing and look at the articles. Get this yeah, no, I'm going to go there, and I want to just you know, put up stuff. Because like, I have the I have the. Hey, someone just put said up. something, Bippo. What? Who's okay. that? that? It's Sue. My cousin Chris is a librarian at the University of Manitoba Library, and she digitizes all the books. Yeah, i got to go. I'm going to listen to this. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and Sue, I'm going to hear what you have to say, because it doesn't surprise me that this is all working out. 
<laughs> I'll talk to you all later. It's okay. awesome. Ciao. Well, come on back, Richard. I mean, oh, he's gone, eh? <laughs> he had to go. Oh, that's right. He's at work. He has to run. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Um, what was he just saying before? He was saying that he was going to go and do the digital work and get the stuff. Now he knows it's up. Yeah. And, and then it turns out you, your cousin, did it. I'm going to have to email her and see if she was one of the ones that was excited. That yeah, that met uh, dark matter. Um, so the thing is, you're going to you call up and say, "Do you realize what you guys have done?" <laughs> Make huge significance out of it. Yeah. Oh gosh, I got to go too, Bob. Well, and then that was just me leaving Matthew, me and Matthew, and Matthew's into silence, so it's probably going to be not much more than this. <laughs> Bye, Matthew. Bye, Bob. <laughs> hey, thanks for hanging out, Sue. We'll see you next time. It was fun, Bob. Yeah, that was great that Bipple showed up. Thanks, yeah. Okay. okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So, Matthew, anything you want to say? Is there anybody else here besides Matthew? I've been here the whole time, Bob. Uh-oh, Carol. Now, Carol has a lot to say if you fucking let her. So you, you can start talking, Carol. I'm taking a break. No, that's okay. I'm, I, I've been uh, trying to get off the phone, but it's interesting, so I didn't want to... Uh, to well, you've it. heard Matthew on... Um, you know, he's the guy who's always looking at whether he's descended from Jesus. You, you right, know, you, right. that's That's who the other guy is here. Right. So... Talk to him about Ion a bit, if you want to, or on anything on that level. Oh, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to crash. I mean, you know, um, it's funny, but uh, last week, everything that you talked about, um, I wasn't on the call last week, but everything that you talked about was um, stuff that I knew about. I actually lived across the street from that um, Sufi. Uh, wow, that's Mercer. good. we we got to talk. we got to get that on record next week or some point. Yeah, it across really from 8-Bits. Right, right, right. It was. What right was the address? What was the address? It was on Mercer Street. I lived at like 168 Mercer, and it was right next door to where Shafrazi's gallery was at the time. Right, right. Right on Mercer Street. And I used to watch like at night, like, you know, when they were in there, like the lights would, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they would, they, it was like a, a garage door, and it was like a milk glass, like you couldn't see through it, but you could see if there was light on or not. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when they were in there and they were having these ceremonies or whatever the hell they were doing, you could <laughs> see the light. Wow. So, it would be so like, uh, now, yeah. is Sir, yeah. Sir related to the guy? To, to the no, I don't Heinrich? So. I mean, no, I don't think so. I think it was just that it, he took the space, that temple or whatever you want to call it, was right, right next door to his. Space. I mean, it's no. He's no longer there. It all moved to Chelsea, and I think it, now it's like a Mark Jacobs store or something. But this was like back in the '80s when Keith Haring was with Shafrazi and stuff like that. Yeah. But, right. Um, so you did you know that that was Dia related activities? I think so. I mean, I remember. I don't know if I knew exactly that it was Dia, but I knew that it was some temple Sufi temple thing related to the art scene. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, I, I, I probably did know it was Dia, but di- didn't fully grasp, because I was pretty, that was like the first year or two that I lived in New York, and I lived right across the street from... That's before that you started working for the billionaire. Right, that's right before I started working for the billionaire. <laughs> the billionaire. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, but so, Carol, you were saying you listened to the audio after the event last week. Yes, I did. And, and, um, and there was all these points. Yeah, this is good to get this. I mean, this is, this is the thing. Look, Matthew, this is the synchronicity I get all the time, or synchronicity. We had Sue knew Chris in the library in Manitoba. Now we have uh, Carol supplementing 8-bits information. Right. Well, what also, what's know, some I other things that you picked up? Uh, because I was, I know Lamont Young, and I had a girlfriend who was a very, um, you know, prominent uh, video artist at the time in the 80s. What's and her name? She, her name was Deborah Von Moser. She's no longer alive, but she did, she knew Nam June pretty well, and she did the video for Brian Eno's show at the Modern. Right. Well, I remember he, that. He, yeah, he had some some show early in the 80s at the Modern, and she did the video for that. And she also tuned Lamont Young's piano, and he was hired by Dia, right? And he had some huge loft or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was doing all this composing and stuff, and it was all, Dia was paying him. And she was working for him. She would go over there and I think she's not tuned, she didn't tune the piano. She did something like make sure that the water was at a certain level so that the humidity in the air, I mean, like some bizarre, you know, like thing right. or whatever. And I've met, actually met Lamont Young through my friends that do the microtonal music because Johnny Reinhardt has used Lamont Young to do certain pieces. You know, right. So his stuff is amazing. I mean, well, we mentioned that in passing, but Gerd Stern told me more details about it um, privately around a few weeks ago, and I think we just make passing reference to what Gerd told me. There weren't too many details discussed in the Gerd George Thompson thing about Lamont Young. We just mentioned in passing, right? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah this, the details of it, Gerd was involved in. So you're supplementing what Gerd said. Right. Uh, for me, you know that that's 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 good. And what else did you? Uh, relate to. Uh, okay, and then you were talking about the doggone people, right? And yeah, I, yeah. All right, wait, and I read that book, The Serious Mystery, by um, Robert Temple, I think. Yeah, I think his yeah. Name is. And he had a whole huge section in that book on the Dogon, or however you say their name. And I would say that the reason why McLuhan was probably so fascinated with them is of what they did with language. Yes, the right? weaving. Somebody that was the point that. that he had. Right. Yeah. Right. Somebody touched on that. Like, it took a while um, through when I was listening to the archives because, you know, when you first got into the doggone, I was like, oh, man, you know, I read those books, blah, 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 blah. And they, you know, they had a lot of information on the um, – Serious um, uh, system, star system, and all this information that they had in their culture and in their language for a very long time that, like, modern scientists had only figured out in the 30s, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And these people had it in their in their pictor their pictograms and their their worship and all that kind of stuff. Although I don't I don't know if that's what McLuhan was into. I think it was the the way that they use language. He was in, he what I recall one thing that he, you know that he wrote about was that he thought it was interesting that language was described by the word what we mean weaving. 
that the language is weaving and we weave the android meme you know it's all objects and media right. are words our language we're weaving and the clothing metaphor is really big in uh, in fitting its wake right language is clothing and it, and then talking to some ionettes at a meeting uh, the rewrite group uh, yesterday or something and this came up uh Ginny mentioned we were talking about the D, the double helix and all that, and she said, think of the braiding that people do with their hair. You know, you right. get levels of braiding. She says, that's, right. what, that's what we're looking at when we're looking at the uh, DNA and the spirals of the helix. And I immediately thought, oh, yeah, weaving and language. Right. The we, I, I added the, the braiding aspect from Ginny to the doggone's weaving thing. So it became right. a richer image of how language is the braiding and the the android meme, especially the interconnectedness of all the media objects, is braiding, which is the the way the the, the double helix is. It's right. Just, it, 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 right. Yeah. You know those. Um. You remember? Uh. I've talked a little bit about those Bailey books with you. Um, well, I guess. Let me just say. This. I think what I was I was struck that McLuhan saying language is weaving, weaving is braiding, braiding is the 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 DNA structure. Back to language. So language, the the process of language is mined by the images we have of the present genome stuff. You know, this this is the the mirror. So in Crick and Watson, in '53, discover the genetic code. He gets the the mimic code in '53. McLuhan does. So and yet language is weaving, is braiding, is the DNA, is language, is media. No, well, so it's not only interconnected, it's overlaid. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, that, but that was a really big thing with the doggone people is that they um, they used a lot of puns and double um, meanings in words. And, you know what I mean? like. But they may not have meant it as puns. They meant it. It was not a joke. Um, yeah, I can't remember. The Western, see, the anthropologist thinks it's a joke because he'll hear it, hear the pun. And, but that's a good question to go in whether it is what I'm saying or not. Because McLuhan, uh, Carp- and one of Carpenter's, listen to this, Carol, one of Carpenter's books, he has a picture of the rabbit and the grandmother, that optical Trump leel that flips back and forth. You, you take any of those things, you know, the shape on the wall, and it can be a grandmother's head or yes, a yes, penis yes, yes, or yes, something. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Visual puns are called, I guess, or Trump uh-huh. leels. McLuhan said the Westerner flips it back and forth. You see one, and then you see the other. He says tribal people, pre people, see them both at the same time. They don't see the flipping. Hmm. And so that's if they, if that's true, then they see both levels at the same time. And we think they're saying opposites, but they're not. They just know that both aspects are happening. They can they experience the ecology of everything creating its balance uh, or duality naturally. That might be true. Yeah. So what were you going to say next? Oh, I, don't, I don't even remember. I was just, uh, you know, um, I, I just thought it was interesting last Anything week. Anything you want to ask Matthew? What do you say, Matthew? Let me see. Is he even there? Is Matthew gone? He might be. It might just be you and me, Bob. 
Yeah. Okay, so, so Carol, the thing is is that you had synchronicity with the last week. I'm glad you weren't there. You would have been interrupting and flying off on the details of every story. Yeah. <laughs> I know, because it was like everything that you talked about with, um, what was this name, Fuzz? You were, you were, it was part of your biography. Right. I was just like, oh, wait a minute. I was there. I lived the street. <laughs> you I saw the, di- you actually uh, could have, I'm glad we're getting this on tape. The, this is the addendum to the Dia story, to the Lamont Young story, the Dogon story. Any others? No, I can't think of any others. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm just like, uh. Hey, you yeah, still where you were? Um. What do you mean? Am I still where I am? You mean in the no? You still where you were six months ago? Am I still where I were? I don't know what that means. Yeah, physically, where are you living? Oh yes, back and forth. I'm back and forth between here and New York all the time. You have a bit of a release. You can leave your yeah. non-New York place uh, right, to go right, to New York right. and get right. a little flexibility. What was right. it you were supposed to check out then? You're supposed to go to Depot Street and look for the sign. Oh right. Well, didn't we decide that um, we we did discuss that with I yes you were talking about that too with you need to go down there and see if you can get any just have the experience of trying to find it and take pictures or something uh it's uh with some interesting things happen to someone else doing it you got to go experience it yeah you were saying that about uh you know um what's your name pam or something yeah pam did it yes i mean uh and then i remembered after you told me that story that i did probably try to access it from underground or I saw it from underground more than um above ground but right. yeah that was that was quite interesting but I I'm going to be spending the next couple of weeks there so I will be um in the city quite a bit yeah right around Trinity place. Church just off from right. Trinity Church right. and into the right. big hole where they're building uh, the the twin tower thing or whatever they're doing there I think that's the big construction site so it's in between yeah, Trinity Church and the con- right. walk okay. around there. So um, what do you think of, uh, well, we should end. Uh, I don't want to get too much of the ion stuff right, on this right. McLuhan scene. But, um, right, right, right. Call in on uh, Wednesday. A call in on Wednesday. Yeah, if I'm <laughs> around and I have something to um, uh, talk about, I certainly will. I'll call in and say hello. Yeah, maybe you, I mean, I assume you have something you in backlog to, to mention. Right, right, right. There should be something, right. Okay. I'll All right, so I got to press star nine to stop the recording. Okay. So, uh, thanks. You've been here the whole night. Yeah, I just, I, well, most of it. I think I called in around eight because my mother usually has dinner around seven, so... After you missed dinner, the first hour, yeah. Right, I missed the first hour, but I just, uh, it was, uh, it's interesting, it's great, you know, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i old enough to um, appreciate a lot of the things that you talk about, and, you know, it, it, some of these uh, kids, I think, are probably really young, and they weren't there, and they didn't know, and so it's kind of interesting like that. Yeah, like some of the younger kids, they really appreciate these stories, and and uh, right. because they, it's the part, it's the world they didn't know. It was too right. close to them, you know, and right. so they dismissed it. But now they're right. more interested as they get older. They want to know where what was happening just before themselves. Right, right, right. And so, what do you I, make of this McLuhan character? Oh, I, 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 you know, I mean, you have to understand that people that I was friends with were talking about this guy for years, and really, when I think about it, they probably had classes of, of him 
at the high school that I went to. I told you about the right. high school I went to. Right, right, yeah. They were like studying, you know, they were like building geodesic domes in the backyard. Yeah. You know, fuck Mr. Fuller and stuff. And, yeah. um, you know, probably if I just, you know, it was one of those things where it could have been happening right, like, in the next room, and I just, for whatever reason, missed that. You know what I mean? Like, Well, it was probably good, because then you would have got a distorted, incomplete image of badly presented McClone, and then you wouldn't have been interested. Possibly, now you're finding out about the real thing. Possibly, although they were pretty... Um, that was a pretty interesting group. That was like a, um, a very one-of-a-kind group of teachers and students, you know what I mean? Like, we were doing, like, that experimental thing in the 70s that, like, you wouldn't see happening now at all. Do you know right. what I mean? Um, no, I know. A, yeah, like, they got away with it, you know, and... Uh, well, now they now the kids can experiment on their own, and they are experimenting. They right, don't need to go to right. school. Well, that's they experiment so many different ways now. Right. The Internet is a whole other... Uh, yeah, they they got the chip yeah. part. They're like non-physical. They can play with the chip landscape now. Right, right, right. Well, okay, anyway, Carol, let's hey, let's listen. end on that point. I'm gonna. It was. Hit. It's great. Right. <laughs> okay, you can hold a second. Let's just see if this works. I want to see if you hear this. I do star ninety. A star nine. Nothing happened. Hmm. Yeah, which is that? I mean? think I have to take off the other the other phone that's recording. This only works on one phone, so just a second, I'm gonna I'm doing a backup recording. I'll turn that off. Stop this. Now it should work. <laughs> 